Hello and welcome to another session of the Corona Investigative Community, our 77th meeting. We have uh, selected a riddle of a title, Schrodinger's Cat, and we are a little bit delayed because or later, because we're going to talk to America later on, and lots of things are going on, and it's hard to keep up with the pace. And today we want to drill down into the details. We've got our live guest with us. Uh, let me talk about Schrodinger's cut for a minute. I'm just briefly uh, introducing this. And if you're interested in quantum mechanics, uh, look at uh, look it up yourselves, Google it. And we thought about this title because it describes a paradox from quantum mechanics about the position of an electron moving through slits in theory, or in this case, in a cubus and behaves in a certain way. And until the observer sees it, there is an indifferent situate condition of the electron where you don't know whether it's on one side or on the other side of the box. And with respect to the cat, it's a pure thought experiment. We are, of course, animal friendly. There's no cat here that had to die for that. And there are the so-called the, uh, the observation if the cut is alive or dead until or what is it until the observer has watched it or looked at it and the same applies for the vaccination as long as we haven't looked at it in detail we don't know if it is harmful or not or does it affect is it effective or not and these are topics that we're going to look at today as well as a guest we have Kluzer Krings with us live here he's an author theater man, man um, ethnologue and um, economist and he talks about to us about the crisis after the crisis casino capitalism which is according to his views facing its end let's um, point out um, that we'll have three short clips that will show at the end of this session one of them will Hark back to Matthew Arid's uh, statements last week, uh, who was uh, speaking about and presented to us the uh, so-called climate disaster. Um, that uh, he said that it's a matter of course that uh, the environment needs to be protected, um, and that climate change is something that happens anyway. We don't know that much about it. Uh, Matthew Arid believes that a lot, uh, too much, uh, panic is being generated there. And uh, we will um, show a uh, video. Um, the inventor of the hockey puck, uh, hockey racket, um, that shows um, the graph of the uh, climate, which is level for many centuries, and then it shoots up. Um, um, he uh, now says, um, admits that what he uh, published was all uh, fake, that none of it is true, even though it was uh, peer-reviewed. That's the first thing that we show, that's Tichy's uh, insight. The second clip will show uh, Tichy's uh, insight will be shown uh, during this session. 
Dr. Scott Youngblood, um, who gave a presentation to the county, um, uh, the, the county board um, of supervisors in San Diego. They held a hearing on the 20th of November 2021. Uh, incredibly interesting because in detail he goes into uh, the vaccinations uh, that we'll talk about today, that they're not necessary, not efficient, and um, that at the same time they're uh, really dangerous. And he says that science is kicked um, here. And then a song uh, by Blind Joe, um, a great song called I Will Not Comply. That could become a hymn. So that uh, much by way of uh, by preparation, so you know that there's something after the end of the session. So you have the floor. Okay, thank you. Uh, the crisis after the crisis, and I'll start off with that, is a hypothesis for me at this point. Not in the sense that it doesn't make any difference or that it would be a lie, but uh, from a socio-scientific care because if there is something to it we are only in the very beginning i looked at this up and the 4th of april 2020 i wrote my first article on covid and it was clear at the time we are manipulated with the figures the problem is made bigger than it is that was visible at the time but in april 2020 one couldn't have said anything about lockdowns yet or mandatory masks or that people who are not vaccinated may be excluded from society um, uh, or um, they get a lockdown only for unvaccinated people. That was unforeseeable in April 2020. So with that preliminariness is my approach. Juridically, I would say it is a reason suspicioned that should be drilled down to get to some kind of conclusion in the end. A hypothesis should always be made on a sound basis and this would be the experience and the history that we've made with about 500 years of capitalism i won't take you for all of it but um some pieces so that we see some continuities if we go to early capitalism talking about the big trade cities venice genoa florence these are the first approaches with traders who reinvest money into their companies and with that start the the capitalist um, economic cycle, not just using the money but reinvesting it to make the company grow bigger to generate more money. And this is this goes through until the end of the 19th century, even to the first sec uh, decade of the 20th century. And here we are in these uh, massive uh, flat buildings that we have in Berlin. And this is one of the characteristics of this early capitalism, which is that and there is a contradiction between capital and work. That means the workers who actually generate all the wealth are kept quite, uh, quite uh, poor, and the people who own the companies get incredibly rich. 
And the other thing that we see is virtually unsatisfied markets. So if Venice imported silks and things like that, they could be exported to the whole of Europe because nobody had any or had any spices. And the market was completely open. The only limit was how much do I get of it? As much as I get, I can sell. And then we'll take a jump to what the Brazilian economist Carlos, Carlos uh, Bezerra Pereira said, calls the 30 successful years of capitalism. It's a time with unsaturated markets after the Second World War. That means the Second World War was a big benefit of killing down, knocking down everything, and everything had to be bought anew. It was a virgin market like it had been in the early, early times of capitalism. On the other side, there is a relative balance between capital and labor. The average worker, of course, knew that his bosses earn more money or the shareholders get more money than they do. But at the same time, as soon as production increased, productivity increased, they got their share of it. That means they saw every year they could buy more, the standard of life was increasing. So people were quite satisfied with that situation, mainly because those who were against the situation um, were um, the life of the dictators of the um, Eastern Bloc, living at the uh, level of social benefit compared to the West at the time. And so that means the people were quite satisfied. These are the uh, good years, the 30 good years, starting from 45 to round about 70, the 17th. And after that, things change. One thing is the saturation of the markets. Uh, a good example for this is the TV. In the 60s, the first TV was sold, massive box put in the uh, living room and everybody met in front of it uh, in front before just before the news and until the 70s this was ex replaced by a color tv with more programs and uh, the fathers wanted to watch football on a saturday night and um, the uh, children wanted to see something else and so the children got their own tvs and in the end even the mother had her own TV in the kitchen, and more four than four TVs is difficult to sell to a four-headed four-person family. The same applied for fridges, for washing machines, laundry machines, the hairdryer, and the Hoover. So, at the end, all the households had everything they needed. There were three strategies of what to do against this situation. One was the deliberate point of breakage. So they, there was research on how to lead these machines to break, how to limit the, life, the service life artificially. And uh, so that means people would have to replace the same object. That was a big change in the consumer behavior because right until the mid of the 70s, a good object was something that worked 
long. If you think about the Volkswagen advertising, it runs and runs and runs and runs. And uh, that's why uh, my parents bought one at the local car dealer because that, they could take it back. And that was thrown over. It had to be chic, it had to be modern. And so the same family would buy the same stuff again and again. That's the first trick. The second trick was the change from colonialism to imperialism. The European countries, German, Germany a bit, as one of the last ones got all their colonies in the 17th, 18th, 19th century. And in the end of that, the decolonization starts. That means these countries are led to in inverted commas, independence. However, in the next step, it is made sure that they approach, they move closer to the Western way of life and the Western way of economy, and by that they hope to create new markets that could be sold to. So that means what we can't sell at home, we may be able to sell it in Ghana or Korea. So, opening more markets. We have found out what this turned into because the countries that we exported to as our markets learned how to make these products themselves not as expensive as we and now they are starting to export back so uh, in the beginning china was our big market and now we are china's big market so the there's a shift in the ratio of what we export and what we import so that was buying time for a couple of years, but it was only buying time and the problem came back in a worse form. And number three, and we're going to look at that today, is the shift of capital from the production and trade to the financial markets. And I have prepared a chart, if we could have that on the screen. Um, this is an image, I may call it. On the right side, you see the production and trade, and you see towards us it gets less. So I have to say this is not uh, with correct numbers. What I want to show is give you an optical impression of what is happening. Because the markets are saturated, the profit in production and trade is dropping. So instead of putting money into production, it'd be better to put the money in the financial markets. I put um, um, a profiter here, um, people who just want to make money with money. So a couple of years ago, you would have bought a share of a big company, and now you say, why this big companies? Why don't we do go to the capital market straight away? And that means the capital market is alimented by a large degree by people who would have invested elsewhere otherwise. There is a second source, and that is the foreign capital coming in. For Germany, it's important. For America, it is a basis of lies. The Americans are very dependent on foreign capital. I'll come back to that, but that takes place later. And then we see that red area, which is getting bigger and bigger, and that is state bonds. And they move into the capital market. The question is how? 
We'll not answer that now. I'll come back later to that. And that means the state picks up more and more credit and loans, and we see how the load of the financial debts are bigger and bigger. And in the end, all of this is shifted to the capital market. So on the right-hand side, we see the uh, the little ball of uh, at the top, we see the ball of the profits. Uh, so they get bigger in the capital markets and smaller in the production markets, but there is no benefit, no profit in the debt. So they have to be paid all the time, and in the end, they, they end up with the taxpayer. That means the normal taxpayer, people having to pay their taxes, feed the big and growing capital market without getting any benefit from it because the profits are privatized and the debts are socialized. And now this inflated capital market in the middle has two unpleasant characteristics. One is that they don't generate additional value. They don't add value. So get money doesn't get more out of itself. If you read Marx, uh, read Marx, you understand this. Economists understand this as well. The only value that gets more by using it is human labor. <clears throat> That's quite logical. That's why the term financial industry is completely wrong, because the manufacturing industry produces something the financial industry doesn't. Yes, and carries on. Uh, they, they even go, go as far as to call the stuff they do products. So, just to make this point very clear, because it's very important, my example is a very new Mercedes-Benz for 50,000 euros. If you'd calculate on how much the steel costs for that money, aluminium and plastics, that's a very small part only of the cost for this new car. Everything else is human labor. So the workers in the factory, it is also the people working in the suppliers industries that build the robots. So replacing a, uh, a worker at the automotive company, there is a robot which has to be made and simple things, uh, security services, the canteen, administration, sales, and so on and so forth. <clears throat> so this is feeding 60 to 80,000 people, and a share of what these earn is in this one car. And this is what we don't have in the capital markets. There, in general, we have two that make money on it during the process. One is the um, fund managers. They uh, earn a lot, and the computer guys who build the computers, who set up the systems, or maintain them, adapt them, or whatever they do. Everybody else is just done. Everything else is just done by computer trade, and that does not generate any additional value. That's one bad thing. And the other bad thing is that everybody who invests into the capital markets expects a profit. If they go there, they want a profit which is higher than that if they had went to the industry. So a Daimler share is 3%, something like that. Of course, then I want 6 or 7 or 9% if I invest into the capital markets. The capital markets is going to collapse at the moment where people know that their profit is not going to come anymore. 
Where should they come from? The managers take off the money. It's nothing that uh, gets to the investor and the computer guys neither. So they have to generate money from itself and that can only be, be done by putting in more money. The Americans call this a pyramid scheme. <coughs> uh, so it's a it's a pyramid, really. Um, well, Ponzi scheme is also named. The Ponzi is the inventor. It was an um, American of Italian descent who uh, conned people. Yes, it's a typical thing that you only get your profit, or if somebody pays, you know, at the bottom. So you promise people if you invest more money, then you get three uh, get it back threefold a year from now. You don't produce anything, but you make sure that ever more people follow this promise. And the last to invest are used to uh, fund the first ones who uh, contributed. So it's not yes, it doesn't uh, blow up in your face too early until it collapses, which is inevitably does. <clears throat> so just how to, how did this come about? We are in the 80s now, 1980s, and. There was a new species on the world, all of a sudden, that was uh, called the yuppies, young urban professionals. And <clears throat> Brese Pereira says, or sees a new coalition growing from these extremely smart young people who come up with all these stockbroker ticks, the um, shareholders and the government. If the government doesn't play along, it's all going to collapse immediately. And he says it's a new coalition of capitalist rentiers and professional finances, including the top financial executives, and that are bright and ambitious young people coming out of um, the major universities with their MBAs and PhDs, the golden boys and girls of the financial trader systems. The latter were able to develop the imaginative and complex new financial products. We've just heard that word. Product is, of course, a uh, bullshit word here. Um, he also writes about this with some humor that, of course, the investors are going to be annoyed about this, uh, about the annual salaries, because that is taken away from their profits. But they also understood very early that they are not able to understand these and do the, these uh, complex ma financial manipulations. So they depend on these yuppies who run the show now for them. So, and now maybe we could have the next chart. And I'll look at what Mr. Pereira says about this. So how to assess this? He says, in their speculative approach, these financial jugglers are caught in self-fulfilling properties all the time. They buy shares expecting an increase of price, and the prices actually climb because purchasing moves the prices up. So that means, in the end, what we see here, the assessment of shares runs away from the real economy. This is McKenzie figures, by the way, uh, a billion US dollars. And that's the small, the uh, gray ones are the small ones. That's the world 
GDP. And the, so they sat down asking how many goods and services are made worth money worldwide and what are the sums. So you see since 1980 and 2007, it may be tripled, maybe quadrupled five times as much. But the share values start to race off the actual economic value. If you go to 2007, it is ne nearly the four times as much as the shares compared to all the services and anything that is worth money on the, wo on the world. So this is an unsustainable situation. This chart, just to explain it uh, for the crash, is from 2007-2008. So it was Lehman Brothers at first who collapsed, and the, the Americans, um, the uh, government said, "Okay, let them, let them fail. It's not our problem." But when they saw that this is going to collapse the whole world economy, new debts had to be created in order to keep uh, the economy going and stabilize it. Uh, coming back to Presidente Pereira, we know that the financial world has blown apart and gets risk at risk if it doesn't align the goal to finance production and trade, but speculation. The financial sector overloads with debt because it only can be done with debts, and the debts overwhelm. Investors and banks suddenly find that the risks are unbearable, and then the herd uh, movement starts. And what he says here is what's actually happened to Lehman Brothers. They saw uh, they had all these uh, default credits, these uh, um, scrap uh, estates, everybody dealt with it, and in the end, everybody noticed we, we've got the same as Lehman has, and all the investors tried to get their money out as quickly as possible, and that's the moment when the system tips over. There are two uh, films I would like to mention in this context that are really worth watching. The first one is Wall Street by Oliver Stone, great director. It describes uh, this yuppie situation that you just uh, mentioned. We had the um, people of private means, and then we have the uh, financial jugglers, and uh, they simply buy up uh, companies, uh, dismember them, and uh, sell the individual components, um, destroying people's jobs. Um, and the second film, um, um, shows how these uh, scrap uh, real estate um, was uh, financed. The biggest uh, criminal in the world, Deutsche Bank, was involved here. This film is called The Big Short. It shows uh, clearly how uh, junk real estate was uh, sold by the banks, and many judges um, said, you don't believe that a bank does that on purpose. Yes, I do believe that. Uh, we know by now that they do it on purpose, and these financing, um, these this funding was taken, turned into uh, bonds, and sold to uh, German banks, uh, stupid German money, um, um, EKB, etc. That went uh, bust. Then they bought this these junk um, bonds, 
selling them on to um, grandmothers and they believed, all oh, right, uh, there's a, a bond that's worth billions, I buy 20,000 worth and the interest will be paid for by the people who buy the real estate. But the real estate um, buyers who weren't solvent, who couldn't pay, Deutsche Bank knew it um, and other investors knew it, but not the people who bought the bonds at the end of the day. And that's what this film shows. Yes, exactly. This uh, happened. I talked to a Spanish bankier when this was up to date and I asked them, how did you do it? Didn't you sign Basel? There was international agreements for the banks, what to do and what you can't do. And it's always asked that there is enough equity capital. Wolfgang, you are online. Uh, okay, they should have made sure that there was enough equity capital. And he told me this following story. Somebody walks into a bank and says, um, we, we, I've got a new house. My wife wants one. Do you have a new building there? Can we buy one of these houses at the end of the road? And the bank guy says, quite rightly, yes. But we've been having your account for a long time and it's not looking good. So we don't want to finance it. And he said, OK, come on, we went to school together. Your wife hired, uh, married the, the uh, mother-in-law of, of my friend. So he, he had to do it. <clears throat> so he said, OK, now let's, let's calculate it. It's 340,000 for the house. You do 1,800 a month. Could be Might work okay. Out. Okay, just let's do the maths and and then be be okay with it. You want to have a kitchen, or do you want to have your your wife making a fire, and you want a bathroom? Okay, let's go for four hundred thousand. That's a good sum that we can calculate well with. Let me estimate it and see if it's possible. And then he calls some kind of agency that estimates the value, and they say, "Look, this guy, these." buildings we can't sell the last one can you assess it we should get to five to six hundred and then he gets that five hundred and twenty thousand and he says paper is okay the building it's worth the four hundred thousand and we just put that onto our equity and then it's okay go ahead if you want a car okay twenty thousand extra this is how they did it and not only in Spain, same went on down in the US. I, I can only tell you that because this Spanish bankier was uh, so nice to tell me, frankly, what they did. The question is, of course, why this was done at all and the background was a political will. In the time uh, we are in the saturated markets, this is why the quota of production is dropping and the financial market is growing but one wanted to cre recreate this situation um, of balancing capital and labor artificially obama was aiming at this by saying look the american dream is still alive you can get your house in suburbia anywhere and put a car on the porch like in the 50s like your father, you can do the same thing today, only that it's not possible in the mass ways. Okay. So this is again the same chart, uh, just to, to come back to it. 
um, the capital market, the financial market keeps on growing and growing. And the question is, which I've just asked without answering, how do the state uh, loans get to that capital market? And then the majority of us uh, good citizens have an entirely incorrect understanding of how a loan is granted. I'm a little bit um, older, and those who are of my age know about the World Savings Day, where you took your little uh, savings box that was uh, knocked open, and you had your eight Deutschmarks in it, and uh, that was put on your uh, on a savings account, and then your grandmother gave you a red booklet uh, where the eight marks were on, and as long as you uh, have this booklet, it won't go away. But the people, the good people of the bank, uh, will lend it out, and um, um, they charge interest. And that goes part of it goes to your uh, savings account, and so it, it uh, accrues. That's what people think about, but that's not the reality at all. Create uh, money is created in Germany basically exclusively by uh, the commercial banks, i.e., as soon as a commercial bank reports a credit, a loan to um, the federal bank, the, the, the Bundesbank, the central bank in Germany, um, they will get that money. So let's move on. These are the ECB rules. And they were created after the Lehman uh, Brothers um, crash. And after the big uh, financial crisis, we don't have to go through it all. You can um, review it later on. But the one thing that I find interesting here is that the equity should be at least 8%. However, of their risk-weighted um, assets, you're the legal experts. You will realize that this means nothing at the end of the day. So for the hardcore capital, um, it's not that much. We're at 4.5%. Up until 2014, it was between 4 and 4.5%. So that would have been the maximum requirement to a bank. So the, they give me a loan of 1,000 euro, and they own 45 euro themselves. The rest they get from um, the public um, coffers. And the only thing that entitles them to get this money is that they're a bank. So if they stick by this rule, uh, uh, rule they have the a right uh, to draw um, this money. That's what it's called, the drawing right. Wait a minute. Uh, this is something I wanted to bring along. Um, you can see that I'm uh, coming up with this uh, off the cuff, basically. I'm distributing uh, this now. We're not going into this in detail now, but maybe you can uh, do something with it in uh, one of your next um, sessions. That's the rules of the European Central Bank as um, published during the COVID-19 crisis. You can see 29th of May 2020 was the publication date, but it was introduced in March of last year. Um, and uh, we can't go into detail now because it, uh, we don't have the time and it would also um, challenge our attention span. 
But uh, if you read it through in, in detail, it basically uh, says that the banks don't have to have any um, uh, security at all, um, so uh, any collateral at all anymore. Um, it's all beautifully worded, but if you uh, look behind it, then it's nothing. So they had already carte blanche, and they, they've been given an even whiter carte blanche uh, now. Um, I would, um, I will um, put, a, uh, you should uh, put on your website one of, uh, at one stage, this letter of April of 2020. The banks went so far as to imposing on European uh, governments or trying to impose it that the credits that they issue are guaranteed by the states. And they were uh, guaranteed that 80 to 90 percent uh, would be guaranteed by the state. And they, the bank said that under these circumstances, we can't uh, grant any loans anymore. So they're 100 percent um, guaranteed. So in other words, if the bank makes a profit with a, a loan, then the bank loans, uh, makes a profit. And if the loan defaults and the bank uh, would make a loss, well, it's the loss of the uh, taxpayer. So the money is constantly shoveled from uh, the co state coffers to um, the financial industry. That keeps it going. Well, um, it, it was the same elsewhere where they uh, stopped that minimum reserve, reserve. That happened across the board, of course. <laughs> I'll show you a lot of data that only refer to the US because that's the most meaningful thing. It doesn't make sense to take a look at all the figures for uh, Holland, Germany, uh, Italy, Finland, etc. Uh, because we, we all follow the US in the West. Uh, if we have the trend in the US, then we know what happens in all the other countries. Could I have the next chart, please, now? Okay, this, here we see, so we can see um, the public debt here of the US. And we have to um, think a bit. That's against the gross domestic product. So it's no absolute figures, but uh, percentage uh, of all products and services uh, traded within a year. How much, uh, what's the percentage of debt um, compared to uh, the GDP here? So uh, can you see that now? Here in this first part, you can see that the U.S. Uh, did did good business. That's the time where the U.S. was isolated from the world and uh, where they uh, simply were involved in uh, naval gazing, uh, building the railways, etc. And they're below 10% of the gross domestic product. You can live with that very well. Then uh, the graph shoots up in 1916. The U.S. joins the First World War. It's expensive, and we can see they go up to about 35% of the gross domestic product. What we see after that is quite interesting. You can't simply get out of a war or the war debt because the war has uh, follow-up costs. You have to repatriate uh, um, personnel and uh, material. It's interesting they didn't do that in Afghanistan anymore. So obviously, that part of withdrawal was too expensive to them. So you have to consider how much 
the Americans are back to wall already. Nevertheless, I won't go through every single point here. Nevertheless, there's a consolidation. They can reduce the public debt. And uh, they would have, I, I think they would have gone back down to 10%. They weren't that far away from that, from this level. If um, the um, stock exchanges hadn't um, gambled so much in 28, 29, uh, um, the uh, stock exchanges crash, there's the big, uh, the Great Depression, and they counter it by pumping more money into the markets to stabilize America. It's called New Deal. Roosevelt was the president who invented that, and uh, Truman continued that, so they stayed on a, a high level of base debt. Come the year 1942, America enters the Second World War. You can see that was much more expensive than the First World War and uh, took the um, debt up to 120% roundabout of GDP. So that was a very expensive war. And then we can see something that may actually surprise us. There's an incredibly long phase of consolidation. That's the uh, golden 30 years of capitalism that Bisher uh, Pereira writes about. That's the years where progress were made, the markets were open, um, the US could export as they pleased. There were other effects here. There is the level of I, that's the uh, Cold War. The Cold War flushed a lot of money into the uh, coffers of the Americans. They had major military expenses across the world, but they were already divided uh, through NATO, and the Allies were always obliged to buy American material. Uh, material. And uh, something else uh, was that the US uh, put pressure on the entire world whenever they had spent too much money, too much gambling money, and the dollar became uh, came under pressure. The uh, central banks of the Western world uh, bought up dollars, so the Americans could spend as much money as they wanted. At some stage, the Germans, the uh, Dutch, and uh, the Brits uh, changed this gambling money back into real money again. And then there was a statistical effect, as these are years of uh, wealth, the GDP increases, of course, and that, of course, means that the debt decreases in, re in relation to that. And you can see in the 1970s, that's the uh, period of what we call stagflation, i.e. Uh, stagnating um, um, business cycle uh, with a simultaneous uh, inflation. It went up to 25% in the US, completely uh, unchecked, and this is where we have a change of paradigm. So up until here, economic policy was always targeted at having as many people in um, productive work as possible, earning money and spending it. From here on, it didn't matter how many, how many unemployed people you had, it was only a question of monetary stability. So bottom line, we wanted uh, to have the money stable for people who had nothing other than money anymore. So good inflation can be pretty good for someone who has a factory, who uh, can expand with a major credit and sees inflation eating up the loan. But if my assets are uh, money only, then I have a problem with inflation. And that's where financial stability became the top criterion. 
At the same time, the ideology was uh, started. Um, I don't want anybody uh, telling me that that I uh, forgot about this. The uh, ideology was neoliberalism. Um, the fairy tale was uh, concocted that um, the state can't handle um, anything that has uh, can manage well. Uh, that business can only do that. So uh, all state assets need to be privatized. That means the government has more money. Um, that means people have to pay lower taxes. That should have brought uh, debt down because any company that's sold, any operation that's sold, should have flushed money into um, the state coffers. So the debt should have gone down. I can remember my um, uh, electricity bill here in Berlin. Um, in the back, it was a public utility. Uh, today, it's Vattenfall. Um, my electricity bill is higher today, and even though Berlin sold off its utility, uh, the city hasn't become wealthier. So more and more capital is taken into this market cycle so that it can have an impact on the financial markets. And the debts keep increasing because the financial markets need to be uh, supplied with additional money. We can't go through all the points. I'll, I'll just jump ahead now, otherwise we'll never get anywhere. We can see another sharp increase here, and that is after 2007, after the Lehman crash, when all that was attempted was to keep everything going with uh, public money, where Mr. Draghi uh, invested uh, 30 billion per month into European households, into uh, European budgets. And you can see how this um, shoots up here. And it um, consolidates a bit uh, just before a corona kicks in. So I put this red line here uh, to be scientifically fair because this set of statistics uh, has the latest year, 2019, and I simply extrapolated 2020. I verified I wasn't uh, so far off, and it's not been included uh, in what um, is being planned right now to launch these massive packages um, as Biden is planning. The Republicans aren't going along. Um, they don't uh, support anything that the Democrats do, no matter how wise or otherwise it is. But at the same time, a lot of the Democrats don't go along with it either because they see the risk. They can see what's happening. Well, I have a final thing now, and that will be a bit challenging to all of us now because it's so nice to show how badly things can go wrong when they do go wrong. And now I have to see, I have to ask the cameraman, how can we make sure that you can uh, capture something small like this? Is that possible? You can look it up on the internet. Somebody uh, went to the trouble uh, in a very pragmatic American way to summarize all values in the world in US dollars. It has no, uh, without uh, evaluation or judgment of whether it's good or bad, and he invented a little box, that's this one, and this box symbolizes $100 billion. So that's one of those boxes here, and I can show you, first of all, 
If it's not good enough for the camera, let me know. That's a little box which refers to silver. Silver overground. So that's the silver that has been mined and is in circulation. It's not even this, uh, the size of this box. So there's that many dollars, but so little uh, silver. Let's move on. Uh, we can't go through it all. It would be too much. I'll have to ask you to help me a bit. Um, I can still handle it on my own. That's gold. So these uh, black rows is physical gold that's actually um, stored with the central banks. And these uh, two and a half uh, rows are jewels, i.e. gold held by private uh, individuals. And generously, he puts another um, two rows. That's the um, expected gold reserves that are still available in the on the planet. So if we take a look at this, uh, silver is not even a single box. So basically, this and a, a quarter box is the entire stock of uh, precious metals in the world. That might be told to people who um, go for gold now. Gold is um, artificially kept artificially low to make sure that it's not uh, too obvious how big the disparities are. So if you invest in gold, you're in the hands of uh, con men. Here we have the uh, stock markets. The purple uh, at the top is New York Stock Exchange. Below that, NASDAQ. So both of those um, headquartered in New York. And you can see how much of the world's stock trade happens in New York alone, because below that is the rest of the world. But if you compare that to gold and silver combined, you can see how uh, incredibly inflated the uh, stock prices are. Below that is not so surprising. That's the uh, money value M2 in the world. That is a lot more than uh, the value of shares. Uh, you have to know that whenever a share is uh, bought or sold, um, it goes to M2. So it uh, reflects the shares plus everything else. So I think plus everything else is a little bit little. So the shares are overpriced. And it gets worse. So now I really need someone to help me. So these are the, the stocks. This is money. And these are the derivatives on the stocks that are being traded. Just a short explanation. Derivatives are bets that I make on the shares in existence. Um, for example, I bet uh, with someone who gives me a loan of their um, shares for 30 days. I have to pay the value of those shares. And I bet that over the next 30 days, the value of the shares will decrease. Uh, sorry, will increase because then I'll sell them back to him. I have made a, a profit. 
So this is pure speculative derived values. That's why they're called derivatives. They have no intrinsic value, uh, which you can actually cast into doubt with chairs. If we think of the graph we saw earlier, you might have your doubt. There can be no doubt about the derivatives anymore. And you can see there's the um, uh, purple and then it goes red, or this pinkish sort of uh, figure, um, color, shows the derivatives that are traded in the stock exchange. They don't have to be traded there, and there's an estimate, and that's this red. That's the derivatives that are traded um, um, outside of the stock exchange. And if you have a significant significant share of market participants in this uh, segment, if they want to know whether they can earth their profits, if they can actually buy something for them, they will find that no, they cannot. There's so much money uh, in the system, normally in the system, that doesn't e really so, exist. This, if you've got a lot of this play stuff in your books, when the domino of effect comes, you're going to be bust in a minute. One of the banks who has most of it in its books is the German bank. I think 72 trillion, I think down to 42, I don't know where they are now, but it's not for nothing that they were, <coughs> were uh, classified the most important, most uh, risky bank in the world by the World Monetary Even Fund. They're, they're all uh, slide down. Now that would be the only thing that could save us, really. Yeah, there'll be too many um, victims there in it. Uh, well, we can um, talk about it later. What might save us, maybe, but I'm not the world savior. I'm just the. Um, harbinger of, of bad news. So, all that we've done so far has been shown, all that I've said has been uh, proven. There can be no doubt that this is fact. We'll have to interrupt for a minute uh, to talk to Miss Leidundis. Um, just for her to present her project, I think that's not going to take very long because she has to leave. We can carry on later. So we'll go on uh, and on. Okay. Ich glaube, ich muss jetzt Lee Dundas vorstellen. To interrupt this current presentation, um, Lee Dundas is a human rights attorney and activist. Uh, she's going to tell us about the nationwide, in the U.S., nationwide walkout next week of blue and white-collar workers that could shut down the supply chain and force Corporation and Biden to capitulate. Um, Lee, I, did I describe this correctly, or uh, would you put it, uh, phrase it otherwise? Okay. So what I've Okay, so what I told you about here is uh, fact based. Now I'll come in with my hypothesis. Um, it's the basis for my hypothesis. His, and there's a couple of ones. The first one is that the COVID crisis was also, serve, also served to 
get a lot of money back into the markets without the electorate being punishable. People are still annoyed about 2007-2008 that we financed uh, these people. And this has to be uh, made clear, it's crystal clear. The, uh, bailing out the banks, um, as you said earlier, um, Profits are privatized, whereas losses, uh, the the bonuses um, that pe were paid out to people, 43 billion with uh, Deutsche Bank alone, and the people who lost money because they extracted their bonuses, uh, that was the damage that then had to be covered exactly. by the taxpayer. Exactly, exactly. And since 2018, so this is not uh, secret sources here. What I know, all governments know that, and uh, every bank uh, director knows this. Every savings bank around the corner knows this. Since 2018, the warning has been issued that the next bubble will burst, which is what we've just seen, that, that big red bit, bit on the roll I've just shown. And so countermeasures measures have to be taken. We are in a world in which there are no alternatives because they are not allowed. So that means against this uh, gambling, there is no opposition and no party. You can elect whoever you want. You're not going to get any opposition against this. And this, I think we'll have to interrupt now. So we'll interrupt, yeah. You even came on. Um, I told, can you hear us? I can, but you disabled my video, so I can't make it active at my end. Uh-oh, it's uh, our directors have to do something about that. But we can hear you at any at any rate. Um, I told our viewers that you're a human rights attorney and activist and that you're going to tell us about the nationwide, in the U.S., nationwide walkout next week of blue and white-collar workers. Now we can see you, by the way. <laughs> How are you doing? I'm great. Thank you guys so much for having me on today, especially on such short notice. It's a, it's an honor to be here. It's a, it's a pleasure. It's an, it's an honor to have you. So what's going on in the U.S.? What is this walkout? Well, uh, as you probably know, um, our administration right now is playing a, ga a dangerous game of chicken uh, with, with the entirety of our country, all of the workers. You know, they've tried to mandate this uh, coronavirus vaccine, saying that, uh, you know, if you're an employer, you're going to have to force your employees to get it done. Uh, and now they're starting to say it's not just large employers. They're going to try to trickle this down into the small employers. You know, our phone lines, as I'm sure your phone lines uh, uh, have been doing have just been burned up. We've got employees left, right, and center who are upset. They know it's unconstitutional. They know it's illegal. They know it's unlawful. They don't want it. Um, ironically, a lot of the employees are not necessarily, um, you know, MBAs or PhDs. They're just the average American working class uh, blue-collar workers, a lot of them, that make our products and move our products. You know, in first world countries, Germany, parts of Europe, America, I think people have come uh, gotten used to the notion that products just appear on their grocery store and other type of store shelves and of course that's not the way it happens people around the world make our products and then they have to move those products through shipping containers across oceans offloaded at docks onto trains planes trucks automobiles where they go to warehouses and then they're once again moved to the stores and those men and women Reiner are pissed off, they're horrified, and they have basically 
um, said, we aren't going to play this game if the administration is going to force our employer to essentially take food off of our family's tables after we have given our employer 10, 20, 30, 40 years of our lives in many cases. If they are going to try to bankrupt us, we're going to double down. We're going to play this game of chicken until the cows come home, and we are going to say to them, we're walking out. Uh, enjoy trying to, to make money in a, in a for-profit business in a cow capitalist society with half your workforce gone. But many of the employees I've been talking to work at very large corporations in this country um, that, that are actually upwards of 70% not vaccinated. I've talked to employee groups that are 30, 40, 50% unvaccinated, but some are north of 70, 75% unvaccinated. And what they've said is come next Monday, November 8th and the 9th and the 10th and the 11th, they are basically staging a week-long walk out to uh, to force things to a head here and god be with them i i support them 100 percent you know the courts have not had our back uh here in america largely certainly the legislatures and executive branch are not acting in a constitutional way and uh, at the end of the day we are a government in my country of, of the people by the people for the people and uh, the people aren't playing ball they're walking out um i think there is going to be a not just nationwide walkout i've heard rumblings that this is going to affect the world within two Two, just really quickly, cute story. Within about 48 hours, two days of us doing uh, um, uh, a flyer about this nationwide walkout. And by the way, anybody listening to your show right now can get a copy of that flyer so they can post it on social media, so they can give it to 100 of their friends, family members. Uh, just text it, email it, drown social media in it. You can text the word freedom to 53445. Again, that number is 53445. You just text the word freedom there, or you can get a copy on the new website that went up yesterday yesterday called nationwidewalkout.com. Again, that web address is nationwidewalkout.com. But we put this flyer out there. Everybody supports it. Bobby Kennedy and Children's Health Defense, Simone Gold, America's Frontline Doctors, Lynn Wood, General Flynn. I mean, everybody, all the journalists in our country, all the doctors, all the lawyers said, put my name on that. We recognize a checkmate move when we see it. This is the game-changing move we have all been waiting for. They support it 100%. And when that flyer went out on social media mid last week. About a day and a half later, the administration's coronavirus uh, coordinator, Jeff Zients, admitted at a press conference. You know, that December 8th date where we had said everybody needed to be vaccinated or the employers were going to have to fire you, um, that was a misunderstanding. That's actually a, a soft date. They started to walk it back, Reiner, and, uh, and, and that's where we stand. And, I, and then they said, at the very end, and we don't expect any supply chain disruptions. And I looked at that and I said, the heck you don't, or you wouldn't have just telegraphed loud and clear. And then Bloomberg came out and said, if America's supply line goes down, it's going to affect the global supply lane, uh, chain. And, and I expect it will. Isn't that a risk? Because um, is it not possible that this is part of their game plan because they want to wreak havoc so that ultimately uh, that is what we have learned from the experts whom we interviewed, that ultimately the population will begin to think that their regional or national governments aren't capable of dealing with these crises, so we need a world government. Is that a danger that you've taken into account? 
Well, I'm not the one organizing it. Uh, the blue-collar guys are organizing it, and I got off the phone right afterward, and I was hearing from white-collar employees in telecom, in aerospace defense. You know, this is a an at-will employment uh, situation in our country, and we're not yet communist North Korea. So the administration can try to hold the proverbial gun to our head, but without an actual gun, you can't force people to go to work. Could it backfire? Could it play into their hands? Yes, potentially. Um, I'm not sure these workers have any other chance. I mean, Southwest filed suit in a very red state, as you probably know, Reiner, um, and a federal court judge last week said, too bad, so sad. Uh, you know, I, I'm, I'm not deciding this case, and uh, I think the, the vaccine is a good thing. So again, when you're, you're three systems, your three branches of government that are supposed to act as a system of checks and balances have 100% all of them failed you, I'm not sure what other choice the workers have. I can tell you this, one of the problems, though, is this country and a lot of the world is still asleep at the wheel. And when first world countries start having supply chain issues, I think that's going to force some of the people that aren't yet awake to wake up. Ultimately, the way these things roll, and you know this being German, eventually good people say enough. We're not having what our evil tyrants are forcing down our throats, and we are going to start uh, doing the right thing. And I think we're at that tipping point. Might this be part of the administration's plan? Yes, but you know, uh, I, I don't know that you can uh, hold back the tide. And right now you've got a tide of blue-collar, white-collar workers who aren't playing ball next week. Um, I think this is a great idea. It is definitely a show of force. It'll show them that we're many more than they are. It'll show them that we do have some levers to push and to pull. Um, ultimately, I think if this then plays into the new thought of, regional, of, of regionalization, of taking back our sovereignty from these semi-world governments like the WHO and others, uh, the NGOs and the global corporations that are all run by the same evil forces. If that plays into that, it's perfect. And I just hope it's going to go that way. Actually, I think it will go that way because many people who I speak with in the US are already working on these regional, uh, taking back your sovereignty from, the, from these evil forces. Let's put it that simple way. Well, you know, at the end of the day, I think you're exactly right. And Margaret Mead, I believe it was, said, and I'm going to slaughter the quote because I'm not fully awake yet. But, you know, never something along the lines of never doubt uh, that a small group of people can change the world because, indeed, they are the only ones who ever have. And what you're seeing is smaller groups of people um, from coast to coast, from, from Mexico to Canada in our country, saying, we're not, we're not doing this anymore. Uh, you have overreached when you said that you're going to mandate vaccines for five-year-olds and up when San Francisco Francisco is now having them show Warsaw ghetto Nazi style passports for five-year-olds to get into restaurants. Uh, you've got people from all walks of life. And, and the fact of the matter is this was never going to end until everybody started to wake up and all people, despite their differences, started to unify. And what the administration has done by overreaching as far as they have is start to, to wake the sleeping giant and unify because we've got, I don't know if you covered this yet, BLM, you know, it used to be at these freedom rallies, you wanted to know where BLM and Antifa were because you were expecting an attack from them, either figurative or literal. We've now got BLM marching down Brooklyn Bridge, arm in arm with, you know, mothers and fathers and workers, blue collar, white collar, that are against this mandate of a vaccine. So despite the fact that we have not been unified for a long time 
in this country. And of course, big tech and the Mockingbird Media have done their level best to polarize our country and make us think we're all different and we need to be at war with every little fractional, factional difference. Um, the, the overreach has united the masses around this one point, which is you aren't mandating a damned kill shot. We know it when we see it, whether we're a PhD or a high school dropout, you ain't doing it and you're certainly not doing it if you're going to condition our job on it or force our children into it when it's still in the experimental phase. And uh, and they're right. And whether or not they've ever heard of the Nuremberg Code, the reason for that code is because we walked out of the atrocities of Nazi Germany and said, never again are we going to experiment on vulnerable populations without their truly informed consent? And the next sentence in that paragraph says, and it ain't informed consent, folks, if it is coerced, coerced or you're being put under duress or bribed into doing this. And of course, we've seen all three and then some. Here, get a donut, a free college education, a free car to do it. Oh, we're going to make it totally voluntary. Just kidding. Now we're going to take your damn job away when you're one year away from retirement. And the only reason you work this blue collar job is for that pension in retirement. So um, again, the the, uh, the evil tyrants are showing their true colors, uh, as they always do in the final death throes of any of these, um, you know, bell curves of atrocities that we've seen. And, uh, and the good people, uh, not just of America, but I think of the world are going to unite and say, this is it. Uh, we don't need a lot of the toys that we've become accustomed to. My assistant went to buy a phone yesterday. There isn't a single iPhone in any AT&T store or warehouse countrywide countrywide. We haven't even seen the beginning of the supply chain issues that I think are going to happen come next week. And already we're having hiccups because of blue state governor's policies. Like in my my state, you can't operate a, a gas-powered lawn mowing equipment anymore. You know, you can't drive a, a semi-truck older than 2011. And as a result, none of the truckers can get to the ports to take those containers off the ships. But I think that that is going to get exponentially worse, exponentially worse next week. So I would tell your people, do your shopping uh, before November 8th. Do it over the next three days. Certainly don't wait until Thanksgiving because if the supply and, – and the airlines are doing it too. They're not allowed to strike. You know, airlines and railroads aren't allowed to strike in our country because Congress said mid-last century it is a catastrophic, devastational move when you boys strike. And so they don't. They have to exhaust their internal collective bargaining remedies. But what you're seeing with Southwestern American is they're saying in public we're not striking, and yet – you know. Know, behind the scenes in the back of the plane that I was on yesterday, they're all chuckling about how bad blue skies and perfect winds are for the uh, for the for the for the airplanes these days. So there's more than one way to skin a cat, and uh, I am not here. I'm a lawyer. I'm not advocating unlawful or Ill illegal action. If you're not allowed by contract or law to strike, I'm not saying that you should. But I will tell you this: neither can you hold back the tide on these men and women who have just had enough. They've had enough. They're not going to take it anymore and uh and they're gonna walk out and say you know what we don't have to work if that is what you're gonna do if you're gonna put a genocidal kill shot as the condition precedent to our working we're just walking off the job yeah it'll be uh really interesting to see what happens if enough people uh do this it is certainly going to um motivate lots more people all over the world um, and it's definitely a show of force. Um, we'll see what the outcome of this is. I just hope it's going to go in the right direction, but something has to be done. That is that is certain. Something has to be done. And if people, if they use this power that they, it's really a, a huge demonstration, which is a 
which is at, at its heart, it's the basic, the most basic right that all of us have under the Constitution. It is, uh, it is free speech. You, yeah. you use this as a demonstration in order to show the government or the governments that enough is enough. So basically, I think I'm all for it. I'm all for it. Um, but I think it would be important. I mean, I'm sure there's a lot of connection like between the individual groups that are uh, you know, involved in this project. I think it would be important to maybe make sure that there's not going to be like, um, you know, that riots can be avoided because if there's not enough food for everyone, so I think maybe these people could join together and maybe, you know, make, I mean, that's just an, a suggestion or idea, like that you make sure that, for instance, supply chain uh, in the sense of like food, you know, for the for food is not interrupted so that, you know, I think that's very important because otherwise it might also turn into like a direction that the government might say, oh, this is domestic terrorism or something like that. So I think it's a fine line that you really have to make sure that you have enough solidarity so it doesn't go really like super wild and you have these riots that then maybe the government can come in and say, wow, we're going to now attack you with whatever military force. I think it's a, it's a it's a very really well, again, fine I, line. That's a good. It's a it's a definite good point. But the groups who are in the main are the driving focus of this are the blue collar groups. They know their supply lines certainly better than all of us. And I, I I think they have been getting the word out. I know the truckers are rolling their CBs. Truckers have been talking about it. They're not prohibited uh, by law from striking many of them. So I, I think the word is out. I think people are stocking up. Um, certainly uh, in terms of the minorities, they are the least vaccinated in our country and rightly so. The Tuskegee syphilis experiment was perpetrated against the black population and they haven't forgotten that. Um, but yeah, we don't want to interrupt it so badly that there's no food on the table, but we are a first world country. There's plenty of food still in our warehouses, even if there's not, uh, you know, all of the gravy to go with the turkey as it were. Uh, but but in terms of how the left is going to spin it, we've got two choices at this point. We sit in our basement and do nothing because they're always going to say that we've done uh, the wrong thing. Or we start doing what Martin Luther King and Gandhi did, which is by peaceful, nonviolent means, and that is very much what this is. This is an economic war that's being waged by way of a sit out or a sit in, a sit away from the job. Um, it is what Martin Luther King did in the South. And I will say as well, our courts have not been very brave in making the decisions they needed to make. But when you look at the civil rights movement, the same thing was true. Before Brown v. Board of Education, there was a lot of uh, stuff that went on on the streets at the grassroots activist level that finally, I believe, gave the judges and justices in this country the spinal and intestinal fortitude that they needed to have to say, all right, the population is now ready for what is true and right and good, and that is that all children, whether black, white, or any other color, should have a right to education and integration in this country. And. Um, I think at the beginning of this coronavirus uh, pandemic, if you want to call it that, the judges were very scared. They said, hey, if we say it's not a pandemic, if we say you can go back to working without lockdown and back to school and then people die, the left is going to spin it and the LA Times is going to blame us and we're going to have egg on our face for having you know, killed people uh, or allegedly killed people. So the judges were very tentative and uh, you didn't see a darn ruling to save your life that was on the correct side of the fence because they were so scared. Now, if in the streets, 
states that people are saying, we're done with lockdown, we're done with the mandates, we're ready to go back. This turned out to be nothing worse than a bad flu season. I, I for one, believe it's going to give the judges and the courts in this country the ability to take cover and say, we're going to do the right thing that we should have been doing all along because we believe the, the population is now ready to have that ruling. At least that's the idea. Um, but again, you can't hold a good person down. And uh, these these blue collar guys and the white collar girls and, and guys, uh, they're all they're all good people. They're not looking to do damage to their uh, country. These are people who've never had so much as a parking ticket. But at this point, they're thinking my freedom is on the line. And if I go and strike and don't go to work and that gets some of my freedom back and it makes the point, then it's worth it, even if there's a little bit of hardship to endure. You're definitely right in saying that it is the uh, courts, most of the courts have failed us, much more so in this country than in the United States, because you still have some independent judges there. Uh, but it's uh, it's also true that uh, the, the courts of law usually follow the court of public opinion. And that's what what's happening right now. That's I that's think right. that's a great idea. Well, uh, thank you again for giving me a little bit of airtime to get the word out. Uh, other parts of the world are welcome to join America and our blue-collar and white-collar guys and girls who are going to be striking. Again, those strikes, strike days, it's this coming Monday, November 8th, through Veterans Day in our country, which is the evening of Thursday, November 11th. There are going to be rallies in many cities and states and towns. I know there's a big one in downtown L.A. Uh, we've got the flyer up on our nationwidewalkout.com website, uh, and there will be another one in San Francisco go in my home state uh, Thursday evening, Veterans Day. So we would love the support. I mean, everybody can participate in this. This is not just a, a person who's being forced to work at an employer who's mandating the vaccine. Even if you're a retired person, a mom with a newborn infant, you also can join and do your part by showing up at these rallies and saying, you know what, we are not in support of mandates when it comes to medicine or anything else, because that is absolutely antithetical to freedom. And by and large, at least in this country, country still. We are a free country. We were born free. We were a government of the people, by the people, for the people. And that is going to be abundantly clear come next Monday morning. Uh, again, that guys, thank you so much for having me on. It's really been a pleasure today. Thank you, Lee, for getting up so early. I know it's only six something over there, but um, I think it, it, this was important and it's going to be motivating um, a lot of people. Awesome. Well, again, we couldn't, couldn't do it without the microphone, Reiner. I'll let you guys get to your next guest, but thank you again. Take care, Lee. We'll be in touch. Sounds good. Through Gina or whoever. <laughs> okay. <laughs> okay. Sounds great. Yeah. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Yes. Um, uh, Jay Bhattacharya is a professor of um, medicine at Stanford University. He's a physician, epidemiologist, health economist, and public health policy expert focusing on infectious diseases and vulnerable uh, population. He's also a co-author and signatory of the Great Barrington Declaration with Professor Martin Koldorf and uh, Sunitra Gupta. Um, I hope I didn't keep you waiting, Jay. Uh, are you are you uh, with us? I, I am. Uh, no worries at all. It's interesting to hear the last conversation. <laughs> You've probably heard of uh, Lee Dundas before, right? Mm -hmm. Yep, I have. Okay. I've never met her though. Yeah, me neither. This is the first time she was introduced through a friend to through a mutual friend. So how have you been uh, at, at Stanford and how has your life been? <laughs> it's been it's been an interesting 20 months. Let's just say that I believe um, the um, uh, the environment at Stanford 
uh, it's interesting. It's like if you look at it from the outside, there are several people who have uh, essentially argued against many of the uh, the restrictions and things that we've seen. You know, there, there's you, you see you see Johnny Needies, you see uh, Mike Levitt, and a few others. Um, but I have to say, it, it has. I've been at Stanford for 35 years, and I've never seen an environment so close to open discussion and and, and debate. Uh, I mean, I think there's been real threats to academic freedom at Stanford, um, which I I mean greatly regret. That is what we're hearing from some of the uh, scientists in this country, uh, and I know that a lot more scientists um, believe that that is the case. Uh, a real scientific debate has been stifled for uh, the, the the past uh, 18 months or so. Uh, a good friend, I'm, I'm not going to name her name right now, but she's a very well-known professor at one of our universities, told me just last night that uh, she was ready to be uh, working as an expert on a couple of the trials that will be filed also in the United States, but that she is, um, and she's going to continue to support us behind the line, but she says, I can't come out right now because I'm losing everything. I'm losing my livelihood. So uh, as far as free speech is concerned, we're in pretty bad shape right now. Yeah, I mean, I, I have worked as an, an expert uh, pro bono for, I think, 40 cases, some somewhere a very large number of cases. So I have to say it's been a frustrating experience, but it's 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 been striking to me. Uh, I know there are many, 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 many people, uh, experts, scientific experts, who agree that the lockdowns were a catastrophic mistake, an unscientific catastrophic mistake. Um, uh, you know, tens of thousands of scientists signed the Great Barrington Declaration. Um, and I get emails from them. M many of them have lost, several have lost their jobs. Uh, they've lost opportunities to uh, to, to get grants. Uh, they've lost colleagues. Uh, it's it's an environment I have never seen before. I mean, in, in normally in science, one uh, it's it's good to disagree with each other. We we learn from that disagreement. Um, we don't cancel each other over the disagreement. We don't we don't uh, uh, sort of attack uh, attack the the underlying uh, substrate that allows us to to converse you know, with one another and then what's happened during this pandemic is essentially a, a freezing out. So uh, I, I'm not even sure there's a consensus in favor of lockdowns, scientific consensus. I think what's happened is a relatively small group of scientists have grabbed this discourse and frozen the rest of the, of the of other scientists into thinking that, 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 that they're alone when they're not. That is what we think, too. Uh, we, after having interviewed uh, about 150 experts uh, from all walks of science from all over the world, uh, we have come to the conclusion that this has really never been about health. Uh, we're not denying that there's a virus out there. It's just that, just like uh, John Ioannidis, who you just mentioned, uh, I think he came to this conclusion through one of his studies, which is in line with what the WHO arrived at, the uh, infection fatality rate of whatever this virus is. It, there's a lot of people right now, they're saying that this is a man-made virus. Well, doesn't make a difference because the human immune system uh, seems to be able to deal with it. But the infection fatality rate, if it is at 0.14, 0.15%, then that's roughly about the same as the common flu. So uh, it doesn't, we can't really understand, the people who are trying to dig into this can't really understand what is this about? It's definitely not about health. 
Yeah, I mean, I think there is that. that so that I, I I use the number 0.2. I mean, you know, it's 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 0.2 percent, some somewhere in that range from the seroprevalence studies. Um, the key thing, though, to me, is not the the median infection fatality rate. The key thing is the sharp gradient in the age, in age uh, for the risk. So people who are older actually do face a very substantial risk of infection fatality rate from even from this is from John's John's studies. Uh, you know, five, seven, eight percent, somewhere. I mean, it's a very high infection fatality rate if you're over the age of, of let's say, 70 or 80. Um, on the other hand, children face a very a banishingly low infection fatality rate risk. That is the centrally most important fact about the policy response. Even if the infection fatality rate is higher as a mean, the key thing is that age grading. I think nobody denies that. Um, and so if that's true, the right policy response is to uh, is to have a, fo a focused protection. You I, uh, find the people that are actually at risk, move heaven and earth to protect them, and then disrupts the rest of society as little as possible because the disruption of society harms everybody, even the vulnerable. Uh, and, and I think uh, this is the pandemic strategy we follow for a century. You know, in, in, in basically every pandemic uh, before this one, and for a century, we followed it very successfully. Actually, mm -hmm. uh, pandemics are going to produce, you know, misery and and death. They just, I mean, it's, it's unfortunately not avoidable. That's what diseases like this do. The question only for policy is how do you minimize that harm, both from the the virus itself and also from the the response. Um, and I think that's the debate that we should have had all last year uh, that was suppressed, mm -hmm. right? Instead of, instead of allowing that debate to happen, what happened was uh, a panicked response with, with uh, you know, sort of saying that we, 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 should, we should follow the precautionary principle. And then with that, and, and that, and then with that panic, there came this like impetus to suppress the, uh, any opposition whatsoever. If you oppose that, oppose the lockdown while you're in favor of the virus. I mean that's insane, um, it, and it, and actually we, that weird insane thing I think froze many many uh, scientists from speaking up when they otherwise would have. But when you refer to these, um, you know, higher death rates in the in the old aged um, group, um, but that's also taking into account that a lot of them have pre existing conditions, and their immune systems are probably in many cases uh, weakened compared with the rest of the population. So that's another yeah, no, that's, thing that it's not only about like older people, but people maybe in special risk constellations from the beginning. So like maybe in, you know, especially um, intense care, old age homes or something like that. So where the risk then becomes more, more obvious or more prevalent. May I, may I just may I just add one one thing? Uh, when the medium age of those people dying with COVID-19, the old age people, is uh, 84 in Germany or something like that, this is the time the people die. They start dying. Many people die in this age between 84 and 94 or 95. Around this, most of the people die and they all die with something. And it, you, we cannot change this. And if we find COVID-19, we find it in uh, perhaps uh, not even 10% of them, but there are 200 other viruses that would be that would be there and help those people dying. And wait, what what are we talking about? I think it's we have to have in mind that this is not a catastrophe that people die very old. 
Yeah, I mean, I, th I think uh, that kind that kind of conversation is 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 fine. I mean, I don't, I don't, I think it's, I think the question of where we prioritize our resources and how much is a, is a good conversation to have. And I agree that older people, I mean, it's never in medicine, it's never the pathogen itself. It's the path, the interaction between the pathogen and the person infected that produces the result, right? So, yeah. uh, if someone with underlying conditions, of course, is going to be more vulnerable. Um, and and the, and it is a good question. How much do we uh, do we put resources toward protection of people that are are high risk? I personally, I'm I'm okay with putting resources toward protecting vulnerable people, even if you know, because I I don't want to uh, expose people that are that that we can protect, even if they're only going to live for a short while longer. That you know, maybe quite valuable to them. But that's a social conversation about where we put our resources. The the problem I've had with the response all along is that instead of acknowledging this absolutely clear biological fact of this age gradient and risk, including the, the, the as you say, the, uh, the, the, the risk posed by uh, underlying health conditions, um, and, and then saying, look, we, sh we, 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 we should acknowledge this and then design our response around it. Instead, what we decided is the only way to protect the vulnerable was to, st was to close society down. Um, and that's failed. That has utterly failed. We have, you know, 5 million deaths worldwide, a huge number of older, 80% of the deaths are over, over the age of six, 65, I think, something, something like that. 40% of the deaths in, at least in the United States are at care homes. Um, we, we thought, we, some people thought that protecting the, 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 the lockdowns would protect the vulnerable, but that clearly was an error. We do not, uh, we do not actually have a technology to stop the spread of this virus. We do not actually have a technology to stop the spread of the virus. What the lockdowns did, if they protected anybody, was a small group of maybe 30% of the population who could afford to not lose their jobs when they're working from home. And the rest of society, whether you're vulnerable or not, was told, go get exposed. You, yes. you keep society running. It was a, a, I call it trickle-down epidemiology. Uh -huh. um, it's it's a kind of it's a kind of like classist approach to uh, to, to to infectious disease control, and um, what we learned is that you can't only protect the the rich and then expect to have a good result for everybody. Um, the this is a, a kind of uh, if I understand you correctly, this one size fits all approach uh, destroys much more than it does good for the people who should really get special protection. It does, uh, and and so, and I think this is one of these things where, uh, okay, so what is the precautionary principle? This was this was you know this was the argument people made at the beginning of the pandemic. We don't know how deadly the disease is. Let's assume the worst about it, and that allows us to have some guide for how much we should respond to it. Okay, that's reasonable. I mean, it's we don't I, I don't know exactly what the disease is going to do, I, and I want to calibrate my response to it. Um, but when you apply that principle, you can't then turn around and assume. That the interventions you're going to engage in are also low cost or low, low harm. You have to have a clear-eyed assessment of the harms from the interventions themselves. Um, and, and in fact, uh, in retrospect, we should have known this, but it's it's come out to be absolutely true. The lockdowns have produced devastating harm to the health of populations worldwide, especially the poor. Uh, in developed countries, there are enormous backlogs of, of, of people who skip their cancer screening. And women are showing up with later stage breast cancer than they would have if we caught it last year. Men and women are showing up with later stage colon cancer. The psychological harm is absolutely 
catastrophic. You know, in June of last year in the United States, the CDC ran a study that found one in four young adults eight, between ages 18 and 24 seriously considered suicide. Wow. One in four. Um, now, the suicide rates haven't changed, but uh, uh, at least that's the reported suicide rates have not gone. But on the other hand, there's been this catastrophic increase in drug abuse and deaths from, from fentanyl and, and opioids, what we call the deaths of despair during the last recession. Um, and, um, you know, I, I think it's just the tip of the iceberg. These are these are not harms that go away immediately. They, they're going to take concerted effort to address, um, uh, you know, like the uh, in, in the UK, there's an enormous backlog of elective surgeries, which include, you know, uh, including heart operations, in fact. Um, uh, the, uh, the 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 that's the developed world. I, th I think the the health consequences are going to be, I mean, ha have been and will continue to be catastrophic for quite a while of these lockdowns. In the developing world, though, it's it's orders of magnitude worse. Right. So we have a global uh, globalized system of of, 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 of economics that uh, essentially, over the last 30, 40 years, whatever you want to say about it, it, it lifted a billion people out of poverty. Mm -hmm. Right. And the way it did that is because. Uh, poor countries reorganize their economies, the local economies, in order to uh, in order to fit in with the global, glo glo you know, sort of the global uh, global commerce, um, and it, it worked in some sense. I mean, it, it produced all kinds of inequality, and there's all kinds of problems. But at the same time, it did lift a billion people out of poverty. Uh, overnight, with the lockdowns, we said those promises that we made to developing countries, we just broke because because of the lockdowns. And uh, predictably, a bill, uh, 100 million people have been thrown into dire poverty, less than $3 a day of income worldwide in, the poor, in poor countries. 100 million, 80 million people, uh, according to the UN, have been thrown into dire food insecurity, essentially hunger. Hundreds of thousands of children in South Asia are dead from hunger as a consequence of the lockdowns and the economic dislocation of them. We, uh, in the early days of the epidemic, said, well, we shouldn't trade economics for health but that was that was immoral because the economics for the poor around the world is health is life um and so i i think it's one of these things where like the the whole discourse has been dominated by a very narrow group of people virologists uh epidemiologists who have do not actually have the expertise to re reorder society the way they think they do and they're not act did not actually protect society from because there's much more to human health than just one virus, and to pretend like that's the case for two years is it is it has been and will continue to be a catastrophic disaster. Do you, do you know what what's always struck me in this uh, in this whole process is, you know, if if you decide for this kind of direction, uh, and you do everything you know in order to to get a like a, a valuable picture of like the possible collateral damage you know you really examine it like everything very closely like for instance like when the the new virus hits you uh, do a lot of autopsies in order to get like a picture what's really going on um, uh, but that has not happened you know here with us and we've seen that in a lot of countries like autopsies were I mean either forbidden or at least uh, strictly kind of discouraged people were discouraged from doing that and so I think that's a that's a 
a strange approach, you know, if everything would have been done in order to to get like a proper scientific idea of what's going on, maybe also from that, um, you know, better conclusions would have been you know, able to draw so that we can then also take care of the risks, um, the population, the part of the population that that's more at risk, like even properly, more properly. So I think it's it seems to be very lopsided. I mean, this kind of approach, you know, to go for that one fits all. What Rana said, like one one fits all idea, but then not looking at the the whole picture, like both from the virus side and from what's going to go on with the what's going to come from the like on the collateral side. So I think that makes me very uneasy, you know, to to see this kind of transparency. Why do you think that was? I mean, what was the reason that so many scientists or this crowd, like a group of scientists, really hopped on to this only virus, 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 and we have to approach it in that, you know, lockdown, this approach. lockdown approach? Why is that? Why was that an accident? Or uh, we're getting the feeling from having listened to all these experts, we're getting the feeling that this is an agenda that's being rolled out. I mean, I, I guess I mean, that's not my expertise to comment on whether it's agenda, but I'll say I, I, in, the, in, the, in, the, on the, in the literature on this that I've seen, uh, there's, there's a really fascinating article in the Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences on, on, on this issue of like, why were all Western governments or actually even governments worldwide, why did they adopt this extraordinary approach when yeah. Uh, the pre-pandemic plans didn't call for it. Um, so uh, the, the basic idea was policy copy, right? So uh, people saw China and it looked like China's lockdowns worked to stop the, the disease from spreading in, in February, of, January, February of 2020. Um, and then they looked at Italy and it was a catastrophic disaster there. You know, bodies in, in the piled up in, 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 in cathedrals, I mean, just the hospitals overrun, an absolute catastrophic disaster. And they, and they all thought, well, China's approach worked and Italy's didn't. Mm. And for, um, for politicians, uh, well, they, they, this is a virus spreading. This is a disease. Who do you turn to? Well, you turn to people who have expertise in viruses, who have expertise in, disease, in, in diseases spreading, um, you know, epidemiologists and virologists. And they are, I have to say, very narrowly trained. Yeah. Um, and for, for a politician, what, are the, what do they think? They, they are uh, in a position where they're going to get judged if, if, uh, if bad things happen. They need to have some reason, some, some excuse, something to say, well, look, I follow the science. Hmm. Um, and I, many of them, most of them, don't have the expertise to decide one way or the other. Uh, and so they have this this group of experts telling them, well, the lockdown worked here and what didn't work there, we should lock down. And how do you push back? You know, it's very difficult for any politician to push back in that setting, because if they do push back and there's a catastrophic failure, well, their career is over. Mm -hmm. um, if they don't push back, well, they have an excuse. The experts told, I did what the experts did. And okay, yeah, bad things happened, but I did what the experts told me to do. I mean, that's, for instance, what Andrew Cuomo did in New York. What is kind of strange is that also kind of early on, you know, pe other people came out like also Wolfgang Wodak and said, 
um, well, this is not the right way to go. And it's very strange that this um, conversation that could have started there, the scientific conversation, you know, um, that that was absolutely turned down, like even with really nasty words, you know, that uh, these people were crazy or like were like whatever, like conspiracy just, theorists or just didn't have the had no scientific clue or were too old or whatever. You know, that's very strange because um, I mean, I can understand that in the beginning, you know, maybe you would run in that direction and go for the seemingly safe approach. But then later on, a um, a, a closer analysis has yeah, to happen. Could, could have happened also because there were people saying, well, it's going in the, like, also if you think of uh, John Dionides saying, well, this is maybe not the right way to do or doing some meta study and saying it's not so dangerous, let's look at it more closely. And, but that never happened. So it's kind of strange that they were stuck in that direction. No, it was, it was an absolutely devastatingly nasty environment for scientists. I, I, I saw Wolfgang was, was canceled. I mean, and John, John, of course, was also faced this. I, I personally also faced this. I mean, instead of having a debate, I, I was the, the senior author on the Santa Clara seroprevalence study and the LA County seroprevalence study. Mm -hmm. the, 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 the attacks on it were in the press. Instead of like a discussion about what the, what the implications were, like when in April of 2020, we found that 2.8% of Santa Clara County in California had the disease, uh, people had antibodies. Uh, in, in LA County, we found 4%. That should have led to a conversation about, well, this disease is already so far along that it's not possible to get down to zero. When was that? Was that in March of 2020 or was it in April? April, April 2020. April. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, and John, of course, John Ioannidis wrote this article in Stat News in March of 2020 saying, well, they're, they're, we don't know how widespread it is. We, 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 we need to have a, a study to do that so that we can decide what the right response is. Prominent scientists like Wolfgang, like, like, uh, like uh, John, essentially were shouted down yeah. and marginalized as if, they were, as if they were nobody, as if they didn't, didn't actually have expertise. Uh, and it, it, uh, I mean, part of the issue is that by April of 2020, catastrophic mistakes had already been made. Mm -hmm. And once you, once you follow down this line, and you're you're the you're, you're Anthony Fauci, you've you've provided this advice that we need to lock the whole world down. Um, well, you know you've already caused an incredible amount of damage. Um, you don't see the catastrophic harms, the collateral damage that, that that we were just talking about, because you're you're such a narrow narrow-minded scientist, and we just dig in. And of course, you have to marginalize all the other people that all the all the prominent people that would disagree with you because otherwise you can't get your way. And someone might conclude that you've done something terribly wrong, or you made a catastrophic mistake. I mean, I think that's that is ultimately going to be the, the judgment of history on on Anthony Fauci's tenure there. Is that like this 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 decision to lock down the world, lock down the United States was a was a catastrophic error. Yeah. Um, by the way, we, there's a charity in the UK that I'm, I'm working with closely called Collateral Global. Collateral Global, and uh, we're, uh, we're 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 going to we've commissioned a, a number of studies to to measure some of these lockdown harms that we've talked about. Uh, Carl Hennigan's working with us, Sunetra Gupta. Mm -hmm. um, so it's it's uh, if the, the 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 it's not like you can hide these things. There's such uh, catastrophic events that have harmed so many people. Um, it's not possible to hide those those consequences, the, the kinds of consequences I'm talking about. The, what the, the what the debate will be is, well, it would have happened anyways, lock, lockdown or no lockdown. But that's that is nonsense. 
right? The, the catastrophic harms from, uh, I mean, I'll just give you one example. In, in, um, uh, in California, for almost 18 months, public school kids were more or less locked out of school. My kids didn't, were unable to go to school, like unable to go physically in school. In Sweden, every, every school is open the full time, 100%, no restrictions. Um, I would never have voluntarily left, left my kids, kept my kids out of school, never. It, is a, it, is a, it was a crazy, useless uh, tactic to, uh, brought out of panic because kids do not, are not super spreaders. They're not the ones who are spreading this disease amazingly. We knew that from early on. We knew that in, in, in April of 2020 from this, this fantastic Icelandic study, the children were actually very inefficient spreaders. On this basis of this, much of uh, many parts of Europe kept their schools open, um, but not California. Those were not voluntary decisions. Uh, those were decisions made by government to force people to alter what they did. Uh, the other thing that they did is they panicked the population. Yes. Uh, I, that is an absolute in, enormous violation of the public trust. Creating panic creates bad decisions. And the only reason for it was to essentially so that the policymakers could get their way. Mm -hmm. There has to be a, 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 a counter reaction. I think we're starting to see a counter reaction, by the way. I don't, I don't, I don't think, um, I mean, we even early on, uh, governors like Governor DeSantis in Florida, a few other governors in the United States pushed back. Um, and now we're seeing that the, the, uh, the, the, uh, the people who have been who've been really harmed by this of starting to vote out the people that were that, that, that caused it right virginia the uh, the, the, the 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 democratic uh, candidate he, he didn't he wasn't the governor but he was uh, he was a very strong proponent of school closures and lockdowns got voted out i mean what um, you and can, i think sorry what you can also see i think it's not only the lockdown you know the lockdown harm but now since we have this vaccination problem you know with maybe harm as well or like harm that's becoming you know the side effects since it's not tested so much and i mean like also if you see now these these ideas of like mandatory vaccination where you cannot even uh, you know decide uh, freely if you want it take part in that experiment or not. So I think that's another thing. So it's like even not only um, did they go, you know, it was over the top to go for the lockdown, but it seems that more and more and more problematic decisions then, um, you know, have been taken in order to follow maybe that narrative that was, you know, where they took the wrong turn and overreacted. And then it's, you know, maybe that seems to be the exit, but then not even that is the exit, exit road to, to, to normality. So we don't even know what's, what's uh, you know, what further they might have up their sleeve in order to continue with, with this like wrong narrative instead of starting like a, a public discussion about it or like a scientific public discussion. Yeah, I mean, I think that the vaccines are interesting. So like, let's just go back to like March of 2020, right? So I, I um, have studied vaccines uh, uh, and I've worked on vaccine safety with the FDA for a while. Um, I, I don't, I, like my impression uh, with vaccines was, and it, I, I think it's true, is that it takes, it takes quite a while, long time to develop, test, uh, and then deploy a vaccine. Um, so I, I saw uh, President Trump's uh, decision to do this Operation Warp Speed investment, where the idea was that we could get a vaccine very quickly. And I thought, well, it's unlikely to succeed in March. I, I mean, obviously, I was wrong um, at that. Uh, but it was it seemed to me at the time an extraordinary bet 
but it's it's I think a bet that prolonged the lockdown. Well, we we have a vaccine. It's producing. It's 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 continued. We have a. It looks like it's coming along. Um, if we just lock down until the vaccine comes, we can solve the epidemic. Hmm. I, I think that thought actually promoted the lockdowns, because if if we have an endpoint, well, the, we can bear almost anything, even even this horrible lockdown. The vaccines arrived. And I actually was quite happy to see them. I mean, I, I, st I still actually am quite happy to see them. I, I, I think for uh, people who face a very high risk of disease of death from COVID or, or severe disease from COVID, it, it's actually quite good. I mean, I think for older people, uh, you, you, if you're mitigating a high risk, you're willing to put up with a little more uncertainty on the other side, right? So in medicine, there's all it's always the case that medicine has side effects, and you balance the benefits against the side effects. Right, that's 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 the whole practice of medicine. There's no intervention that's completely uh, benign. So you're always balancing. Some some of them are much more benign than others, right? Um, and so, to me, using the vaccines to mitigate the risk of, of severe disease from COVID was a really good thing for older, especially for older people. It's a really, it's like a, it, you know, it, 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 they may die of some one of the other two hundred things that Wolfgang mentioned, but they, but they could, they, they, but they, but at the, but at the same time, they, they you protected against COVID. That's not a bad thing. Um, uh, in as you get closer and closer to younger people who face a low risk, well, then the balance of risk and benefit gets much closer. So um, you are willing to put up with less side effects and uncertainty when you're mitigating a very small risk, like for, for instance, for children. So to me, that was it, I thought about the vaccine as sort of a, a, an individual clinical choice. Right, you have to decide for yourself: if, is is this worth the risk? And, it's, and you you have that kind of conversations with your doctor all the time, I would think, right? Where you're deciding, you know, here's here's a new here's a here's a uh, a drug or a therapy or a vaccine or whatever, and you have to will it help me? I think a lot of the people who were pushing the vaccines thought of it as a public benefit, right? Because that's true for many vaccines. If I get uh, my children vaccinated with with a, with a um, a DPT vaccine, they're not going to get the disease. They're not going to spread it to others. It's much. It's a, it's a much more effective vaccine that way. They, I think, many people thought that this vaccine would be like that also. But it's not. It is not. This vaccine, after several months, no longer protects you against, or has very minimal protection against getting infected. I still think it protects you against severe disease. Mm -hmm. At six, seven months, five, six, seven months. But at five, six, seven months, it no longer protects you get, against getting infected. So, for instance, I got the vaccination in April of twenty of twenty twenty one, and I got COVID in twenty in August of twenty twenty one. But I have, a, I have a question: Do you know any other vaccine that has the number necessary to treat to vaccine, which is about around hundred, like those vaccines we now are getting? They try to get yeah, to use with us. Do you know any other vaccines with such a low, with such a high number necessary to vaccine to avoid one case? I, I mean, I, I, it's it's a it's a question of like what the context the vaccines are used, right? So, for instance, um, diphtheria is very rare in the U.S., and so you you're vaccinating large numbers of kids with diphtheria for against diphtheria. And you're not really preventing very many cases just simply because the vaccine is, is so effective. So you're, it's it's a complicated number. 
uh, if it, if you're in an environment where diphtheria is very very common, high prevalence, then you you vaccinate you, that that number will be much lower. Um, the, the other the other thing about this vaccine again is the as I, that's why I say I think of it as like an individual thing, right? So it's the risk mitigation for old for old people is you're you're in principle getting a much better miss you're mitigating against a high risk. Um, yes. And so I'm willing to put up with. You know, I, I mean, I, I can treat, I can, I can give the vaccine to very few old people. I'm going to save a lot more, you know, lives than if I give yeah. it to. I lots agree. Of when you want to travel with your children to a dangerous country, where diphtheria is still endemic, it's good to have this vaccination. Exactly. Exactly. You're saying this is an individual choice because the most important aspect about about these vaccines, and this is what I used to think is what makes a vaccine, it provides immunity. It doesn't. It doesn't. I. It, they claim that it protects you from uh, severe uh, adverse, or, or rather from severe cases of COVID. Uh, we're not even sure if that's true because the numbers that we're seeing from uh, Israel and the UK is that uh, between 85 and 86 percent of the people who are hospitalized with COVID symptoms have been twice vaccinated. So it'll we'll have to take a much closer look at how these um, how these vaccines really work. Yes. Even the inventor of uh, the mRNA uh, vaccination technique, Robert Malone, now, we had him on, on our um, committee, and he's a very soft-spoken man. Uh, but in the meantime, he has, I, I, I guess you could say, he has become outraged. He says this is this is a violation of all medical ethical principles. We shouldn't have gone that far. Not with these mRNA vaccines, you know. Yeah, I mean, I, I, so I, I guess I'm more convinced about the long term about the protection against severe disease. I mean, like these cohort studies, because mm -hmm. uh, you can't look at just who, how many people are hospitalized that have the vaccine. You have to look at the population at large, how many got the vaccine, were at risk of being hospitalized, and then get the fraction of people that get hospitalized is a mm -hmm. fraction of the people that get the vaccine in the population. So studies like that tend to find some longer lasting protection against hospitalization risk and death. I'm yeah. fairly convinced by that. Um, I, I'm not, I, I mean, I, but, but those same studies are the ones that are finding no, no protection against infection or very little protection against infection after a few months. I think it's very impossible and very, very necessary in, in Israel, for instance, to distinguish uh, where, the, where the damage comes from, from those people in hospitals, whether it comes from, from the spikes protein given by the, by the vaccine or whether it comes from spike protein from a natural virus. I don't know whether there is somebody who has distinguished this. I mean, there is a, there's a, uh, the antibody test, there's a, um, make a distinction with the antibody test when it's there. So like the, if you're infected with the virus, you produce antibodies to the end of the nuclear capsule. Yeah. Um, whereas if you're, uh, the, and also the spike protein, but if you're infected with, uh, with your, if you have the vaccine, then you only produce yeah. antibodies to the spike protein. That's a good um, thing. Did, do you know any work who, who did anybody do, do this distinguish? There's some study. small studies I've seen this, but I haven't seen it at scale. I, I think it would be very, very interesting. Okay, I, this, I would be, I this would be very important, I think. For Israel, it would be, I think, the most important yeah. study to do. And these antibody tests are cheap. I actually don't know why we haven't been using, like I did this, these, these seropalvin studies. I thought that, that we would be using them at scale all, all the time to track the progress of the disease. Yeah. 
uh, uh, but we really haven't, and, and it's kind of puzzling to me. I mean, I mean, I have some theories, but because uh, um, uh, you know, but 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 I think I think the um, I, th I think it's important to understand what the what the what the use of the vaccines then would be. There, if the, if, the, if if I'm right, then the use of the vaccine is again is a personal protection against severe disease. Yes. Yes. With a decision made in consultation with a doctor about your own personal health. It's not a tool for mass eradication of the disease. This disease cannot be eradicated. <laughs> it, it has, it, dogs get infected with it, cats get infected with it. Uh, there was a study in the, by the USDA a few months ago that 40% of white-tailed deer in the United States, deer, you know, the, the animal, have antibodies to the vaccine, <laughs> to, to the COVID, yes. Um, uh, and, um, you know, bats apparently, I guess, getting affected with this. Uh, so it's it's this is not an eradicable disease. It meets none of the criteria for an eradicable disease. Um, and it, and uh, so we're we're uh, and the vaccine, ironically, where you know the World Health Organization changed its definition of herd immunity in response to the Great Barrington Declaration, saying it's just vaccine mediated herd immunity. Um, uh, ironically. If this vaccine doesn't stop the spread of the disease, then it actually doesn't contribute all that much to herd immunity. That's true. Exactly. Isn't it? Uh, it, I, it always puzzled me when I heard this is the second time they changed the definition of a, a very important in terms of um, in terms of pandemics of a very important aspect. The first time they changed the definition of something was in 2009 when they decided to uh, new, to newly define uh, what a pandemic is. Um, before that, it was three elements that were needed that were necessary to get a, to have a pandemic. One is a worldwide uh, a disease that spreads worldwide with two um, many serious cases of illnesses and three many deaths. Then they changed it to a disease that spreads worldwide, which ultimately made it possible to uh, make any any common flu into a pandemic. And then they changed, and that's uh, and that's what started the what what started the swine flu. And then they changed the definition of um, over again overnight the definition of what herd immunity is. It's as if they. They are trying in this particular context of the corona crisis as if they're trying to make people believe that the only way out and the only way to uh, achieve herd immunity is by getting the shots and not just getting 70 percent of the people to get the shots, but getting 100 percent of the people. And that doesn't really I'm not I'm, I, I used to do a, a lot of medical law, but I'm not a, a medical doctor. It doesn't seem to make any sense to me. And you don't need 100% of people vaccinated in order for this, uh, in order to for this disease to end. I mean, the disease the disease will be endemic. It'll it'll it's it's not possible for it to go away. Yeah. Um, but on the other hand, it's not that scary, right? I think the reinfections that tend to be much milder than the initial infection. The, the immune system working, right? The immune memory produces some protection, even if you can 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 get reinfected. The reinfection rates seem to be quite low if you're infected. Uh, one year after infection, the reinfection rates in, in a, a several studies are somewhere between 0.3 and 0.8%. I mean, it's it's a very, very low rate of reinfection. And again, the, the reinfection tends to be milder. This will become like the, a circulating coronavirus, other, the four other circulating coronaviruses. It'll become a, you'll, you'll be 
repeatedly, everyone on earth will be repeatedly exposed to this over their lifetime, several times. And the, the WHO, they kept that it should be a new virus. And they said it's very important uh, that we protect the people against new viruses. And they just ignored that the virus is new every year and each year. They just, uh, it's, it's a natural thing. And we are very much used to new viruses, which is no problem for our immune system. We are, because the viruses have so many epitopes we recognize and we are fit uh, to find out that's almost the same as last year. Yeah, I mean, I think that's that's the thing. It's like we are, are you know, it's it's uh, Sinatra Gupta. Uh, she she has this idea of this uh, this sort of virom, the global virom, and you're you're, uh, and actually one one idea is that by repeated exposures to di different pathogens over a long period of time, and you're training your immune system, you actually become healthier, right? The, and globalization actually has helped produce this. Like that's that's one potential reason why life expectancy has gone up. It's a very very interesting hypothesis because when you make a lockdown and when you isolate people in in home for elderly people, for instance, they have no contact with their with their family anymore. They they lose their training. Yeah, um, you know, so it's, you it's don't actually, even perhaps you don't even protect them if you do this. I know. I mean, I think we might actually. Well, if she's right, then we'll have an immune de deficit that will that will have will have will pay consequences for over over time in terms of worse health. Um, yeah. And we'll see. Uh, you know, I think uh, actually, can I go back to the lockdowns? Because it just occurred to me like one thought that I, I've had about the lockdowns about why we went we, we had them and why why didn't we do that? For instance, in two thousand and nine. You know, I, I think Zoom is partly responsible for the lockdowns. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, if you don't, yeah, because now 30% of people, the rich 30%, won't lose their jobs if you have a lockdown. But that wasn't yeah, true in 2009. Right. <laughs> Did you, when you mentioned the study that you and John Ioannidis and others conducted in March or April of uh, 2020, I heard about it on the news when, um, on the mainstream news even, uh, when, uh, because we, my wife and I were still in California at that time. Um, and I began to wonder if, I don't know if I wrote the figures down correctly, was it, how, how much, how many people did you find that had antibodies already in Santa Clara County? Was it 2.8% or more? Yeah, so it's, it's a little, so the study itself was, we sampled about 3,000, about, about 3,000 people, mm -hmm. and um, there were 50 positives. Mm -hmm. uh, we had a sampling scheme that oversampled the richer parts of mm -hmm. Santa Clara County. So once you do the adjustment, and poorer parts of Santa Clara County tend to be higher higher infection rates. Mm -hmm. Once you do the adjustment for that, that's then that's how you get 2.8%. We, we ran a very similar study in um, in LA County, mm -hmm. almost exactly the same time with, a, with a, a very different sampling scheme where we had a representative sample, and there we got 4%. Mm -hmm. Antibodies, mm -hmm. um, both imply about a infection fatality rate of about 0.2 percent. Mm -hmm. Now these were community dwelling populations. We didn't sample people in nursing homes, so 0.2 percent in community dwelling populations. I mean, um, one remark with the um, you know with also with the lockdowns or like like uh, extra care taking measures for the 
risk group. I think, I mean, to my understanding of of like freedom or like freedom of, of choice, you know, I think it would also have been important to to let these people choose whether they want to take the risk of maybe, you know, without maybe infecting others, but maybe seeing their relatives, you know, deciding I want to take the risk because maybe my lifetime is very limited, you know, maybe I only have like three months ahead or something like what doctors say then it's very, you know, it was also very brutal what we saw here and in other places of the world, America as well, that these people were really locked in their old old people's homes and died without seeing their their, their kids any anymore, you know, before they died. I mean, that's also something that's, I mean, both terrible for the ones deceased, but also what's that going to do or has done to your psychological well-being, you know, as a relative that you were not able to say goodbye. I think that's something that we're going to carry with us as a society for a very long time. You know, I, what we did was cruel to older people. Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, I think uh, there's a, there was a, uh, like, I forget the number, but like a, a, an enormous increase in, in deaths among dementia patients. Those are deaths by low loneliness. Yes. yes. Um, uh, in, in nursing home settings. I mean, it's, I, I think um, it's, it has to always be individual. Like you have a, to have a say to say, okay, I'm going to lock you away just because you're old and high risk. And not pay attention to what you what you what you value is 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 an error, um, and uh, so I, I I'm a big proponent of focus protection, um, which which to me means providing resources to people who are vulnerable, um, but I'm not I'm not in favor of forcing people to be quarantined if they if they don't want to be quarantined for health especially for healthy people if they want to go take a risk of being with their family at Christmas well who am I to stop them, right I don't know what they value. Um, and, you know, I, I, and frankly, if when I'm 80 and I, I have grandkids I, 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 and there's some massive pandemic going around, I will, and, and it, it affects 80 year olds, I will still go see, have Christmas with my family. I don't care. Yeah. I'd rather have Christmas with my family when I'm 80 than, than live to 81 maybe and, and die, that, die before I get another Christmas. Yeah. Um, I mean, but that's, that should be up to me, not, not forced on me by somebody else. I agree. And what proves your point is uh, that uh, those states that didn't have any of the um, anti-corona measures, no lockdown, no social distancing, no mask mandates, uh, they didn't fare any worse than the other states that had harsh lockdowns, for example. I mean, one of the best uh, examples is, of course, uh, North and South Dakota, neighboring states. In South Dakota, they didn't do anything. And they didn't do any worse than uh, North Dakota. We also took a look at um, the Amish people in Pennsylvania who are totally disconnected uh, from the modern world, so to speak, uh, but who are still leading a very uh, worthwhile lives, of course. But they don't have any electricity. They don't watch the mainstream news. So that took, that took away some of the panic. And they said, let, let the virus take its course. And uh, they didn't have any lockdowns, any social distancing, because they believe that uh, in particular, when you're sick, you need, you need uh, a social life. You need, you need to have people hug you, for example, or touch you. And what happened there is that in May of 2020, the whole thing was over. Without many people dying, it was just a regular flu season. That's how they explained it. Same thing is true for the Orthodox Jews in Israel. That's what um, well, two of the people who we interviewed here explained to us what was going on in Israel. So it doesn't, it, it shows that you're right when you're saying that was a catastrophic mistake what they made. 
I mean, the, the example I like to use in, in part because I've been I've, 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 uh, advised Governor DeSantis in Florida. But if you compare the age adjusted COVID death rates from Florida versus the age adjusted death, death rates in, in California, and you have to do age adjustment because the risk is so, so the risk rating is so great by age, um, it's almost identical through the pandemic. And yet Florida has had full in-person school for all its kids. It's had uh, no ch closures of churches, no closures of businesses, um, and uh, only a, a limited, uh, like, I think some, some, only some fraction of the counties impose masks. Mm -hmm. uh, so it, whereas California has had very, you know, missed schooling, closed businesses, mask mandates, you name it. And now they're going to mandate, apparently San Francisco is considering mandating the vaccine for five to 11 year old kids. Um, That's insanity. So I, I think, uh, I think the, uh, uh, I, I just, it's, it's just impossible to escape what the data are showing, right? The, the data show that the lockdowns did not achieve its stated goal, which was to protect people from COVID. And in fact, what it did achieve was, was, uh, was almost entirely negative. Worse health, psychological and physical health, devastated economies um, that for which we're going to be paying for, for a very long time. Yes. The worst is yet to come from these measures. It's, uh, it's bizarre. And uh, there were very early warnings, not just from your university, from you and, and John Ioannidis, of course, but also even from the UN. Uh, they they uh, I, 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 I forget the names of the people, but some of some of the very prominent uh, people who work at the UN pointed this out very early on. I think in May of last year, they said the only thing that the lockdowns are going to do is they're going to make poor people even poorer and they're make a lot they're going to uh, make a lot of people starve. And that's precisely what happened. Yeah, no, that those 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 uh, I saw those uh, those like statements from the UN. I think it was definitely May of 2020, yeah. predicting catastrophic increases in 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 uh, poverty, and, and that is ex you're right. That's exactly what happened. It's not like we didn't know. Uh, people were warned about. People were raising red flags about this, and yet uh, we went away, we went ahead with it. It's 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 actually I I, I I've been I don't know how to put this, but like I. I I, I guess I was naive before. I, I thought that people, when they said they cared about the well-being of the people around the world, the poor people around the world, they meant it. Hmm. And yet, when fear came on us, we just we just we just forgot about it. Mm -hmm. it was, it's it's incredibly immoral, right? We 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 uh, create a world, this globalized world, where um, these interconnections sustain uh, huge numbers of people. In in, uh, in 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 you know like I wouldn't say like well off but at least not in poverty, mm -hmm. and then overnight we decide to take those the, the to, to change it because we want to protect ourselves, you know draw pull up the drawbridge. So it's uh, I, I guess the, the the globalization was just a thin sheen on what we really are, yeah. uh, and the the virus kind of exposed that. Well. Um... I think that um, the tide is turning, uh, just like um, 
Just like Lee Dundas said, uh, there, there, there's finally going to be a counter-reaction. I, I, for parts of the population, this has been going on for a while now. Uh, but I keep telling people that if somebody had told me this a year and a half ago that we'd be wearing masks, that the, there'd be mask, uh, that there'd be um, mask mandates, and we're talking about brand new vaccinations, which don't really seem to be vaccinations if you take a closer look, I would have told them to take their pills and go see a doctor. But um, in the meantime, um, of course, because of what we're doing here, talking to all these experts from all fields of science, in the meantime, um, I, I have come to the, to the conclusion that this has never been about health. From the beginning, it's never been about health. There were serious mistakes made, but I think that those who are, and I'm not gonna get into the details of this because I know this is not your area of expertise, but we have come to the conclusion that those who are behind this, and you'll find out who it is if you just follow the money, uh, that they didn't make any mistakes. This is done on purpose. The destruction of the economy is done on purpose. And I begin to wonder if uh, the, um, of the destruction of uh, health is just a mistake or um, there's more behind it, but we'll have to take a deeper, a closer look into this. I mean, I, th I think we, um, let me put it in a way that I, that, that's like consistent with how, how I think about this. So like, I, I think we have to do a, a real autopsy of what happened uh, yes. uh, yes. in, in medicine. We have these like uh, morbidity and mortality conferences after, after mistakes are made, after someone has died or something. Mm -hmm. We have to do that with this policy. Um, what's what uh, what I'm afraid might happen is that the official uh, investigations into uh, and evaluations of this will be led by people who are themselves architects of the policy. Yes, um, we have to broaden the set of conflict of interest rules in those evaluations and include people who were dis dissidents in it, in that evaluation in a, in a serious way or else the public will not trust those evaluations. Yes. You have wonderful guidelines in Stanford about institutional corruption. And I think it's a very good approach. We have institutional corruption, not only in science. Yeah, I think, um, I mean, it's, it is, it is, uh, it, I, I, uh, I, I am optimistic the pandemic will end sooner or later. Uh, I, I'm, I guess I don't know if I'm optimistic about the, our ability to evaluate it. Uh, and it's it critically important that we do that evaluation properly yeah. or else the, this kind of, of thing that's happened these last two years will happen again mm -hmm. with the same catastrophic harm to the, the population at large. And I don't think that we should let that happen. Science itself didn't work well uh, during this pandemic, I think, because it was uh, it, it shut down dissidents, shut down people from... Um, it could cause people to like, uh, you know, why does it take bravery to speak up yes. uh, in science? It should not take bravery to speak up in science. It's a free country. Um, we have, you and we have free speech. And all of a sudden that doesn't count anymore. Yeah, mm -hmm. it's, it's, it's uh, so I think uh, science failed, politics failed, mm -hmm. uh, medicine failed. Uh, and we, we have to take that seriously. Like it, it I, I mean, I can see a future where we take that seriously and say, okay, we we don't want a biosecurity state, a, a state that's uh, organized around the the, the, the uh, protection against a single infectious disease. I could also see a future where we 
I mean, we, we, we head down that path. I mean, I'm looking at what's happening in Australia and New Zealand. Yeah. How do they get out of it? Yes. And you know, we have something here that um, I don't know if that's decided already or if that's in the in the making that they say, you know, the pandemic it has ended. You know, they declare this in a law that, or in a in a declaration, the pandemic has ended, but they still want to continue the laws With the against the pandemic. That's very strange, you know. So it's really become a political perpetuum mobile of yeah. of uh, power <laughs> uh, continuation or ex expansion. So that has to end. Yes. You know, yeah. there has to be yeah. some some serious, uh, you know, evidence-based approach on the whole thing. Two years ago, this would be ridiculous, but now there are only a few people that start laughing. Yeah. <laughs> oh, well, um, Jay, Professor Bhattacharya, we're really, really grateful for you taking this time and explaining uh, your uh, view of what, what has been happening from a medical standpoint. Um, I know it's pretty early still, but uh, again, we thank you very, very much. And uh, hopefully we can stay in touch because I think there'll be more things to discuss pretty soon already. Well, I, I, it's a delight to talk with you. I've watched actually several of your videos and have learned that Wolfgang, you as well. Uh, you, you all have been very brave and, and, I'm, and I'm pleased to be able to talk with you. We're great you're uh, part of Thanks the team, so, so to speak. <laughs> We're grateful. Thank you very much and have a great weekend. Thank you, you too. Thank you very much. Bye-bye. So, jetzt haben wir noch... Kluze um, Krings was a bit interrupted uh, with this uh, late start, so he had another 10, 12 minutes where he was going to uh, conclude his aspects. I think that fits in pretty well uh, with what we just heard. I think... Um, that was a, a, a nice um, tie-in. And if you could tell us, uh, well, uh, Wolfgang will hear about the uh, new vaccines. I'll try but to maybe, speed um, things up. Um, you can continue what you were saying earlier, Kluze. Well, I would just briefly comment on the two people who have just spoken, but in the context of what I was going to say anyway, it's a big jump because we are moving away from medicine now. First of all, with Jay, this short uh, interchange has uh, uh, is it planned does it is it ha does it have an agenda i think it's difficult to answer this question whether it has or not my first hypothesis is that covid is being used in order to get new money into the financial markets if we'd had told the people 2018 look uh, thank you for having paid the bill last time uh, now the situation is the banks need money again. They haven't collapsed yet and they can't collapse now. So we have to put the money in first. That would have been possible politically. But when within COVID, it was possible to do that. And now in this context, <clears throat> I would like to warn against this monocausal argument. I think this idea is right as such, but there are other stakeholders as well who follow their own agenda in what they want to do. Uh, going through Söderspan, Laschets would have liked to have been a chancellor for the Federal Republic, and they had a reason to do the show. 
Bill Gates, who went out uh, from Microsoft and now is a philanthropist of the world with the big pharmaceutical companies, had a necessi necessity as well to keep this show going. WHO, uh, who has to do with less funding from the governments and more and more funding from the pharmaceutical industry had a reason to give things back to the pharmaceutical industry and keep the show going or promote it. And some very, very right-wing circles who don't like much about uh, democracy and predetermination, unions and so on, saw a good idea to discipline the people and really go to a different path now and a many a big load of people with a similar approach um very right-wing media like uh, deutschlandfunk uh, faz german uh, newspapers who again follow their own agenda to support this so there is not only one driver i think it's a, uh, a plot of things and um I think the explanation we've just heard from Jay is good. How do you, as someone who has no idea of this, find a different decision? If it goes wrong, it'll be on your lap. And uh, that means if that snowball is big enough, it's rolling, then nobody can get out of it anymore. And still these interests are wrapped up in that snowball. I think that's it. Well, if we only look at it from the financial point of view, it's really ingenious. Um, with all these uh, masks, all these uh, cheap uh, vaccines that are very cheap to pr uh, produce, uh, they're not uh, really expensive. That's laughable compared to um, expensive vaccines hatched in um, chicken eggs etc uh, and there's masses of uh, taxpayers money invested with uh, minimal uh, minimum investments um, are invested there um, and all those tax monies are privatized so uh, it works really good so they make a huge profit with minimum effort and we do everything we um, cover our mouths and, and go along with it. Um, it's not so expensive to bribe the politicians. There's only a few of them. <laughs> right, as well, yes. So that's one aspect of it. So it's a plot of people with everybody seeing their benefit. This is why it's going so well. And the other thing which has not been addressed at all so far, uh, Jay had briefly mentioned it in a, in a side remark, and I didn't want to interrupt the conversation. <clears throat> because I'm not a medical person at all, but he mentioned China. And I think China, that's something that we have to stick with for a minute. I mentioned this before. The idea was China is our big market, and now it went back, it backfired. Uh, we are the Chinese market now, suddenly. But we've learned <coughs> that this Chinese model works very well. I'll call it, just to give it the name, the confusion model. So, during the pandemic in inverted commerce, we have seen that China is not only economically very successful worldwide, but very resilient against this pandemic. There was no big demonstration, there were no big rallies, 
there was no organized protest. So it, all of China is running on a model that uh, you can freely do make your money. There's no unions who come up with uh, problems. That's the confusion in your model. Just one big word above all it, which we understand completely different, and that is called harmony. If the Chinese speak about harmony, they mean police, bats, um, jails, and concentration camps. That's what they think is harmony in China 2021. And of course, some of us thought, well, maybe if that model is so successful, why don't we do it the same way? And we didn't even think this direction as yet. When I wrote my book, I had uh, delayed it a couple of days because Kabul was falling. The point is that we can expect that America as the superpower has left the stage where that's the point when this became visible. And just as all of us and the whole of Western Europe have moved or oriented towards um, America since 1945, the wind is coming from a different way, different direction now, and we could move to that direction. So as, as I said, it's just still a hypothesis, to be clear here, but we are quite well building that Chinese model. That's what, what did the pandemic do for us? Well, a complete stop of the civil society, which didn't take place at all, uh, cancellation of civil rights and atomization of the society. If we take these three things, atomization in the sense of splitting it up, and uh, the point is that you have to be very brave and courageous, even in science, if you have a different opinion, we are in the Chinese model. Total split up of the society. So that's my first hypothesis built up on the economic topics. The second point is COVID did not last long enough. We know from the contract that's been made from with uh, the federal government with a an advertising company who is to accompany this. And I think they're doing a good, good job. Short friends in Berlin. Or which one? Yes, the the contract. I only know twenty two million. That's what it cost, and that was whether that was the first batch or all of it. I don't know. It doesn't come from the answer. I don't think it was all anyway. But this is not the discussion we want to uh, lead here. What I'm interested in is that from the start to to the first, it was closed till first of April twenty twenty five. I think I heard 24. Um, it was interesting to know that uh, the pandemic won't be over by before April 2024. So something went wrong. It is kind of f f trailing off now. Um, uh, why? Why people turn away? People are getting sick of it. They don't want any more. And we can't be impressed by the people wearing masks in the public trains. And we can't be impressed by the people wearing the mask in the supermarket because that's just the cowardness of the people. They don't want to get their tickets. They don't want to get the uh, trouble. I walk without the mask. I sit in the train without the mask. And I have to find that I'm not 
addressed. No, nobody does it because the people who talk to me have seen that it uh, see me uh, noted this. Uh, so the tide is changing. The tide is turning. The tide is changing. We've seen that in the elections. Those who really thought they would be chancellor, with that everybody failed. Zuda was the top sheriff. He got the worst re result Bavaria ever got, and uh, Mr. Luschet didn't do any better either. But Mr. But Mr. Scholz, who uh, took every financial scandal along, did make a few points. Yes, but in, if we just move back uh, to the 50s, you would say it, nobody had one. Nobody. That's true. That's true. 20 years ago, uh, somebody with 15% would have won that. That would be Weimar. That would have been called uh, conditions like in Weimar, in the Weimar Republic. Maybe we'll get there, maybe not. One of the reasons people leaving is exactly the vaccination. It's such, you just have to think a bit ahead because to make that this may have uh, health consequences is what many people have heard about. Okay, so you say, I get the vaccination, nothing will happen now. And then they say, okay, you have to have two vaccinations. Now we're working on the third vaccination. And sometime people are going to say, but we're not going to go in lockdown, not after I've been vaccinated three times. I uh, clinched my teeth three times and said it's too risky, and then I get a lockdown. So naturally, this way, COVID is simply trailing off early. It wasn't planned to, to finish it that quickly. And that was this third hypothesis would be, forget about COVID, welcome to scarce resources and delivery chain problems. I'll just like to finish with a few charts concerning this, because I think that's the next topic lurking around the corner. And supply chain problems and resource, uh, scarce resources are great to do things if you think about it for a minute. It's like my article in April where I couldn't have thought of a lockdown, but we know by now that they are able to go much further than we would think in the beginning. So what can you do with scarce resources and delivery problems? Switch off the electricity, for example. Chinese are doing it. They're showing us how to do it. So like after the Second World War, Charlottenburg was told, OK, today you've got two hours of electricity from midnight until two o'clock in the morning. Um, so. You know that, so the um, women got up um, uh, at two in the morning to iron their clothes because after two it will be switched off. Of course, then the um, lights will be turned off. So, of course, you are not allowed to go on the road. You can close companies because there's no material for production. You can send people to unemployment and also if these benefits are paid out to the population, um, this is done by the Schulze state, and everybody who receives money, they from there they know how they're treated there. So it's a regulation of a larger share of the population in the end. 
And I would say, hypothetically, this is what you could make out of this crisis, this new crisis, which may come. And I'd like to <clears throat> ask the producers, there's this chart on the dollar. So I'm looking for indicators to prove what I'm show. So we've got the extension of the money amount. I'll speed things up. So about a fifth of all US dollars were created this year. <coughs> but <coughs> look at the date. Look at the date at the top. It's October 2020. So we are in 2020 when this was written. By now, maybe we could go to the next page. By now, I'm at values. By now, 40% of the dollars have been created between 20 and 21. And this does by no means include Joe Biden with its new packages. Could we go two charts forward, please? <clears throat> so I've got the analog image. Um, it's okay. So here we have the increase of money in the US measured uh, from 1959 to, to 2020 and we see how this is the depth that I've talked about before how these depths increase here we're 2004 2007 and it's quite straight and here it's nearly vertical so we can I don't want to look at the top of the page because we're behind time but we can take it for sure that this is true, that at least parallel with this pandemic, uh, the amount of money has been expended so far, so much. And where is the lack of gas coming from? The storages are not filled, is what I hear. And so I wonder, why is that 2021? They were filled in 2020 and 29 and four and and 2004, 2090. Why haven't they been filled? There must have been a reason that somebody could explain to me why the storages are not filled. Maybe they aren't. Okay, but I'd like to know why. <clears throat> well, and then it was says the gas prices are very volatile and grow and increase because of the cold winter. We have the next chart. Here it is. So this tells us the natural gas. And this has been increased by 10%. And again and again, we will hear this again and again because of the cold winter. Interestingly, I've heard this cold winter argument six weeks ago for the first time when one of the news people on Al Jazeera said this, saying the gas prices are starting because we are having such a high, a cold winter. Well, 
um, the poor guy has uh, just read it out and she didn't tell her this was for January. Well, she's in Doha, 35 degrees, uh, um, where last weekend we were um, taking a bath in the lake. <laughs> I don't see a cold winter in that. And this is the official weather forecast for the US. Does anybody see a cold winter here? Well, we have to say this chart here is official uh, weather charts. These were prepared before there was talk about the cold winter. So they exceeded exceptionally warm November and September, and even those who talk about the cold winter saying, for the bigger part, it's going to be a very dry winter of the US, uh, in the US. And on the next charts, since this word has been um, put forth of the cold winter, suddenly the forecast changes for this winter uh, from the National Institute. Uh, don't think of anything bad what we heard about COVID here that suddenly science follows what politi politicians like to have. So we see here along the Canadian border, the Great Lakes, uh, it's got a bit colder, Alaska as well, okay, but that stops quite quickly. Uh, white is already the normal and two-thirds of America are warmer or much warmer. So where has the cold winter gone that we have been, to be afraid of? I don't think this is a good argument at all. And on the next chart, yes, we do have another one. Well, while it's not up, all right, here it is. Well, the Suez Canal blockage plays a role in this, that shipping across the world has been messed up and that is why we're not getting the spare parts and other things from the supply chain in good time. Now, let's take a look at the date. Uh, it's so small here, but I'll find it for you. It's always good to have a printout. When that so happened, when is that it? It's it was a, a few, few months, months ago. Anyway, it was in April. <coughs> Maybe we can take the next uh, graph. Next chart should uh, tell us. Yeah, April. Third of on April. the 3rd of April. The backlog at the Suez Canal has had been completely cleared. We're in November now. And all of a sudden, the ships that have long since passed through the Suez Canal are getting backed up. And let me uh, mention there's an increased transport volume because the end of the crisis. There's an increased uh, transport uh, need. Uh, well, uh, business report of um, 8th of October, 8.50 a.m. Uh, I wrote it down. A big um, shipping company is asked whether this is true in an interview whether the volume increases and he said it's significant and it was asked how many percent and he said up to three to four percent crazy isn't it now we have to know we want to have 
economic growth in the West, and we're really happy if we achieve 3.5%. That's what we always strive for. It says always in all economic books. So we should have supply bottlenecks every year as soon as we have a bit of uh, economic growth. So let me really come to an end now. Um, so let me conclude, first of all, there's no doubt um, that there is a shift from capital from industry and trade to the financial markets. Uh, secondly, that they're responsible for indebtedness, that the, the debt goes straight into the financial industry. Thirdly, that in the COVID crisis, this uh, debt crisis has made huge strides. And thirdly, uh, and fourthly, that it looks like now we're moving from one crisis to the next, possibly because COVID was too short of a crisis. And then finally, then you can see the absurdity of the explanation. Well, the additional transport volume and the restarting economic growth, the uh, sitting uh, Minister of Economics uh, in Germany, uh, and it's repeated by the mainstream media, uh, says that a return to an economic uh, development like in the first quarter of 2019 is uh, to be expected only in uh, 2022. So the ships are being backlogged in the Suez Canal because the economy will re uh, kick in in 2022. Or this delayed um, start of uh, economic growth is due to the bottleneck in uh, the supply chain. So those are these are circular conclusions and that's my conclusion now we have to uh, keep an eye on this we have to be behind it we have to make sure that this new crisis does not become a crisis that we tell people in good time you're being lied to now. At the moment that people recognize that crisis will be over, including the policy and the politicians will be elsewhere, not where they are now, there may be some bars that they can look at the world from. Well, a cousin of mine lives in um, the UK and they suffer from this shortage of uh, petrol and the uh, Justification is that about 200 truck drivers uh, are missing who can drive uh, tankers. And then with those uh, 30,000 people, uh, they don't have truck drivers who can uh, drive those. It was a bit different. I think you have to be exact here. There was over 1,800 that they don't have because um, the they have didn't let the Eastern Europeans in all this lockdown. They left. They'd rather stay at home than be in the UK. And now with Brexit, Brexit they didn't come back. And that's where the figure comes back from. 200 were the ones that they got back from abroad. And then they saw whether they found enough in the military. And then they didn't find enough. I think that was the reason for these 200 from abroad. But if uh, I, I, I lacked uh, 1,000, 1,200, uh, 800, 200 people won't help. So how long have they been missing? That didn't happen now. Why does it manifest itself right now? So what my uh, cousin says, the figures may not be uh, uh, right, but the story isn't really convincing. And now what happened was that they said, okay, we uh, 
need people in the uh, meat industry, and that's why they have to cull all those uh, pigs and burn them instead of um, freezing them or whatever they can do. Um, it's really surprising. Um, you really get the impression that it's always new stories that are to uh, put the fear of the Lord in us that uh, create certain effects so that people have uh, reason to worry. Well, it's stories that are invented to somehow explain what's going on, but that's far off reality. It's got nothing to do with reality. And just let me repeat it. Uh, for now, this is a hypothesis where we really have to take a look at what's happening here. But as an initial suspicion, this is it's big enough to look at it in more detail. Okay, thank you. Do stay with us if you don't have anything better to do. Well, I do. <laughs> okay. Thank you very much for joining us. Uh, well, thank you very much and uh, all the best of good luck for your thank continued you. work. We'll carry on. Wolfgang, we've kept you waiting, but now it's your turn. He's still there. No, I just had switched off. Uh, I muted myself, uh, switched off the picture, that's all. Well, I said I'll prepare something because so many questions um, occurred. Numerous questions from the people who listen to us, and it's oftentimes questions um, based on people's uh, personal effectiveness, and I um, think it's important to get some basics here. Um, I've tried to give some of that information, but it was um, not possible to do it in a coherent way. Um, it was anticipated that I uh, get 45 minutes, and I think I need those to um, explain it uh, well enough. Uh, so I prepared something and I would like to share my screen because I have a presentation that I have here. Let's see if, how this works. I hope uh, you can see now, uh, can see the picture. Those are the questions or the areas from which uh, questions were asked. For instance, can I get infected from people who have received vaccinations? Now, which risks uh, do the new, the new uh, vaccine uh, candidates have um, new ones are being um, are in the pipeline then questions on the benefit and damage of the uh, vaccines and a number of uh, damages have come to the fore and how come COVID-19 is a, a disease of the uh, blood vessels because um, it's supposed to be a fluid that has nothing to do with the vessels and how is immunity and how can I prove that because a lot of people say um, um, I am immune and I uh, want to travel, can't we test for this? And um, why are uh, people uh, who are vaccinated, um, why do they uh, fall ill with COVID-19? And why do they often, um, can they infect others? And I've tried to show it in a graph. The, the objective is to stop the infections. You can see the different colors. You have this uh, bluish area, then the green area, and the reddish. And then there's a few technical things. So infection protection, that is something that uh, occurs naturally. We don't um, run around with infectious diseases all the time. And the green area at the top shows the result of our uh, natural immunization 
Um, it's like the fire brigade, our um, immune system notices when something's afoot in our body and they practice as well when there's new viruses, they get to know them. We uh, talked about it earlier. So that is a learning system. It's the system that keeps infections at bay, uh, particularly those um, uh, of the um, respiratory tract. Uh, it's very important that it's, that we're talking about um, infections of the respiratory tract. Now, there's other ways of infection, um, but we won't talk about that now. And we can do things. Uh, the medical science, uh, medical science offers offer something that's active uh, immunization, that's the left side, and then passive immunization. And you get the antibodies injected that others have um, um, developed, and then policemen and, and um, a fire brigade from other areas are uh, brought in, and uh, it doesn't always help. And then there's uh, active immunization. Um, so how, what can we do in order to train our immune system so it becomes um, stronger? And there are different vaccinations, and um, we can do that in different ways. First of all, the uh, pathway, how immunization is made, uh, is different. Sometimes there's nose spray. Um, it has been tried with uh, flu um, vaccines uh, for children because you don't have to inject the needle, but mostly it's an injection. That's uh, at the far left. Um, that's what is happening with the so-called uh, vaccines that we're supposed to suffer now. Um, so it's intramuscular, there's intracutaneous as well with cholera, for instance. Uh, you only need to scratch it, uh, scratch your skin. Um, uh, subcutaneous is not so uh, well because in the um, fatty tissue it doesn't spread too well. So um, intracutaneous um, and if intramuscular, um, sorry, um, in the bloodstream, um, it's very um, dangerous. You don't know where it goes. So the application pathway is very important um, to understand that it can be quite different. And it's also important what is injected there, uh, the antigens uh, that are to train our immune system. So there's the possibility of injecting entire um, viruses. They're usually attenuated, i.e. they're weakened. They can't reproduce anymore. They're still there and they're still alive. Well, viruses don't live, but they still have many functions that still work, but they're no longer capable of replicating. Uh, there are also viruses that are capable of replicating. They can actually multiply. That's a topic uh, that we'll get back to later on because that involves a certain risk. Now, these vaccines that are applied with the active immunization are oftentimes um, reinforced, uh, then you don't need to use as much, um, um, and you can do that with um, additives. There's aluminium, for instance, there's other additives as well. They're usually patented, and a lot of money is made with them, with these patented additives. Uh, most recently, um, there have been nanoparticles that are being used as additives to uh, boost the immune reaction. I'll get back to that later. We can also disinfect the viruses um, by chemical or plant agents. We can reduce the number of viruses that become 
um, active in um, the mucous tissues. For instance, the uh, certain teas, but there are other medications that can be taken there as well. You can strengthen the immune system with uh, vitamin C, with zinc, etc. There are many other things that you can do. I've spoken about passive immunization already, and now let's speak about the main topic, the blue things here. That's the um, genetic methods that we're faced with now. And the question of uh, how is it um, introduced? Uh, there's vector technology, that's the viruses. Uh, they're genetically manipulated, and then the uh, genetic information is inserted into these viruses, and they move into the cells like they normally do. Uh, oftentimes, uh, viruses are used that are quite common, that uh, the immune system is used to, they don't make us ill, but um, they multiply very well. Uh, with Moderna it's uh, and BioNTech, it's nanoparticles that are used in order to uh, get this genetic information into the cell. The idea is that uh, this genetic information then triggers the production of an antigen in the cell, which is exponentially uh, produced then and goes into the bloodstream. And in the uh, bloodstream and other uh, body fluids, um, um, cells uh, of the immune system react with these antigens and uh, this tra triggers an antigen production and uh, cells are created for cellular uh, defense. So something uh, happens, the body is um, learning about this, these, uh, this virus. So there are presenter cells that present the antigen to um, the um, immune cells. So the most important thing is a communication between the immune cells you know about the cytokines, uh, cytokines, the cytokine storm uh, can happen if there's uh, an overreaction, and then this is not so good for a healthy immune reaction. So this antigen expression can happen in different ways. It can happen via the DNA. So something is injected there, and the DNA, uh, so our um, heritage information, um, is used, so something is uh, produced there, or it's done directly with messenger uh, RNA, which is straight in the cytoplasma, so in the um, cell fluid, and they ensure that the proteins uh, are synthesized in the cell and can present it to um, the outside world, outside of the cell. So we have uh, various uh, types of genetic uh, modifications of the cell. We have three different uh, possibles. Uh, the question is, um, is it inheritable or not? No, it isn't because the mRNA uh, only works for a short period of time and um, it then uh, loses its efficacy after a while. But there may be something in the cell that translates the mRNA into something that can be uh, introduced into the uh, DNA. Uh, that's called transcription, that can happen if other viruses are there at the same time, uh, and that is always the case, that we're exposed to all uh, sorts of viruses, uh, for instance, herpes viruses, or uh, we, we have viruses in our bodies all the time, and if there's any of them um, that have uh, trans that dispose of transcriptase uh, and are in the cell, then this, it can happen that they can uh, be transcribed. 
and um, introduced into the DNA. So um, the cell can start um, producing mRNA on a regular basis, uh, creating antigens, for instance, spikes on a permanent basis, that it doesn't happen only once, but on a recurrent basis, so that we are continuously uh, being vaccinated from inside by our own cells. Now, which problems that could trigger is something we don't know about because it's an entirely new technology. We've never done it before uh, that we produce our own vaccine. And if these uh, little factories that produce uh, these vaccines, the cells, if they don't stop, then um, it might trigger um, problems and uh, the system might um, react, respond in the wrong way. And it might be inheritable. We don't know about it. It takes a long time in humans before you know it. And that would be the case if it is actually transcribed, if it is actually introduced into the human DNA. And we can't say anything about it. Um, they claim that there's no risk of that, but we have vaccines that work with DNA. We have vaccines that work with mRNA. So a lot of genetic experimentation is going on here. Uh, let me point out here with this therapy here, uh, utilizing genetic engineering, it's all genetic therapy. That's called different, uh, but it is genetic therapy as it has been uh, ongoing in the US uh, for a long time. That is very uh, cheap to do. You don't need to breed a lot. It's a low effort compared to the other technologies. And as it is all patented, you can make huge sums of money with this. So it's all genetic engineering uh, applied to human beings. It's genetic uh, therapy, then the active immunization, uh, the introduction of antigens. That's the common, uh, the traditional way uh, of immunization, of uh, vaccination. So uh, before I go into more detail, let me say something about immune system. In the population, there is a annual, annually refreshed herd immunity. We just heard it from Stanford even, that we are constantly exposed to coronaviruses and that leads to an ongoing update, uh, even among children that has been shown in uh, cohorts of uh, school children in China. At the age of 15, they were 100% immune uh, against uh, coronaviruses. Those were different uh, coronaviruses at the time, but the body doesn't really care about the type of coronavirus. So we have a high uh, immunization rate. If you're not trained because you don't have enough uh, contact with people, you have a low immunity. If you uh, keep uh, messing around with your grandchildren, even at the age of 95, you will have good immunity even then, unless you have another morbidity. And uh, this main immunity that uh, protects us here uh, is cellular immunity. Those are cells that have been trained in the lymph nodes and they are really at the um, ports of entry uh, in the upper respiratory tract. Um, and they r recognize coronaviruses, be it beta, uh, alpha, beta, or gamma, if they um, um, mutate and they come back as uh, the delta or the omega version, they don't completely change. They only charge, change certain parts of the surface structure. That's why it's called cross immunity, because it doesn't matter who comes along. Uh, as long as it's coronaviruses, they are recognized. It takes a bit longer, maybe, if they uh, wear a mask. Sometimes it's faster. 
But overall, cross immunity is in place, and that is what leads to herd immunity. With newborns who only have the uh, born the the uh, inherited immune system and have to learn everything that comes from the outside, it works very well because they are really very uh, good. Um, uh, they um, have a very uh, active area producing the T. Uh, lymphocytes and uh, they have an incredibly uh, active immune system that can learn very fast even though some have of course a, a weakened immunity and uh, that is why uh, people of uh, old age are uh, sometimes difficult uh, have difficulties to deal uh, with uh, the viruses um, but with uh, with uh, <coughs> Uh, weaknesses in, in children that is well uh, researched and pediat uh, pediatric uh, experts can uh, determine that and help those children and um, if you die of a, uh, a fever um, at an advanced age that's not the worst type of death I mean you'll die of something at advanced age anyway only if the coronavirus can cross the mucous tissue barrier if there is a very uh, strong uh, attack with a large number of viruses and maybe there's even some uh, damage to the mucous tissues and other viruses um, uh, damage the mucous tissues then what may happen is that you uh, um, have a COVID infection for instance uh, overcoming this um, uh, mucous tissue barrier then um, these uh, viruses with their spikes uh, get into the bloodstream then they get very toxic and then they can kill the cells and this is a very severe disease that may be uh, dangerous those are the severe cases of uh, COVID but that's less than one percent maybe two percent depending on the uh, age of uh, the infections with SARS-CoV-2. That's the current version of it, of the name. So that's the spike uh, proteins that are toxic by, but by injecting weakened viruses with spikes or of proteins consisting only of spikes or of well, if we make those spike proteins ourselves somewhere in the body for instance in the wall of a bloody tissue then um, we have exactly um, happening what can create those heavy uh, these these serious um, cases of uh, corona disease uh, then we have the same symptoms as in a um, severe case of corona so if i vaccinate against a virus uh, we said they affect each other and uh, either they reduce each other or they um, foster each other <clears throat> so that may lead to a catastrophe if um, one virus opens the mucous uh, tissue barrier for another but usually they stop each other they are in competition and um, we see if one type of virus is um, reduced, uh, for example, by uh, vaccination against influenza, the other ones are um, uh, grow stronger. <clears throat> so the immunity is in the top uh, 
um, respiratory area and they are very that's very successful there and only if they get longer they get to the vessels and then the corona um, infection becomes a vessel in sickness but the um, injections that we take against uh, that and to immunize to immunize us um, is not very helpful because the immune system has to be uh, made efficient where the viruses arrive and that's at the top of the respiratory organs and not in the blood so the intramuscular um, use of antigen or the antigen preparation in the inside the body is an attack against the uh, through the back door and it, it is um, associated with a considerable risk for the immune system and in addition we have the problem that the vaccine may be injected directly into the muscle and this may lead to myocarditis so it's million billions of mnr molecules that could spread through the body if that is done intervascular and that uh, make all the cells turn into spike protein factories and they are poisonous and create just the same symptoms as severe developments of the company so uh, of the <clears throat> body <clears throat> so against um, there is no indication for mass immune um, mass uh, vaccinations due to the herd immunity um, that's what normally happens also with SARS-CoV-2, but um, if people are vaccinated, their risk of an antibody-dependent enhancement, that means if they are vaccinated and then get their first uh, contact with the pathogens and um, catches them from the other side by the respiratory organs, then the immune system may go chaotic and lead to false alarms and that's uh, cytokine storms and the sicknesses that have been watched um, after that was uh, te tested in animal tests. Some of the researchers says there is a great risk that this may happen in humans as well. And this ADE uh, is probably not going to happen with everyone. Well, maybe with what we get uh, vaccinated um, spread through the body, that's where it may take an effect. Um, and and not, uh, it's not being neutralized then. And uh, But it's too difficult to explain that now. <clears throat> there is no hygienic uh, indication for uh, vaccination against corona in, in vaccination. There is uh, no such... Um, reasoning anyway. So uh, this is why I think it doesn't make sense to um, vaccinate against uh, respiratory sicknesses. <clears throat> so there is quite a lot of data for this and for the morbidity and mortality statistics 
Um, we've had no excess. We've had uh, volatilizations in the system, uh, but no more people died uh, in 2020 than uh, in other years, and the mortality worldwide corresponds to that, to a normal influenza and when COVID has always been part of a influenza, so why should we see a part of uh, of the influenza viruses create more damage than all the others? So what we've seen is a mistreatment and maybe in the next uh, contribution by my colleagues, we'll hear more about that. Um, many things have been done wrong. Uh, people have been killed by intubation, overdosage of hydrochloxine, and I think the intensive care of old people is what kills them. Lots of things have been doing wrong there. There's been lots of victims. Uh, that uh, were then used to scare us, but the uh, scare was produced by the doctors. These are the new vaccinations. Now the WHO says this is the great hope. People don't want this gene uh, therapy. So let's see what do we have. What's in the pipeline? And we see there's different types. I'll come to that in a minute. And this is the uh, frequency. PS is protein subunit. That means a part of the virus envelope is produced. This is um, proteins. That's the normal way of vaccination. There's uh, 45 candidates for this. And then there's viral vectors. This is something like we've seen now from Johnson & Johnson, AstraZeneca, vector vaccines that transport that genetic information or even DNA is injected. That is available as well. And then we've got the inactivated viruses. That is, for example, what Mr. Stucker did. This is in, he injected inactivated viruses and uh, put an attenuate, uh, put uh, uh, a booster to it. And then there's the mRNA uh, vaccination, that's Moderna, BioNTech viral vectors that replicate. These ones were not replicable, and these do replicate. We'll come back to that. That's very interesting. And then we've got the virus type particles. So small uh, balls and uh, the proteins attached to these to create the immunization. So the uh, the um, ball of the virus is uh, artificial and these spikes are single are put onto that and um, the others I want to skip they are more difficult and you need to understand these in depth it needs a study I haven't understood all of them so these are research done worldwide quite a few and here we see that phase one um, but also phase four these are the studies that we are uh, doing now millions and the billions of people getting vaccinated are in this phase four uh, study so we all participate in that everybody who does and here uh, to show the multitude or the magnitude of people participating and this is a logarithm hundred thousand ten thousand a hundred thousand so the hundred thousand there's a few that are still ongoing and some of the studies use uh, phase lower phase studies that uh, are used with fewer 
participants. One is done with a very few only. Phase two is a couple of hundreds, and phase three maybe 20,000, and so on. And so we see the different types of vaccines here again. I'll come to that. These are the different types. And this is the RNA, the BioNTech and Moderna. The subprotein protein subunit is what we can't get yet. Many people hope for that. These are the non-replicating viral vectors that do not replicate uh, alternately. These are inactivated complete vi viruses, and then we've got the virus, the DNRR, DNA-based. Uh, there are some of these that. Uh, make sure and then there's the artificial viruses and so on and this year this replicating viral vectors these are viruses that can reproduce inside our bodies and these are vectors so they may or contain the information to create antigenes this is what the vaccination industry has been dreaming of for a long time and apparently these are being tested now there's two studies doing that and that's uh, going unnoticed, and they can reproduce inside the body. They have these are gene technically changed uh, viruses who will probably be passed on to others, and that is being tested. I don't know where. Uh, be good to find that out what these studies are and how they are going on. But I think that's very interesting to see. This is a publication um, in Corona talking about self decimating disseminating vaccines so viruses that uh, come from from animals can be vaccinated and the vaccination is passed on automatically so one uh, animal for example a fox will be um, vaccinated against uh, rabies and then the different uh, animals each of them vaccinate each other. So they go through the infection and that um, suppresses it. But the problem is we don't know what happens inside ourselves and how our genome and how our immune system and all of that, the molecular biology will uh, react to this um, as we have such a complex system. So it can well be that they may be able to reproduce and do not make us sick and are passed on, but they could make us sick because they get different characteristics. We know that viruses change all the time and they change in the host. And uh, so this is something that we would be as well. So that's a very, very uh, risky technology which was not allowed to be used. It was banned until now. It's now it's being tested. Unfortunately, I don't know yet as to how much and where. We had to find out that for the first time we have seen the use of mRNA uh, vaccines in at large scales in human beings. It was the first mass vaccine with only a preliminary efficacy data. So we are still in the experimental phase for the first time and millions of people are getting it. That hasn't happened before. It's the first um, vaccines that have no clear statement on the reducing of infections trans 
admission or mortalities. What was measured are so-called surrogate parameters. That's the antibody production and it's the immune immune reaction is another parameter and whether somebody gets um, symptoms of the infection and uh, sometimes that's even done with a PCR test only of course that is not enough by far and uh, that's what I said stop this crazy experiments uh, with uh, surrogate parameters checking whether a vaccine is effective or not and then it's the first time that uh, it's uh, vaccines test against coronavirus is tested on human beings. Corona is only one of the viruses that may lead to ADE. That's important to know. And there's it's a first injection of gene engineered polynucleoids in the general population. So even we say it's not a vaccination, it's gene therapy, which is the injection or the application of polynucleotides. Uh, we've never done a mass a gene therapy um, only looking, uh, we only did this in very, very individual cases, and now all the barriers are pushed away. No ethical commission anymore. Um, they are uh, mouth shut, and it goes without talk. Uh, polyethylene glucol is also used within the vaccines. That's a very allergic uh, substance uh, that may lead to anaphylactic reactions. And that is a major risk in itself. And it was the first mass application of vectors and nanoparticles as an injection in human beings. So even the mean, the uh, substances that is brought in the human beings is new as well. And the application of nanoparticles in human beings is new as well. And both technologies as such are associated with great risks. And um, this is a an experiment on millions of, of people as well. It's um, prohibited experiments which can only be uh, done with con informed consent of the person otherwise they will violate the Nuremberg Codex and are severely punishable and this should be really the case if the laws that have been applicable in the past are still applicable. So how do they measure the success of the research in the six months Pfizer study there was one COVID death out of 22,000 people in the vaccine group only one COVID death death was there one of 22,000 and two were in the placebo group which was not so one more wow that's quite a big efficacy twice as many deaths that have that uh so even there we have a relative efficacy of 50 percent but uh, you have to say, know that you have only saved one life out of 22,000 and uh, subject them to the risk. And if we look at the overall risks and do not look who got COVID, but what else happened after the um, vaccines, one has to unfortunately find that there was five deaths by heart attacks in the vaccination group and the non-vaccination group only one. So that means the overall effect of the so-called vaccine was, was 
A disaster. Much better. One COVID case was avoided, but four additional heart attacks in the group of the vaccinated people. This is what happens if you take surrogate parameters and not look at the holistic picture. So the measured success um, blinded out the overall risk that is possible after the vaccination and still it was approved and that is really irresponsible. <clears throat> Now, let's look at the efficacy. We have the absolute and relative risk reduction. Pfizer says 95% um, uh, relative risk mitigation. They call that very high efficacy. And we have that in one group, one person who gets sick out of the 20,000. And in the other group, we have no one. And uh, that's 22,000 people that have been vaccinated. We have avoided a single infection, but that gives us 100% efficacy because in the other group, nobody um, got uh, sick in the vaccinated group and only one person in the non-vaccinated group. Uh, calling that 100% is absurd, but this is what the, what's the figures that we are presented to and all these bright guys <clears throat> Um, who who do the fact-checking and so on, talk about this, the newspapers talk about this high um, uh, efficacy. This the relative risk mitigation. It's a sales trick of the uh, pharmaceutical industry. It doesn't tell you anything about the protection that you get. And if you look at the absolute risk reduction, so this is the figure of how many of the 22,000 vaccinated people were really protected. And uh, you can present this better in the number needed to vaccinate. And this is the figure, how many people do I have to vaccinate in order to prevent one case of, in, of, of sickness? And this is uh, that also takes away the heart, effect, heart attacks. It only looks at corona and coronavirus, SARS-CoV-2 infections. And here we see Pfizer, Moderna, Gamalaya. This is not sold with us here. Johnson Johnson, AstraZeneca. These are the four, uh, the two outer ones on the graph. And here we see that we get 95% efficacy, uh, but we have to vaccine 119 people to save one single case of dis of a positive PCR test with symptoms. These were the criteria, you may remember. So we've got to subject a great number of people, 118 people have to be subjected to that high risk of that gene experiment in order to provide to prevent a single positive symptom PCR test. And we don't know if these are corona as such, because that wasn't uh, checked either, or that may have been an influenza that made that symptom. So that, even that we don't know. So this is a uh, a uh, poor result, and that's why I asked if he had any uh, seen any vaccination with such bad values of risk reduction. And the same applies for Moderna, the same way I have to vaccinate 81 people to prevent a single case, and in the others, 48, 78, <clears throat> 84 and 78, sorry. Um, the studies haven't been carried out very uh, 
properly as we are finding out by whistleblowers now and the British Medical Journal has also asked a couple of important questions concerning the quality and transparency of the studies. Uh, again, the difference, this is the graphic that um, the um, people, the person working with the numbers uh, looked at. These are the people, there's nearly 20,000 people taking part in the study and in the placebos it's 0.83 percent less than the percent that have been infected 0.8 percent and in the non uh, in the vaccinated people it's 0.04 and the absolute efficacy that's the difference between these two and this is 0.8 percent so only 0.8% less of these 22 of these 20,000 here have an infection. So that is very, very little. That's very, very bad. The relative efficacy in this group here, um, in the vaccinated, it's only nine infections, and here it was 169. So 160 infections more these are these 0.8 percent out of these 22,000. So we see what um, this is uh, against of no, uh, what this uh, is a kind of figure juggling really, and uh, how effective these uh, vaccinations are. So it's less than a one percent that you drop the real risk of uh, catching it. And for that, 80 to 140 people have to be vaccinated, but they all have the risk of um, side effects and the studies based on PCR tests who do not say anything really and uh, do not say anything about the uh, severe causes of the disease. Now, the Federal Ministry for Health has uh, had a FORSA survey and that found out that half of the people do not want to be vaccinated. They asked the ones who did not get the vaccination and they found out that most of them don't want to get vaccinated. The uh, result shows that the uh, people are very clear. 65% of the people don't want to get vaccinated. Very good. And 23% uh, rather not and only 5% think about it. So out of those who haven't been vaccinated as yet, most of them don't want to. And so, of course, now they wonder on how they could get these people uh, to be vaccinated as well. And then the conventional vaccine is brought into the game. And here it says half of the people would say, OK, in that case, they may think about it where they shouldn't take it. These are the people that write all their letters to me, say, what do you think? Would you take that? vaccine that's the question that comes would you take the other vaccine and somewhere in the pipeline i've said said this uh, the statistics that i've just shown before uh, from the who that i've shown how many there are in the pipeline so that was um, quite a few it was this chart all together 128 different uh, substances and most of them are not gene uh, engineered, at least at first sight, they aren't. 
So let me come back to the survey. Here we see that uh, the adverse effects were very strong after the start of the vaccination that was visible in March. So uh, this is the uh, reported side effects. In March this year already, and we looked at what it was, uh, the dead ones were the lethal ones, uh, the fatal ones, and the heavy cases, and so on. So all of this here, we don't want to look at that now, but we've got different data, and this is important to me here. Here we see the number of vaccinations. These are the four different vaccines. Most of it is BioNTech, second most uh, AstraZeneca, Moderna, and Johnson & Johnson. Not so many. And these are the single vaccines, uh, the double vaccinated uh, goes until end of October. So in Germany, we see to the uh, southeast, people are a bit more careful with the vaccines and in the west and in the northwest, especially here, all this uh, area, uh, people go more forward with the vaccine. They are more trustful. So let's look at what happens in uh, emergency admissions and in we can see the A&E admissions. There's the Robert Koch Institute that gives us the figures. So that is the number of people who get to the A&E units. And I put that in one um, since um, we have this here. And here we see that the respiratory reasons to see the hospital this is the stark blue line that is the uh, this year it's the 2021 line not much is happening really we see not, not many people get here as emergency cases due to respiratory diseases <clears throat> that's incredible isn't it nothing much happening and and they can uh, still catch it and they can have viruses in their throat but that's like normal so if they don't have ADE, nothing is going to happen. They infect, they take the infection, they've got the coronavirus, that's uh, fenced off, uh, fought off, and nothing happens. But only if an ADE happens, a strong reaction uh, by this uh, vaccine, and then that something that could make a difference. Now, looking at the cardiologic differences, development. Uh, someone else in the line. Well, <clears throat> could you mute yourself at Klaus Kühnlein? Wolfgang, Thorsten Engelbrecht and Klaus Kühnlein uh, are technically capable of uh, taking part now. Yeah, I'm just finishing. Uh, 45 minutes are not over yet, so um, uh, this is the important line here that these um, the um, uh, A and E admissions of cardiovascular diseases is increasing and nearly parallel to the vaccination. More people are brought to uh, vascular diseases. That's clearly visible here, and. That was the case in the respiratory movements, but in the cardiac um, diseases, that's the case. Also with the neurological cases, sinus uh, vein thrombosis, the uh, 
nervous system parallel to the vaccinations, the rate of admissions to A&E is increasing. That is something that needs to be explained. That needs to be explained. That's not normal because there is a temporal correlation and we know that doesn't mean causality, but at least that should uh, lead to questions being asked and this being scrutinized and that has not happened so far. So this is a new finding. And here Ulrike Kemmerer pointed this out to me. She noted that as well. I've put this here um, and I do see a temporal correlation. I think that is quite alarming what we're looking at here. That is something that one should publish at a broader range and this is something that should be scrutinized. Okay, so these are the major steps I'd like to take and present here. I've seen this chart and uh, looking at the new hope that's uh, uh, Novavax, that's a spike protein vaccine, finished prepared spike proteins uh, from the genetic sequencing with SARS-CoV-2 with recombining nanoparticle technology. So they didn't uh, um, breed them, but they prepared them artificially, synthetically, with the help of a nanoparticle technology. And this is Matrix M. Um, it's adjuvanted and uh, that triggers the immune system and this matrix M is to stimulate the increase of antigen presenting cells in the injection location. That's a patented uh, drug so maybe we could talk about that next time and that's very synthetical both of these very new completely new technology not tested either and now people um, should put their trust in, in this is not a traditional vaccine nothing has been bred here and you get that uh, uh, no way this is something completely new nanotechnology uh, created in the laboratory and that should be as were these spike proteins with the same antigen reaction and these are produced and there is um, approval studies in mexico us and great britain against the astrazeneca tested which one of the two is better but this is like uh uh, the devil and Lucifer. So this is the second carrier of hope. It's an deactivated uh, um, full virus um, vaccine. So that is a virus that is uh, multiplied in bioreactors, then purified and that was the reason why I said uh, the vaccine against the uh, swine flu should not be used uh, because it wasn't sufficiently researched. There were other cells that played a role in the bioreactor there. So that's a novel technology again that allows for a rapid production of viruses and they're treated such that they cannot replicate and then entire viruses that are uh, supposed not to replicate are uh, 
injected and uh, there's an additive that is uh, given alone uh, which is uh, sulfates um, uh, salt aluminum and um, sodium um, and it includes CPG 1018 as an additive and what is that that goes into the cells and uh, only into certain cells they're nucleic acids right that are taken into the cell as nanoparticles so it's something like mRNA just a little bit less a little bit smaller it's like a switch that triggers certain receptors uh, that can uh, either switch them on or off and those are the uh, TLR9 uh, receptors they are nucleotides and I described it here in more detail I uh, took it from the original publication it's not a uh, non-genetic uh, um, vaccination. Um, the, the additives are pure genetic uh, technology. The uh, nanoparticles that are uh, used to take the um, virus into the cell um, triggers additional uh, uh, um, a stronger immune reaction so that's genetic therapy again under the official definition this hasn't been discussed nobody has questioned this i think that's scandalous um, they pretend like it's a normal uh, vaccination because uh, viruses are injected no um nara uh, uh, nucleic acids are injected taken to the uh, cells with nanotechnology that's what they want to do <clears throat> then we have Sinovac from China there are viruses that have been rep replicated then deactivated the immune response is relatively weak and that's why they uh, receive an additive as well with uh, aluminium oxide we uh, know this we know that it is uh, very risky aluminium isn't healthy has a lot of side effects we could say okay let's leave that because the vaccine is only weak um, it can only um, have an effect with uh, people who aren't immune anyway um, so we've heard that 90 percent are immune already so it can only have an effect with the remaining 10 percent but if somebody uh, wants to uh, use a plane or go to a um, to a restaurant that requires a vaccination, then you have the normal uh, vaccination risk of aluminium oxide and ADE risk. So it's a risky vaccine. It's not as risky as the others, but um, there's um, oftentimes the risk of allergies there's numerous studies uh, showing this and ADE uh, these are coronaviruses that are being injected and if they uh, go through the muscle tissue they can lead to failures of the immune system and, and to ADE so we could have a very severe reaction when there is contact with the natural viruses subsequently that needs to be uh, seen there are no studies on this Sanovax, by the way those are the big uh, circles seen in the um, global studies and i don't know what it all includes 
but in China, of course, they do it on command. Um, they do it in lar on large scale, and they uh, collect a lot of experience. So I'm, I'm curious to see how many uh, ADE cases there will be. So these are the main answers to the questions that have reached me. And on many questions, you can find answers uh, in my book, which I would like to recommend you uh, again. Um, wrong pandemics. Um, and then you can take your time, read it uh, at your own pace, put it away again. So it's about uh, it's for people who don't know about this at all uh, yet and want to take a look um, at it with more rest. Um, I hope that I was able to give you some news and I hope that the public will receive this, understand this. We do, of course. Wolfgang, very interesting. A question. The influenza vaccines are put into the blood as well. Do they have these problems as well? Yes, of course, they uh, happen as well. ADE has been uh, shown uh, with uh, flu vaccines, for instance. Um, it happens too, not so frequently. <laughs> But individual cases have been reported. But, but the risk is high enough to be uh, for the people to be informed, isn't it? I'm not. Uh, what I'm not sure about. We have to take this um, uh, a closer look at this. We have an anarchic, uh, anarchic time for studies. Uh, anybody can do anything today, and they're really beating the drum for the uh, flu uh, vaccine. Uh, keep away from it. Um, they have novel vaccines. Um, and they have different additives. If they use the same additives that I just mentioned, the nanotechnology and this technology with the uh, genetic engineering, well, then you uh, have to expect similar risks. So you have to take a look at this in more detail. I haven't taken a look at the new flu vaccines, um, and we'll have to do that um, separately. So that's why I started with it. Um, for respiratory tract viruses. That's the ones that assault us every year that we've been welcoming with our immune system every year for thousands of years. Um, and that uh, where the immune system says hello again, um, back you are. And um, that will only become a problem for us when we'll be old and weak. And um, we don't need to do anything about it. We don't need a vaccination against this. And if um, vulnerable people, older people have a benefit from a vaccine or not. That has to be researched in great detail. Um, people who have been vaccinated against the flu, um, they didn't get a corona um, uh, disease, in corona infection anymore. But uh, in terms of their average life expectancy, they didn't have a benefit at all. So what we need to see here are independent um, studies um, that have to be uh, performed by our own uh, public institute institutions that we have for this, not by the uh, companies that manufacture these products. So these institutions have been installed by the taxpayer, um, and they get a lot of money. And I know um, that um, um, the people working in those institutions would love to do this, but they're not allowed to for some reason or other. I stopped them. One of the first delivery chip problems. Wolfgang, thank you. And we'll turn to two North German, I think you know one of the colleagues, Klaus Koenig, Kernlein. 
You're from the north of Germany, both of you, and the scientific journalist Thorsten Engelbrecht have joined us. Klaus and Thorsten, you've solved your technical issues, have you? You have to switch the mic on. Well, hello, this is uh, Thorsten Engelbrecht. You can probably hear us. Yes, and we can see you as well. Well, we can't see you, unfortunately. Well, now we do. Now we do. Well, with you and you are looking at the history of vaccinations as well. What Wolfgang has just uh, uh, referred about uh, corona vaccinations as you do the same thing at a broader approach let's start with the first question hello klaus hello. Um, are vaccines uh, not effective and safe because the rke on their side on their page says uh, that is uh, the best thing to have and uh, in measles and millions of people could, uh, saw this and the uh, effect is that um, measles have been moved against and uh, what's wrong about all that story? Well, maybe uh, the directors can show the first quote, a picture with a quote by a certain Edward Cuss it's a Harvard uh, a member and um, the first president of the uh, Society of uh, Infectious Diseases of America. Can we enlarge this? <clears throat> we can see it very well. Well, we can't see it on the screen now. Were you going to read it out? Uh, yes, I was going to read it out so that uh, um, spectators can not only hear what I'm saying, but also see it in full screen mode. Is that possible? Well, the spectators see it that way, yes. Okay, great. I think normally with the uh, vaccinations, uh, if you look at them critically, um, what the focus is on is the side effects. But I think, and that is what we uh, want to point out is um, that it's worthwhile taking a look at the history of the historical data, which show uh, quite convincingly that vaccinations don't make sense. And if you take a look at this uh, quote by Edward Kuss, it's from 1971, um, from, from a paper um, in this um, Journal of Infectious Diseases, the, the Journal of the Infectious Disease Society of America, it says at the beginning of the introductory uh, book um, um, that we published on um, virus madness, uh, is the name of the title of it, um, it shows that, uh, well, if you've understood what he says, then you get a different view of vaccinations than what you're normally told. I'll just read it out. We had some uh, semi-truths that we accepted and stopped to look for the full truth. The most important semi-truth was that the medical research 
had um, eradicated the big killers of the past, tuberculosis, diphtheria, uh, pneumonia, um, childbirth, fever, etc. In truth, the data um, on the mortality rate with tuberculosis show that since the middle of the 19th century, they had been decreasing and had been continued to decrease until to about 1970. During the wars, there was an increase of tuberculosis rates, but the general decrease of the tuberculosis uh, deaths was not uh, measurable. And the introduction of BCG um, vaccination or the discovery of uh, uh, the antibiotic streptomycin um, could not be observed as being beneficial. And uh, similar trends with a view to the death rates of um, diseases such as diphtheria, uh, scarlet, uh, scarlet fever, rheumatic fever, um, uh, measles, etc., um, were similar. It is important that this aspect uh, is understood in full. Many observers of the public of public health have pointed this out. Among them, the pioneer of epidemiology, Wade Hampton Frost, and the microbiology and Pulitz um, uh, Award winner Rene Dubois. Maybe uh, the directors can show the second quote. It's from uh, this uh, quote from Cuss is from 1970, I believe, and this quote is from uh, 2018 by a certain Anthony R. Mawson, professor for epidemiology and biostatistics, from a publication in the International Journal of Environmental Research and Public Health. Uh, he said it's an, a, a well-known fact that the increased uh, conditions of life were responsible for reducing uh, the death rates of the uh, common infectious diseases dramatically, and that this happened before most vaccinations were ever taken up. Okay, but that seems to suggest that the vaccines, the vaccine, normal vaccinations that we've been accepting so far, I've been uh, vaccinated against uh, polio and tetanus, uh, that they may not have been effective or uh, helpful or necessary at all, as we have thought. Is that the case? Well, these, let me just say that the statements by um, these two gentlemen, Moores and Kuss, have the general uh, gist, and they say that the death rates uh, triggered by infectious diseases uh, decreased before mass um, vaccinations. Uh, so we had tetanus, diphtheria. Uh, do we have the, a graph for tetanus? I tried to provide it electronically. I'll show it to you uh, directly from our book uh, with tetanus. We can see how it has decreased. Uh, there's this hatched areas. That's where the vaccinations happened. That's tetanus. Maybe you can show it, Klaus. Four. Measles, it's uh, similar. Yes, so. this is measles. And especially these measles mortality statistics is important to see because here we have a mandatory vaccination at this moment. And I didn't understand 
two years ago when it was introduced why we need to have this now as a mandatory uh, vaccination as hardly any child dies of it and i wrote a letter uh, to the uh, newspaper but the statistics wasn't printed where you can see this from that the mortality rate of measles in the 50s it was 200 and in the 70s it was 20 and then the vaccination was introduced so that means the mortality rate dropped clearly before the introduction of the vaccination to nearly neglectable values. I knew colleagues who are at clinics and get uh, um, severe cases. And of course, I understand that they are not happy with what we are talking about here. What we're saying here, if you're seeing a, a sick child with that, but you have to look at the statistics and see that the vaccinations apparently didn't have any effect on the drop and the um, fight back of the measles. And I'm an internist and I have not much to do with vaccinations, but um, being a doctor, you get uh, in touch with this when you have children as well. And um, my first daughter was going to get a tuberculosis vaccination and uh, right after birth. And I said, no, I don't want that. Uh, I don't see any risk that she'd catch it. And <clears throat> I rejected it. That was possible at the time. That was in 91. Um, of course, they puzzled, I, the people were puzzled, but okay, two years later, I came with the next uh, daughter and uh, thought about, they asked about tuberculosis and they said, no, no, we don't do this for, do this for a long time. What happened in between the two incidences is that here it was actually the case that there was a placebo prospective randomized study so meeting the highest standards of standards of science, so to say, uh, one population uh, vaccinated and the other wasn't. And the result was that the vaccinated uh, population got more tuberculosis than the non-vaccinated population. And that lead led to a clearly visible um, uh, publication in The Lancet titled Bad News from India. And so that has been published. But still, from that point in time, it took 13 years for the German child doctors to stop that vaccination. Klaus, we have a mix-up here. We have to interrupt you um, and allow Bobby Kennedy to uh, take the floor because of the time um, change. He thought he was booked for 7 p.m., uh, but because of the time change the, uh, back to wintertime, he is with us now at 6 p.m. But we'll continue with you later on, okay? Bobby, the time difference. I think the, uh, I think you, um, uh, you, you changed the time back for about an hour. But if this is okay with you, you're gonna, you're gonna start right now if, if that's okay. I read your book, by the way. Wow, that's a big surprise. That's a huge undertaking. <laughs> yeah, it's it's extremely interesting. Uh, it's you're focusing on Fauci. It's a pretty much complete history of uh, what he has been doing, how successful uh, he has been, both 
with respect to his endeavors and, of course, financially. Uh, I think I read that he's make, he's he's the one public official who makes the most money. Um, he gets like four hundred forty-seven thousand dollars a year. It's more than the president. Is that correct? Yeah, that's right. And actually, it's interesting because um, his salary technically should be about seventy percent less than that. Uh, but in two thousand two, after the anthrax attacks, the Pentagon began. Uh, funneling huge amounts of money to Anthony Fauci. The Pentagon wanted to do bioweapons development, and but they're blocked by the 1972 Bioweapons Treaty. And but the treaty has a loophole in it that says you can do dual-use research, meaning if you can if you can make the claim, the plausible claim, that what you're actually doing is developing vaccines or other countermeasures, you can legally develop new bioweapons research. And the Pentagon did not think it could get away with doing that on its own. So it began funneling money to Tony Fauci and beginning in 2002, he really became an asset of the of the bioweapons uh, industry and of the Pentagon. He, he took on a military function. And at that time, they gave him a 68% raise that came from the his military involvement and is attached to his military involvement. And that's one of the reasons he was kind of forced to continue to do gain-of-function studies, even when everybody was criticizing them and Obama was trying to stop him. He continued to do it because he gets $1.6 billion a year for those kind of studies, for, for essentially military research, bioweapons research. And... Um, and his salary comes from that as well. So 70% of his salary raise is attached to that work. Um, the, uh, I, th there was a halt in the gain of function experiments when I think Obama did it. Um, why is it that he continued doing this? Or is it not true that he continued doing this? No, he continued doing it. So. He began doing these studies um, around 2000. He did a study um, which in 2001, after the anthrax attacks, he did a study by a researcher called Kuo, K-U-O, and that was the first one. And they took a, um, they took a, and this actually is a, is a study that should be loved by mice because they took a mouse coronavirus and they taught it to infect only cats. And that was the first time that they had successfully done that. And people were, even at that time, were kind of were outraged that they were toying with these kind of alchemies. And then a couple of years later, they funded a study that took the Spanish flu that has been extinct from since 1918 and which was killing, you know, 1% of the people who were infected. And, um, and they, they resurrected it. In other words, they built a Spanish flu a virus which did not exist on the planet at that time. And then 
there was a, a giant backlash and you started getting a, a group of people, Richard Ebright from Rutgers and uh, Mark Lipsitch, who are both bioweapons experts from, from Harvard. And they started leading a group saying what Tony, uh, the critics of Tony Fauci saying what he's doing is insane. And it is, you know, if one of these things escapes, you will not be able to predict the trajectory. And then in 2014, there were three mishaps where, you know, 85 CDC workers were exposed, I think, to smallpox they found, or anthrax. They found a, um, they, they uncovered a, somebody found an unlocked refrigerator in a basement of, at Fort Detrick, uh, a, a batch of smallpox uh, vials. And then there was another escape. So you had three escapes that were all publicized in a short period of time. And at that point, um, there was Tony Fauci, there was actually a, a uh, there was a panel that was supposed that they created after they recreated the flu, the Spanish flu. It was a panel that was created that had a Pentagon representative and then representatives of each of the uh, the agencies within NIH. And that was supposed to review all of gain of function for, for risk benefit analyses. But Tony Fauci controlled the panel and he chaired it. He simply refused to convene it. He had also picked all the people who were running it except for the Pentagon people so he could dominate it. But when these three uh, viruses escaped, he had a mutiny on that panel, and they they insisted on being convened, and there was, and and he ended up firing them. He fired half the panel. It was called the Saturday Night Massacre, and at that point, the people who had been fired from the panel were convened by Mark Lipsitch at Harvard and Richard E. Bright at Rutgers, and they put together 300 leading scientists in the area, and they wrote a letter to President Obama saying, you gotta stop Tony Fauci. And President Obama passed the gain-of-function moratorium. But while he was passing it, Fauci and Collins were fighting him, and they ended up winning a battle where the entire review process would be taken away from that other panel and put completely inside of NIH. And there was also a loophole that they installed that said if they could show, if they could demonstrate to themselves, not to anybody else, that this was important for national security, they could continue the studies that Obama had banned. I think there were 18 studies banned and they immediately restarted at least nine of them, maybe 11 of them. It's all secret, so we don't know exactly what they were doing. And then Tony Fauci began shifting his uh, resources to Wuhan to do these studies where they'd be out of sight of the White House and they were laundering the money through this sociopathic you know, British born zoologist, Peter Dayzak. And at the same time, the CIA was pumping money into Dayzak. So the CIA and the Pentagon were also laundering money through Dayzak. So we ended up sending about $100 million through him from, from the Pentagon, 
from uh, CAA via USAID and from Tony Fauci. And Tony Fauci, although his studies were very important, he was only the third largest study, but he was coordinating with the intelligence agencies and with the military, you know, and everything that they did. And, they, you know, the weird thing is they somehow convinced themselves that it would be okay. The Wuhan lab is run by the Chinese military. And the Chinese military is very open at what they're doing is bioweapons research. They don't, they don't make any, you know, they're not pretending it's something else. In fact, they published a study in 2013 in China, in the Chinese language that explained exactly what they were doing and said, this is a very exciting area. And we can now, thanks to Tony Fauci, we now know not only how to make these viruses infect human beings, but also to hide the tampering. Tony Fauci, this is a, you know, one of the holes in Tony Fauci's story is he's, he kept saying, well, this is about vaccine development. Uh, he was funding Ralph Barrick in North Carolina to figure out ways to hide the tampering. They called it, Ralph Barrick called it the no method meaning you could create these viruses and then through the, what they call a seamless ligation process, you could hide the evidence of tampering. Oh, he, he funded Ralph Barrick to develop that. Ralph Barrick taught Ying Zhe Shi, the bat lady, how to do it. She succeeded in doing it on her own. And they had all these Chinese scientists, the Chinese in 2013 published this study that says, okay, now we, with this is a very exciting new uh, weapons development area. And we can combine this with other technologies like freeze-dried technologies and uh, to create delivery systems for the bioweapons we're making. This is all laid out in their report. They were, I think they had 27 authors on this study about how to weaponize coronaviruses and flu viruses by doing these gain-of-function studies. And they talk about how to, you know, when they do get them, they can freeze-dry them, that they have to be, you have to deliver them at night, you have to drop them over cities at night because the sunlight damages them. You need to take into account wind patterns and it's all, you know, the Chinese were very open. What we are doing here is weapons development. Why? I mean, after the, um, all of the emails were brought out into the open, it was very obvious for anyone who can read that he was involved in uh, that he was involved in gain-of-function experiments. Why does he still deny that he's doing that? Is he is he so sure of himself? Is he sure that he's still going to get the protection that he's had? Is he so sure that he's not going to get thrown under the bus? Or what's behind this? Well, as I show in the book, he's made a career of lying and getting away with it. And even, you know, during the pandemic, he told a whole bunch of what he considers to be noble lies about masks, about um, the, the, uh, the rates needed to, a vaccination needed to achieve herd immunity, many, many other things. And he admitted publicly, oh, yeah, I lied about that. I lied to manipulate the public into doing the right thing. 
So he, he has in his brain this thought that he, because of that, he is the only one who possesses the genius to save humanity from these contagions. And he has a right, even a duty to lie. And, um, you know, to the public for its own good. So I don't. I think that he has a disconnect in his brain, where he does not see that most people do not want to be manipulated. More importantly, he's gotten away with it, and consistently gotten away with it. The New York Times reported his lies, reported that they were lies, and then gave him a ringing endorsement to do it. So I think he feels like, you know, it's like that, that he is not going to get, nobody's going to call him on it. And so far, he's been correct about that. Um, what about his, I, I, nobody really, at, at least outside of the United States, nobody really knew who Fauci was. He became a prominent figure with the start of the corona uh, pandemic, as I would call it now. I'm not denying that there's a virus. We know that it can be really dangerous and it can be deadly for some people. But um, a lot of people, including our friend um, uh, Judy Michaelwitz, of course, uh, is saying this is a pandemic. Um, how was it that he he has been making a career for so many years. I think it's, it all started, if I remember correctly, in 1968 or so. How is it that he was invisible for most of the world, I think even for most Americans, until finally we came to the corona uh, pandemic or pandemic? Well, you know, I, 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 people who were part of the, the, um, of the healthcare uh, space, Everybody knows who Tony Fauci is. He is, you know, he he makes, he runs NIH, and he's been the primary author of agency capture within the agency. He's taken the agency, as I show in the book, away from doing public health and turned it into a, a an incubator for pharmaceutical products. So what his agency, his mini agency, NIAID, does with its, you know, with his 7.6 or $7.7 .7 billion annual budget, he gives away 13 times what Bill Gates gives away every year. So he's very, very powerful. Every virologist in the world knows him. Um, the, the livelihood of virtually every virologist in the world relies at, in some way on Tony Fauci. Um, unless they have, you know, the weird odd case where they may have an independent source of funding, but he can get to almost anybody between Fauci, Gates, and Jeremy Farrar of the Wellcome Trust. Those three individuals control 61% of the biomedical research money on earth. And what, you know, originally, and they also control, so they control what science gets done. They also control what science doesn't get done. In other words, people who want to research, for example, the connection between uh, chemicals like glyphosate and certain diseases, or for example, the, the connection between vaccines and autism. We have the databases that could actually do those studies. You have to say, why have they never been done? When we sued HHS, they admitted 
And none of the vaccines, the 48 vaccines that are given to children during their first uh, six months of life, none of them had ever been studied with a link for autism, not one. Despite all the claims, this has been disproven. So why did autism go during, under Tony Fauci's watch, why did it go from one in 10,000 people in my generation to one in every 22 boys in the United States today? These are CDC's numbers. Why did that happen? And it happened beginning in 1989. And so, and that is the year the vaccine schedule exploded. We went from the three vaccines that I had as a kid to beginning around 1989 to the 72 mandatory doses of 16 vaccines that my kids got. And, and so when Congress said to EPA, tell us what year the autism epidemic began, they said, the EPA came back and said, the EPA scientists came back and said, 1989, it's a red year. Tony Fauci's job is to figure out what happened in 1989. We know that, that genes don't cause epidemic. They may provide the vulnerability, but you need an environmental toxin. So it, we need to identify what environmental toxin hit the population in 1989 that caused all these neurodevelopmental disorders, not just autism, but ADD, ADHD, OCD, speech delay, sleeping disorders, tics, Tourette syndrome, narcolepsy, ASD, autism, this whole con uh, constellation of neurodevelopmental disorders that began in 89. In addition, that year we saw an explosion in allergic injuries, food allergies, suddenly, you know, peanut allergies appeared, um, and and uh, eczema, other allergic diseases, asthma, anaphylaxis, and then autoimmune diseases that year suddenly exploded. Rheumatoid arthritis, juvenile diabetes. If you're like me, if you were raised prior to 1989, you never knew anybody with any of these diseases. I never met a person with autism my age. I still haven't full-blown autism, you know, non-verbal, non-toilet train, head banging, stimming, toe walking. I've never seen anybody my age like that. Why? I had 11 brothers and sisters, 71st cousins. None of them had food allergies. Why do five of my children have allergies? You know, Tony Fauci's job is to answer that question for the past 50 years. Not only has he never done the studies, which would be simple, easy to do, but anybody who tries to do those studies, their career would be destroyed. So let's say there was a young scientist at Stanford University who's an associate professor. And he says, I have a great idea. Kaiser Permanente has a database, the HMO, the insurance group, has a database of two and a half million patients. And it has the vaccine record of every one of those patients down to the batch number. And it has all their medical claims records for EpiPens, for albuterol inhalers, for Adderall, for anti-seizure medication, Prozac, or whatever. So all of that database is in one place. And now, and it's all mechanized. So you could just do a cluster analysis for each of these vaccine doses, and you can immediately crank out the answer in a couple of hours. So let's say a young professor says, hey, this is a great study. Nobody's ever done this study. 
I'm going to go do it. As soon as Tony, Fau Tony Fauci will find out about that study immediately because the guy's going to ask for funds and he knows where, uh, you know, he knows every application for funding. The dean of that medical school is now going to get a call from Cliff Lane or Hugh Auchincloss or one of Tony Fauci's hitmen who says to him, we hear that there's a clown in your, in your school who's trying to do this kind of study. And, you know, we want to tell you that if he does that study, not only will it never get published because we control the journals, number two, we are going to cut you off next year. Well, Tony Fauci gives to Stanford probably a half a billion dollars a year. He gave or Baylor University $300 million a year, NYU, Harvard, all of the medical schools rely on Tony Fauci's large ass. And they're getting that money for drug development. And so Tony Fauci gives them these drugs to develop. And, you know, he develops. Here's what he does. This is, a, this is a kind of simplification, but at NIH labs, he has petri dishes filled with cultures of various viruses. So he'll have hantavirus and Coxsackie virus and flu, coronavirus, et cetera. And he's got scientists there who are dripping drops of certain molecules, poisons onto these viral cultures. And if the, if he, if the molecules kill that culture, and he says, okay, here, I got an antiviral that's effective against coronavirus. Now they have to give it to a rat and see if it kills the rat. So if it doesn't kill the rat, but it does kill the virus. And he says, okay, this could be a medicine. So then he farms it out to the university. The university may do a, 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 a macaque study, a monkey study. And it recruits people for a phase one study. So they have 100 people. Tony Fauci gives $20,000 per recruit to the, to the PI, the principal investigator. These are the key people who are the army, the commissars that do message discipline across the globe. When you look at the CNN and you see these people like Paul Offit or Peter Hotez or Art Kaplan or Stanley Perlman who come on CNN every night and they're, they're presented as independent scientists. They're not. They're principal investigators, and virtually every one of them is taking money from Tony Fauci or Bill Gates or both of them. So these guys, the principal investigator is usually a powerful person in the medical school. He runs, he's the dean of a department or you know the chair of a department, and he's the one who gets the clinical trials. He runs the lab. He recruits 100 people for this, you know, Tony Fauci's drug experiment. And Tony Fauci may give him $20,000 per person. It's a lot of money. 50 to 75% of that money is skimmed off to the university. So now the university is on the hook to Tony Fauci. They become reliant on that fund. And he goes, does the phase two, phase three, they're talking about maybe 30,000 people in a phase three trial, and they're giving huge amounts of money. So now he has to bring in the pharmaceutical company. They give half the patent to the pharmaceutical company. 
the PI keeps some of the patent, so he's now completely dependent on Tony Fauci. The university keeps some of the patent, and that is now their revenue stream. And Tony Fauci may keep some of the patent for himself. He may distribute patent rights to his favorite loyal deputies, and he may keep the patent for the for his agency. So Moderna, for example, the Moderna vaccine, Tony Fauci's agency owns half the patent and will collect billions of dollars in royalties. Tony Fauci is also given patent margin rights to between four and six of his favorite deputies. So they get to keep $150,000 a year for life. Oh, this is the system he's created. And his agency no longer does public health. The only thing it does is drug development, and you can see why. Now, this, I'll tell you how pervasive this is. Between 2009 and 2016, there are about 240 new drugs approved by FDA, all of them coming from Tony Fauci's shop. So, you know, he, he is the central incubator for drug development and pharmaceutical and the pharma companies are his partners. He's not going to do regulatory actions against them. He's not going to find problems with these drugs. He is going to promote them. And that's how you advance in these agencies by promoting these drugs. Doesn't he himself profit profit from this or or do we not know anything about this? Because there's so much well, money. It's hard. It's hard to get that data. We know that and I don't believe that he does. He, I know he owns one patent, at least one patent on interleukin-2, mm -hmm. which he kind of, um, you know, let's say this. This is putting it uncharitably, but he kind of stole from Frank Rossetti and Judy Mikovits, you know, who were involved in developing that drug. But he got the patent. He got caught for it because there was a whistleblower in uh, his agency who exposed that around 2004. And there was, you know, it was in the middle of a congressional investigation of Tony Fauci's experiments on little kids. He, he did these horrible, horrible experiments where he turned, you know, black and Hispanic kids over to the pharmaceutical companies at foster homes so that they could, uh, they could test their uh, chemotherapy, their chemotherapy um, HIV antivirals on these children. And a lot of children died, at least 85 kids died in those experiments. Many of them didn't even have HIV. And this was being investigated at that time. And during that investigation, it became clear that this drug called interleukin um, was he owned the patent for it. So when he, the, the, uh, the AP, a, a reporter called John Solomon did an article about it and there was a furor at that time because no American and nobody in Congress knew that HHS was allowing its employees to make, to make money on these patents. And to patent, you know, have walk-in rights, margin rights on on patents of drugs they had worked on, and so Tony Fauci publicly said at that time that don't worry, I'm going to give. At that time, they could own the patent; they were allowed to keep unlimited amounts of money from it. 
oh, Tony Fauci said, don't worry, I'm going to donate all the money from this patent, from the royalties to charity. That was the end of the discussion. Nobody has ever been able to find what charity he's been donating it to. And, you know, there are charities and there are charities. There are, like, as Bill Gates knows, that there is something called philanthropic capitalism, which he, you know, boasts about. But, you know, if, if your charity is your kid's football team or, you know, if their high school or private school or whatever, or their, your charity is donating to a college to help your kid get into college or, you know, there's a million things you can do that are charitable. Nobody's ever asked Tony Fauci and he's never said what he does with that money. And uh, but I believe, I think it's probable that that is the only patent because I think after that, because he was caught for it and, it, and the optics were really bad, I think after that, he started using the, well, first of all, HHS passed a new rule that said there was a maximum cap of $150,000 a year per patent. And since then, we know he's been giving patents on these drugs to favored employees, and it's basically a way to buy loyalty for him. And Um, it, it, it seems, however, that after the uh, after his uh, emails came out and after he was grilled in Congress by, I think, Rand Paul, uh, the tide is turning. Or am I mistaking this? Well, I, do, I, I don't think um, between what's in my book and what, you know, um, the increasingly inquisitive Republicans in the United States Senate, I don't think that Tony Fauci is going to be there in two years. Um, and he may go much faster than that, but it's not going to get rid of the system. You know, the system is in place. And, you know, getting rid of one guy will help. Because one of the things, the problems with having Tony Fauci in there is that everybody in the world is terrified of him. Oh, all of these people, I hear people all the time, all the time, and during my research of that book, again and again and again, I, people who are getting money from Tony Fauci, who are in the virology community, in the immunization community, you know, vaccine developers, etc., who say, we think he's corrupt, he's evil, he, but he's so vindictive and he's so powerful that I cannot publicly talk about him. And I think when he leaves, there is going to be a tsunami of revelations that come up from people who, who have hated him and been injured by him but, and have seen the, you know, the results of his conduct but have been unwilling to speak up until now because of the, um, you know, because of the power he wields. He and Gates and Farrar are... You know, they're, um, they really are a very, very powerful trio, and they control, like I said, 61% of the biomedical research on Earth is controlled by those three guys, and they support each other. You know, Jeremy Farrar was stepped in to lead the cover-up of the Wuhan lab leak. He was the one who was, you know, putting together all of these 
scientists who signed then you know the uh, the nature article in march and the lancet article in february and he was involved from day one and we now know that because we have the emails but do you think if fauci was gone do you think there would be like a hundred little fauci's popping up doing the same yeah, thing of course uh, you know the whole institutional culture is corrupt You can't survive at NIH if you criticize pharmaceutical companies. <laughs> oh, you know, Judy Mikovits and Frank Rossetti are just two of the names that you know of people who have, whose careers have been destroyed by not just Fauci, but by NIH, by the institutional pharma-dominated culture at NIH. Um, Bernice Eddy, probably one of the most important women scientists that our country has ever produced, one of the most awarded scientists in the United States history. She discovered the poliomyelitis virus. She was, um, she played uh, key roles in many of the great, you know, discoveries in NIH's history in the 60s, 50s and 60s. And she discovered that there was a monkey virus in the uh, polio vaccines that was highly carcinogenic, a virus called the simian virus 40, SV40. It was, and it was in 98 million polio vaccines that they were about to give to my generation. And she rang the alarm bells and said, you know, you're going to save a few people from polio, but you're going to give, you're going to kill 50 times that many people from cancer later on. And indeed, my generation has 10 times the soft tissue cancer as the, the previous generation that did not get that vaccine. Mm -hmm. And you can't say that we're, we're getting it from that vaccine, but they, that, that virus is such a potent carcinogen that today it's used in laboratories all over the world to induce tumors in rodents. So, you know, you give it to a guinea pig and they just sprout tumors. And that was given because they, part of it, because they shut up Ernie's Eddy, they literally moved her into the basement. They changed the locks on her laboratories. They took away her telephone, you know, and they ran her out of NIH. The same thing happened with John Anthony Morris, who was a for 40 years ran the flu program at NIH and then he came forward and said the flu vaccines are a hoax and not only that they're causing neurological damage and uh, you know in 1976 when they had the first fake pandemic um, and I'm not saying this pandemic is fake but I, in my book I talk about many pandemics that were fake you know, the 2006 uh, five avian flu pandemic, the uh, 2009 pandemic. And I think I saw Wolfgang Wodard yeah. on this call and he know, you know, he was the hero of that in exposing that pandemic, that, the, that fake pandemic to the world. And then the Zika pandemic was completely falsified, you know, by saying that Zika was causing microcephaly in babies. It was just a hoax. Um, and he got Fauci, uh, by faking that pandemic, got $2 billion from Congress to develop a vaccine, which, of course, you know, never materialized, of course, because it wasn't causing microcephaly. <laughs> and um, 
and and you know, and on and on. And this is what they do there. And he was the first one, John Anthony Morris was the first one to expose the fake pandemic in 76. And you know, the, the head of CDC ended up having to re resign because of that scandal. And that's when Fauci, that was his first fake pandemic because he had come in 68 and by then he was second in command. He was running the lab. He was second in command at NIAID and he was sitting in on the meetings when they met with Merck. And that was the first time that they gave immunity to vaccine companies, the first time ever. And it was his boss at that time that, you know, that made those concessions. Um, and uh, so they, they were all having these secret meetings with Maurice Hilleman of, at Merck. And Fauci was part of that whole thing. So they've been doing that for years and years. And John Anthony Morris exposed it in 76 and he lost his job because of it. He was completely exonerated after a decade of lawsuits, but it ruined his life. So anybody at NIH who threatens the pharmaceutical paradigm is, is not just career destroyed, but they are eaten alive. They are marginalized, vilified, gaslighted, um, and just obliterated. They are made examples to the rest of the virology community of what happens to you if you uh, if you challenge Tony Fauci or, or his pharma overlords. Well, this is what happened to Judy Mikovits too. Um, so what's going to happen um, is, uh, it, to us, looking at what's going on in the United States from here, uh, it looks as though this is going to be his last time around, his last turn, so to speak, because it, it looks as though even the mainstream, some, not all of them, of course, not, not the New York Times, but even some of the mainstream media are beginning to ask questions, probably in, in my view, at least, uh, due to some of the footage that we've seen on the mainstream media of, for example, Rand Paul grilling him and seeing him in a uh, almost, um, well, he was almost frantic. He was losing it. He was yelling at Rand Paul. Um, is it that people are beginning to see who he really is? I mean, you describe him as, you are a lawyer, uh, you describe him as a criminal. and. I would agree with that after reading what you wrote about him. Uh, is it that the public is finally coming to its senses as far as this man is concerned? Well, he's been in a, you know, I, one of my chapters in the book is about Teflon Tony, his capacity to, um, to have scandal after scandal who to continually fail upward throughout his career in terms of any public health metric and yet still have this, you know, adulation from the American media. And, and there's a bunch of ingredients that explain that, you know, uh, in our country is one of only two countries in the world where uh, pharmaceutical companies can do direct to consumer advertising of pharmaceutical drugs. And, and that has, as, so the pharmaceutical companies 
spend $9.6 billion a year on pharmaceutical advertising and promotion. And a lot of that ends up at CNN and, you know, Fox and ABC, NBC, CBS. They're dependent on those dollars. And, um, you know, and so it, it, they become really protectors of, of Anthony Fauci. And that's one of the things, that's one of the many, many dynamics ingredients to that dynamic of why he is so bulletproof. You think about this. The United States had the worst outcomes, the highest body counts on earth during the pandemic. We have 4.2% of the world's population and we had 14.5% of the deaths. We had more deaths than any other country. We, our death rates were like, uh, I think, and, and, and I need to check this, but they're close, you know, they've, they've isolated, so I don't have the exact number now, but about 1,800 deaths per million population. You go to African countries like Tanzania, um, and it's double digits, maybe 50, 60 deaths per million. And we had one of the highest death count by almost any metric on earth. Why is Tony Fauci still in there? He did the inverse of what anybody would do if they wanted to stop a pandemic. He did not give us a, a medical response to a medical crisis. He gave us a militarized response and a monetized response. He did not, you know, they were not, Look, we know what to do, what you should have done. First of all, Tony Fauci should have appeared on TV and said what, what Franklin Roosevelt said to us, the only thing to, that we have to fear is fear itself. Do not be scared. We are going to handle this. And then he should have told us, we know that coronaviruses attack people who are low in vitamin D and low in vitamin and, and zinc. Everybody, here's the levels you should take. Here's what you should be doing. Uh, we know that it's going to attack people who are up obese. So Americans, you need to lose weight. You need to get outside. You need to get sunshine. And you need to avoid foods with chemical residues. You need to avoid sugar drinks. And then it, instead of doing that, he went out and got the surfers who are in the sunshine in a place where coronavirus does not spread, ordered them off the beach into their houses. We know that this, from the beginning, from what we were seeing in Italy and elsewhere, this is a virus that spreads indoors. It doesn't spread outdoors. So why did they lock the entire population indoors? In throughout human history, we have known that you quarantine the sick and you don't quarantine the healthy. In China, they killed, they killed this pandemic by April. China had a two-month pandemic, and it was gone. How did they do it? Very aggressively, identifying sick people and then quarantining them and treating them. By the beginning of April, China had published in Mandarin and other Chinese languages, medical protocols. Here's how you treat somebody 
who has a positive test for coronavirus. You give them chloroquine, which is, of course, the cousin to hydroxychloroquine. You give them uh, antibiotics. You give them anti-inflammatories. You give them steroids. And then a whole bunch of Chinese herbs that contain kerosene, which facilitates the delivery of zinc to the cells, vitamin D, and all the things we know he should have been doing. Tony Fauci, to this day, has not published a protocol for treating early treatment. Instead, the people who come forward and say, hey, I got something that works here, you know, with, with ivermectin or hydroxychloroquine, those people are punished. They're silenced, they're vilified, they're censored, they're de-licensed if they're doctors. Their careers are destroyed for doing early treatment. The Chinese treated people and they found out what we find out. If you treat people early, 80% of them don't go to the hospital. What did Tony Fauci do? He told people, if you get a positive test, don't isolate, don't, don't you know, go to a quarantine facility and get treated. In fact, don't get treated at all. Go home to spread the disease to your family and don't take any treatment until you get so sick that you can't breathe. Then we bring you to the hospital and we give you two things that are gonna kill you, remdesivir and intubation. Two things we know are gonna kill you. Remdesivir was a drug that was developed by Gilead and Fauci and Gates. And in 2019, okay, December of 2019, it was, this is, you know, a month before he recommends it for, for uh, coronavirus, it's it's the subject of a of a study of an Ebola clinical trial. So they're treating people with Ebola in Africa, six African countries. Ebola kills half the people who get it, and the safety monitoring board stepped in and pulled it from the study and said this drug is too dangerous to give to Ebola victims, okay? It's too dangerous to kill to one of them, to give to one of the most, the deadliest disease in, in the world. And yet we're giving it to coronavirus. And you know how it kills you? It kills you by shutting down your kidneys and shutting down your lungs, mm -hmm. the same way that COVID kills you. So those doctors in New York who were killing all those patients, they don't know whether it was the remdesivir that was killing them or the COVID. And what happens when you tell somebody to go home and sit there till they get sick? It's absolutely savage, barbaric medical response. When they do get sick and come back to the hospital, every one of those million people who, who went to the hospital was a super spreader event because they're infecting their families, they're infecting the ambulance driver, they're infecting the Uber driver, they're infecting everybody they see. So it was like exactly the inverse of everything we should have been doing, we did. We And here's the other thing that he should have done. Instead of using his relationships with the social media to shut down knowledge about early treatment. He should have said to the social media companies, we need to create a grid, a communications grid to hook up 
to every one of the 11 million doctors in the world who are fighting coronavirus on the front lines. We need them to report what they're doing, to tell us what they think works, to talk about their experience, and, and develop a methodology for analytics, for, for measuring all the credibility of all those reports, and then fine-tuning a protocol day-to-day -day of finding all of the solutions that are working in Argentina and Tanzania and Kenya and Bangladesh and Switzerland and Italy and talking to all of these doctors who are, you know, who care about the patients, who are figuring out innovative ways to treat these patients and reducing deaths and reducing hospitalizations and giving them metrics to measure the effectiveness of their interventions and then and then reporting it all back and developing in a systematic way very quickly knowledge of, of the repurposed medications that seem to be working abroad and giving really honest data to all of the doctors who are on the front line in this country and the rest of the world. And that's the way that, that's the way you handle a modern pandemic. But that's not what they did. What they did is they were focusing on social control, on using the pandemic as an excuse for imposing totalitarian controls, of telling people not to talk, shutting down any dissent about the government, of obliterating constitutional rights, religious rights, property rights, jury trials, all the things that due process, all the things they took away from us. Instead of practicing medicine, they use this event to, as a coup d'etat against constitutional governance, human rights, and democracy across the globe. I got to go. I got another podcast I got to go to. That's all right. And One piece of information that may be new for you, uh, and, and of course, we'll let you go. Um, Today, we spoke to a whistleblower who tells us that there were cases of COVID in the United States starting in July of 2019, and that there was a virtual ban, probably issued by Fauci, on all of these alternative methods of treatment. We're going to look deeper into this, of course. Yeah, I mean, I think, like, you know, from the data that I've seen, and I know there's contrary data, but um, and there's you know they have these uh, these tests where they're apparently find, finding it early in sewage treatment plans. But I I think that they've, in my view right now the best bet is that coronavirus escaped around September 12th, um, and there's a lot of indicia evidence of that. You know the the, the aerial photographs of the parking lots filling up the chatter on the internet, the, the, the hospitalization of people from the Wuhan lab, the Chinese government, midnight, on midnight that night, the Chinese government went into the Wuhan lab and removed 22,000 uh, coronavirus samples. They scrubbed the internet of, you know, Tony Fauci and all of these gain of function studies. And there was a tremendous amount of suspicious activity that happened on September 12th. And then you had the World Games immediately after that, military, military games. There was a lot of uh, indicia that the Chinese government at that point was aware that it was spreading. They blocked certain roads. There, were, there was a lot of chatter. There was a lot of hospital activity. So 
My guess at this point is that it probably happened in September 12th, but of course, you know, nobody knows. What if it really started in the U.S. and then through the military games, it was more or less exported to uh, China? We'll have to look deeper into this. <laughs> exactly. that, is, that is exactly the kind of speculation I don't engage in. Yeah, well, this is what we heard from a whistleblower. We're going to have to take a deeper look into this. Okay. Well, thank you very much for taking the time. We're uh, all going to read that book. Um, all of the viewers will read that book because it's like a, it's written like a crime story. And that's what it is, really. Thank you. Thank you, Ryan. Thank you thank very you. much. See you later. Have a great day. Thank you. Mm -hmm. So, uh, Klaus, uh, okay, Klaus and Thorsten, we've really heard that from a whistleblower. Mid-2019 already, Corona is starting in the U.S. And then the military world games came in that he has just talked about. And then it suddenly popped up a new in Wuhan. Of course, they thought it came from her own lab. We don't know what really happened. But we know that at several places worldwide with these gain-of-function experiments that were played around with. So we have to see what's behind this, really. But the information, uh, of course, he makes sure not to drift into speculation, but it's a plausible information from my point of view. So let's come back to a couple of questions that we need to answer. One of that being um, the... Uh, Christina Bent from Süddeutsche Zeitung says she's got evidence for the effectiveness of measles vaccines uh, that you quote in your book uh, could be eradicated. I think you write that in your book, don't you? You're muted. Now you can hear us, right? Yes, yes, we mentioned it. That's from the year 2015. With this one boy who died in Berlin at the time uh, that went through the media then. And in this context, uh, we established contact with Christina Bernd of Süddeutsche Zeitung, who is interesting really because she now appears in all sorts of talk shows in the context of Corona. She's a kind of, from my point of view, uh, a sort of uh, a journalistic Lauterbach, uh, i.e. a person who uh, knows all about corona and could be an, uh, a spokesperson of the pharmaceutical industry, basically. So we uh, talked to her, and it was interesting to see um, what's happening there and how thin the information base of the journalist is. She said that it hasn't been covered in Western Germany, but in the GDR and the number of measles starts to drop significantly with the start of vaccinations in 76 and uh, 67. Is that true? Well, not from our point of view. Uh, for one thing, it's not legitimate uh, to evaluate the efficiency, uh, efficacy of a vaccination to look at the case numbers. Uh, definitely uh, the death rates linked to uh, the disease or the cases, the, the severe cases, 
if we didn't have those, then you, there wouldn't be any need for vaccinations. If everybody just gets a, a light flu and then it's all blows by, then you don't need the vaccination. The vaccination is primarily designed to um, prevent the severe cases and deaths. So the graphs that we show are from a book by Gerhard Buchwald, a, a physician who wrote a book um, called Vaccination, the Fear Business. And I'll show you the, the, the graph. Um, it's about measles again. Can you close, home please? it a bit more? And here you can see all the data, um, the data on all the different diseases, diphtheria, tuberculosis, etc. They all look similarly. And he uh, didn't concoct that. That's data from the official, uh, from the office of uh, federal office of statistics in Germany, and um, oh, the Koch Institute also provides these. Uh, 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 we, uh, they were confronted with these data, and they couldn't really say much about this. Uh, well, the fact is, however, that this um, Dr. Buchwald says, there's a quote from the book. He says that the vaccination campaigns, um, particularly because of the uh, severe uh, um, encephalitis reactions, um, uh, were the trigger. And if the uh, uh, complications are reduced. It's, it's the severe cases, of course, that often uh, end uh, lethally. And this is data from the uh, GDR, of course. And uh, the question is, how reliable are these? Uh, is this data? An um, um, inquest by uh, the German parliament the, uh, concluded that the statisticians in um, East Germany were um, a gang of professional fakers who used um, statistics for political purposes, for propaganda purposes, uh, showing that they eradicated measles um, with the vaccination. So we know that the uh, data is unreliable. We consulted or we asked uh, Christina Bernd about her opinion on this. She never answered. Another objection is that the figures uh, from the US on the number of cases and the death rates uh, in uh, measles, in the context of measles, um, looks the same that um, both had dramatically declined before vaccination started. So are usually uh, figures on mortality uh, with um, uh, diseases. And for diphtheria, we also have numbers of cases. Just a moment, please. I can show you uh, the graph indicating the case numbers, where is this graph now? Is that the one uh, of 1906? You see the number of deaths here. That's diphtheria. Diphtheria is a disease of the bad times, and that's what we see here uh, in the times of war that had an extreme peak and uh, when the population was better off, the 
um, infection goes back. And this is something that holds true for all infectious diseases. So I always say, if you take the trouble to read that book, then you will be skeptical as far as vaccinations are concerned, because it is quite clearly visible that the drop of um, the uh, mortality preceded the vaccination campaigns. Uh, vaccination is still very positively seen. Many people do it, and it's a plausible idea. And you can well imagine that a disease, if you have a an alternated version of it, that um, it is not as severe uh, because the antibodies are developed and then you're protected against it. But especially with measles, it's a problem. If, if you have got them, you are immune lifelong and um, the uh, pregnant women protect their babies as well. And if you do the vaccinations, it's not as sure. So it should be repeated every 10 years. And if you've seen how uh, the mortality dropped from measles, I think you can be safe to say that the vaccination did not take any uh, part in this, but the better conditions of life led to the result. And in this context, you have to make clear that people who stand up and say, like our journalists, and say the unvaccinated person is uh, antisocial, the opposite is the case. The pharma uh, industry is the antisocial body in this, who steps on to the dropping infectious development and the money goes into a few pockets and the general population pays it, pays for it. So that is antisocial in the best sense of the word. Are there any studies, placebo-controlled studies, concerning vaccinations? Um, has this been looked into with measles or polio or something like that? Well, not, no. There's no good placebo-controlled studies. because Where they were done, and I'm only aware of the two placebo studies, which is tuberculosis that uh, I've mentioned in India, and another one which was done from a pneumococcus knock uh, um, a vaccine in Uganda with the same result that the uh, vaccinated population had more pneumonia than the non-vaccinated population. So does, that doesn't explain the efficacy very well. And in our <clears throat> book, we mentioned a third um, study from 2012 about uh, flu vaccines, a placebo-controlled study, but the uh, group with the vaccination had a much worse turnout with uh, 600, 604 uh, respiratory um, diseases. And there were some studies that uh, claimed to have a placebo uh, group, uh, but that had no placebo at all, where uh, there's a, um, a virus, Zingardazil, um, against um, Um, cervical cancer. So that's not real uh, placebo. It's got all the adjuvants that often cause the severe side effects. Anybody, well, if you 
um, are critical of this, uh, you can verify any of our uh, statements. Anybody can try to inquire about uh, any placebo-controlled uh, vaccination study with uh, true placebos that uh, prove that uh, the vaccine did uh, outperform the placebo. And if you get it from RKI, then please forward this to us. We couldn't find any, and I don't know of any such studies. Uh, just by way of conclusion, Christina Bernd, who came along with these uh, case numbers, uh, most data by the uh, um, Federal Statistics Office uh, uh, give these uh, death uh, numbers, uh, but for diphtheria, we don't only have the uh, numbers of uh, deaths, but also statistical data on uh, case numbers. But And here it uh, comes out that they started uh, um, vaccinating uh, uh, in uh, 1925, and uh, the numbers increased until the end of the Second World War, uh, up to 250,000 cases a year. And then it dropped, even though there was hardly any vaccination. So that's uh, quite contrary to what you would expect. So that uh, shows that even if you take a look at the case numbers, the vaccination doesn't make sense. The, what has been said many times for the sense of vaccination is the Spanish flu. Doesn't that show the potential risk of viruses in these considerable death rates of Spanish flu at the end of this World War One? I've seen this Spiegel online says uh, talks about 20 to 50 million deaths, Tiger Spiegel, which is uh, even more, um, 50 to 100 million. Uh, especially the world, rapid worldwide spread made that virus so dangerous, as they say. And this is also seen in a combination with Corona. What does that mean? Is that really been the case? Are these figures wrong? Well, well, the Spanish <clears throat> flu happened at a time when you can easily uh, imagine um, problems with uh, with the pandemic. Uh, right after the First World War, uh, the immune systems were um, very uh, much under attack. And then you can imagine that uh, flu waves uh, might kill people, but uh, doctors um, were... Um, uh, taking action. They vaccinated uh, not against viruses because um, antiviral vaccines weren't known, but uh, against typhoid fever, etc. And uh, what you can say about vaccinations today is that they're probably more um, acceptable than back then, because back then um, one could observe that the people who were vaccinated were the ones to die and those who weren't vaccinated tended to survive the disaster. Maybe the producers um could play the video that we've uh, given to them as we're looking at vaccinations and effects of the vaccination at the time. It's a, uh, I think, German TV. 1,200 infected people are brought to the uh, camps and uh, there is no positive result. Every tenth person dies because of the experiments and not the disease. So there was an uh, every uh, 
to do any experiment in uh, with uh, monkeys would have been ten times expensive as expensive as uh, before. Koch's uh, fame is uh, unbroken. Many schools bear his name. One of the institutes bears his names against. Uh, even at the time, these errands were immoral. And any any moral ideas that you'd have at the time, it would have been unthinkable to do these experiments in German or in any European population. Well. But that shows how unscrupulous uh, the approach was. And it shows that it wasn't unlikely that at the end of the First World War, when the Spanish flu um, happened, uh, that there was a lot of vaccination going on then. There were um, eyewitness reports as well that we quote in our book who clearly say um, that there were lots of vaccinations going on and that alternative health centers such as Kellogg uh, or others who tried to treat people uh, from um, a less symptomatic uh, angle, uh, trying to, uh, uh, that, that their patients didn't die off. But vaccination is only one point. Um, at the end of the First World War, you can imagine it's no coincidence uh, that so many people died then, uh, not in 1925 or 1910 or 1976. But it was in a time when people were uh, under massive we have to take a critical uh, look at them, but they do have their effect efficacy and they weren't available at the time. And at the time, all sorts of preparations were uh, experimented with heroin or God knows what. Uh, I think numerous factors come into play here that even if you believe that there was a bad virus going out uh, around there, we must not forget about these factors. It's an unrealistic view um, of things that there's only one factor. Um, as uh, Robert F. Kennedy Jr. said earlier, vitamin D and uh, nutrition. And there are so many factors that can damage your health and can make you um, ill, can kill you all the way down to medication. So you always have to uh, look into all directions. It's very uh, obvious, really. If you look at the historic figures, that always when the the society is about doing bad, infectious diseases can spread. We have this if there's any disasters, natural disasters, and the portable water supply breaks down then there are means for infectious diseases to spread. Uh, even after the times of the ward, we are not dying of infectious diseases. We die on overweight, cardiac diseases or cancer. Uh, pneumonia or infectious diseases uh, are not existent anymore. And it's a single digit figure. And now we are told that we are in a pandemic which is caused by the uh, mass testing. 
it would be over in a minute if you'd stopped testing and the um, clinical uh, pictures will be the same with a pneumonia every here and there. I see this very rarely this year as well, very, very rarely. And the video that we just watched, uh, did I see that right? That's Robert Koch, i.e. Um, uh, the person who um, gave his name for this uh, to this institute um, who uh, did these unethical experiments in Africa, right? Robert Koch, if we look at him, he was... Well, he was a beacon of light because he um, discovered the... Uh, tuberculosis bacterium um, and uh, he um, formulated the uh, Koch postulates. They should still be applied today, um, but they're not. And uh, no new postulates are created. So uh, you need to know the presence of a virus doesn't mean that the disease uh, <clears throat> that you're dealing with the symptoms are caused by the virus. If you have uh, problems breathing with a positive corona test, that doesn't mean that uh, this is due to the coronavirus. You can have all sorts of things, uh, 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 lung em uh, embolic um, um, pneumonia, all sorts of things. I had to smirk when I saw an interview with, I think it was Ms. Meischberger, a TV host in uh, Germany, who had a virologist and said, and you uh, sacrificed yourself uh, treating um, patients and uh, uh, you got it yourself and he uh, described his um, disease and he said himself that it was uh, quite atypical corona um, uh, case. He had strong pain and that told me he is describing a uh, pneumococci um, pneumonia and is selling it. And he probably believes it himself because the test was positive. He sells it as a atypical case of a corona infection. Well, this fixation on the test is a problem. And Anthony Fauci uh, did it with the HIV um, story. And uh, BSE was only a test. Um, disease that never arrived in on the continent in uh, Europe um, uh, clinically only with a test and the same happened with HIV no critical uh, disease was found in the world um, through the test uh, AIDS uh, uh, turned up wherever HIV was introduced tuberculosis etc became AIDS uh, if you had a positive test uh, for HIV and we have the same thing with the corona uh, story again it's not a new a uh, disease uh, that came from China, uh, pneumonia is nothing unusual. The unusual thing is only that they immediately knew what it was and globally applied the same test, thus getting uh, this uh, pandemic um, globally. So the, the tests uh, disease, not the clinical disease, so I couldn't observe any new uh, clinical um, symptoms. Um, they were all the same as in the past. And uh, intensive care 
physicians uh, have been quoted um, in uh, German, the German Medical Journal. They say that clinically uh, we can't make a distinction between corona and uh, pneumonia. It gives you uh, joint pains, uh, breathing difficulties, neurologically it uh, can't be distinguished, chemically it can't be uh, distinguished uh, in the lab. We can't distinguish it from a flu, sorry, not a pneumonia, from a flu. And um, if you observe that while uh, corona arose, uh, flu disappeared, you kind of wonder what happened? Did people test differently all of a sudden and thus concoct this um, epidemic into the world? And with the uh, influenza vaccination, they always scare the uh, living daylights out of you um, come fall and they're doing it again now please get the influenza um, uh, vaccination influenza is not the risk or the threat that it's always portrayed to be and the figures are grotesque just imagine the robert uh, koch institute uh, estimates it very generously and the estimates are based on a subtraction of the um, deaths in summer uh, deducted, being deducted from the deaths in winter. That leads twenty to 30,000 unexplained deaths, and they declared influenza deaths. And then they create some uh, pressure um, to put the fear of the Lord into people, so they get the influenza It's as, uh, it's as simple as that. So influenza deaths uh, is really reportable, so there are figures, and there are um, um, three-digit figures. Merrill Ness told me that as well in one of the Zooms with Kennedy's people. And Dr. Merrill Ness told me exactly the same thing. Influenza figures are much too high because of that simple calculation method. Yeah, it's just estimated. They're simply generously estimated. That's absurd. Well, uh, there are really figures available because it's a reportable disease. But they're not published. You can actually see them in the bulletin of the Rothkoch Institute. Um, and just like you can see that influenza uh, went away and corona arose, um, this can only be an, a test result because this, uh, clinically you can't distinguish them. Well, so that means people who've got rhinoviruses or anything else that may be in the respiratory section are not uh, covered. I couldn't tell whether they're reportable. But death by influenza is reportable, and there are figures available, and there's three-digit figures there. Well, it is directly plausible also to me. If you only look for corona, you'll only find corona. If you do a differential diagnosis, you'll probably find some else, uh, more things besides that. Okay, we've got a couple of questions to go through. Uh, briefly on the Spanish flu again, I think what uh, also speaks against a viral epidemic is the um, infection um, experiments that they did at the time and they never worked. So I would like to read out a, a short um, paragraph. It's from a, a book by a well-known um, science journalist Gina Colata is a name uh, from the New York Times. So it's not just somebody you could call a um, um, conspiracy theorist. It's a really established journalist, and there was an infection experiment uh, from uh, September 1918 
where 62 sailors were taken and and they were in prison um, for some uh, uh, contraventions and um, they were uh, pardoned uh, for the price of participating in this experiment. It's a bit of a, a bizarre experiment, but it's uh, quite um, easy to understand. The physicians collected the secretion from uh, the noses of dying men and sprayed it into uh, the noses and eyes of uh, the uh, participants in the experiment. In one case, they uh, took the mucus tissue from um, the septum of a dead person and put it uh, on the septum of a testee in an attempt to assimilate the natural way of um, infection. Uh, they took the physicians took ten um, people participating in the uh, experiment to a hospital where. Um, uh, ill people were dying, uh, lying in bed, and the ten people tested, being tested were instructed to bend over the dying people and to uh, inhale their uh, breath uh, and to discuss them with uh, for five minutes to ensure that um, uh, there would be transmission. The dying people had to uh, exhale strongly and the uh, participants had to inhale the breath and the dying people had to cough into the face of the people taking uh, place in the um, experiment. This was designed to make sure that the uh, uh, flu would be transmitted. Not a single person in the experiment fell ill. And there are other um, studies and I found an article recently. Well, the reason for that being probably that it's only asymptomatic. They were all symptomatic, so that's why it didn't work. That's That must be it, yeah. Well, if I can say something else about the Spanish flu, which um, contradicts a virus infection is the strange spreading. There was a journalist, Hans Sarsin, whom um, has the honor of having this, having researched this. Normally, you assume that a plague spreads from a single point uh, and goes to everywhere from then. And now it's not clear whether this was moved from the Europe to the US or from the US to Europe. That is unclear. There was one source that says in February 2019, 18, it started in San Sebastian. Or that, that's where it actually happened, where it uh, appeared for the first time and at the same time in New York City. So, but these two places are so far apart that uh, as, as anything else in the world at the time, 2018, it was in Kansas, in April 2018 in Paris, in May in Madrid, and then in Germany and China, and England and the Netherlands. So that's the first wave, so to say, and that is inexplicable. 
with uh, what you normally de de uh, define a virus that it doesn't it doesn't pop up at uh, different places in the world at the same time and the second wave is the same the so-called second wave started in summer autumn 2018 uh, 1918 uh, south north india and latin america and caribbean uh, so these are the spreads that doesn't correspond to the virus thesis and it's interesting to see what how did that term come about why is it called spanish flu and that is an interesting word because you think it is a virus if uh, you put the word flu to it but there is no virus to it and spanish Spanish. It's called Spanish because the fact is many millions of people really did die and that was so bad that most of the countries had prohibited to talk about it except Spain. Spain reported about it and that is why it uh, coined the term Spanish flu. Interesting. Well, we have another few questions here. Let's um, speed up a bit. What about the uh, antibody um, titer? The so-called antibody titer is a measure of the effectiveness of a vaccine. Why should this not be reliable? Maybe uh, because it uh, responds to uh, natural immunity, or how come? Well, the anticompetitor is reliable. Well, well, at the end of the day, it's a uh, the, the best means is a placebo-controlled study, but it's not available. Well, antibody is of course better. Uh, I did this uh, test in patients a couple of times, who went through the disease, and they have antibodies. They have them after a year while the vaccine antibodies um, are said to be used up. Uh, I checked that as well, and they were gone after half a year or three quarters of a year. So that seems to be the case here, that the natural antibodies are better than the ones that are developed after the vaccination. Well, that answers the next question as well. Maybe it's important to note that you measure it, but there's no research showing that if there's a high antibody titer, that this is a health benefit to you. That would be crucial that there is a study to show that. And we quote different sources as well, uh, traditional sources that confirm this. There's the... Uh, Dr. Ulrich Heinecke, um, who is member of the uh, STIKO, the Vaccination Commission in Germany, and he writes a handbook saying it's not sensible to do TETA and blood testing um, to f check the effectiveness. It's not possible to find if there is any protection due to by the vaccination, and it is too expensive. And then we've got the Epidemiologic bulletin from the what what? So what's the right way to determine immunity? 
from my point of view, a placebo-controlled study and then show uh, or comparable comparative studies. There are comparative studies between vaccinated and non-vaccinated people, but a placebo-controlled study, they're not done anymore because it is said this is not ethical, because it is said a vaccine or, or drug, any drug, uh, AIDS, cancer, whatever, uh, it said we don't do this placebo uh, research studies because it is irresponsible not to give the uh, drug to someone and uh, it's a bit of a uh, loophole here because the proof uh, is not there afterwards um, if we look at hiv with act it was was it a, f a hoax or it wasn't done properly so Klaus said so. Well, they were interrupted too early. They were cut short. After four months, um, they were cut short. And then you uh, initiate lifelong uh, chemotherapy. Well, that doesn't make sense. And um, the damage only uh, came to four um, years after. With ACT, that's another um, um, thing. Uh, that Fauci was responsible for. He launched ACT to market, and then four years later, it was found that the more ACT um, people take, the higher their mortality. But that was already uh, too late for a whole generation of patients. That was the time when all uh, the artists died: Freddie Mercury, Arthur Ashe, um, and all those people. They all died in the 90s, uh, late 80s, early 90s. And you can see a peak in epidemiological uh, history here of AIDS um, diseases. Uh, 91 was a peak, and that was an ACT um, uh, problem. It was over therapy with this uh, medication. And Fauci was able to wiggle his way out of this uh, very, um, just barely. This did become uh, obvious, and the homosexual uh, community um, became um, alerted and they complained, Fauci, you killed our friends. And he said, well, they would have died much earlier without the uh, medication and that uh, saved them. So that's the problem with vaccinations, um, where we have a, a placebo-controlled study. And I only know these two examples. The result was that the vaccinated population had more um, uh, deaths than uh, with the uh, than the unvaccinated, and that doesn't happen with Corona. On the contrary, uh, a lot of uh, pressure is being built up so that there can be no control group. Maybe that's the background. Well, not done anymore. From the original research, all the placebo group um, is uh, by now fully vaccinated. Right, you can't do anything. So basically, that answers the next question. Once you are vaccinated against the disease, aren't you then well protected against it? Well, as it's not the case in Corona, as we see, and vaccinated people are in a better health situation than unvaccinated people. Also, not very much, is it? Well, we, we don't have any true comparison. My personal observation say no. Um, that, that, that people are, are faring better uh, if they have fewer vaccinations with the children. It's uh, uh, normal that they have a chronical um, 
diseases. Um, we didn't have that when we were children. I know a number of families who uh, don't have their children vaccinated and their children have had very few problems with infectious diseases. They tend to be uh, very mild. Well, uh, the ACT thing and HIV, that's what uh, Robert F. Kennedy Jr. talks about in his new book, just as an information. Very interesting to read. He also names 64 studies which are not placebo controlled and are not done. So these are not done anymore for any of the vaccines he sh that showed that vaccinating is better than not vaccinating or doing nothing. And there are comparative studies. And here there are from the research by Robert, there is more than 60 studies that all show that the unvaccinated people are better off than the vaccinated people. And uh, we list quite a few of these as well. Uh, I've, even the Robert Koch Institute, I asked them whether there is, they can name a study where the vaccinated people are better off than the unvaccinated, and even the Robert Koch Institute couldn't name any. Well, I'm familiar with this. Uh, one of the participants uh, in the CHD Zooms is Greg Glazer, a colleague, a barrister as well, who uh, a lawyer, who pointed out these 62 studies. The people who haven't been vaccinated usually don't have any problems. It's usually the people who have been vaccinated who face all sorts of complications. What about polio? That is the top example that the uh, immunologist uh, Jonas Edward Salk from Pittsburgh um, um, developed a uh, highly effective uh, vaccination against poliomyelitis uh, available since 1955. And, um, RKA writes on its website that the elimination of the, this disease is a declared and achievable goal of national international health policy for polymyelitis. This goal has already been achieved in Europe and elsewhere. But again, that, that happened before the uh, start of the vaccination campaign, right? Well, um, when uh, this was started, and they wanted to integrate this. Polio is really the example for orthodox medicine that has been uh, said when uh, Torsten said he wanted to put that in a book. I said no, and uh, Torsten found out that it's not a virus, in fact, a disease, but a toxic disease. And I said, no, we leave that out. But then I started to look into the topic myself. I always thought polio is a very specific, typical paralyzation disease. And then I looked in my textbooks, um, which are published by Fauci, some of them, that the paralyses of polio are not specific, but depend on toxic uh, effects and can be differentiated from these cause by insecticides, heavy metals, DDT, organophosphates, for example. And when I had read that, I thought, well, maybe it was the same thing. And then Torsten had gone on with this research and looked for the crucial piece of work in the sense of the post, uh, the Cox postulates. Um, with that virus in the animal experiment 
creating polio and that work has not been found yet. Instead, the uh, infection goes back to, the inspections go back to Einstein and much earlier and from extracts uh, from people dying or sick of polio were uh, incubation um, and put it into the uh, implanted or uh, drilled into the brain and as the people got uh, paralyzations uh, got encephalitis saying it's a transferable disease but as we know it's an acute allergic encephalitis if you inject um, uh, protein into someone's brain there is an immunologic reaction so you don't need a virus for that and the crucial work is not there if somebody finds it we're happy to take it and withdraw what we say instead there is great correlation of polio uh, with ddt and ddt is a nervous toxin but people didn't know that in the beginning when they started to use it so it was thrown on the fields and the children uh, were sprayed to kill lice and so on and what they didn't know at the time is that it has a long uh, a great cumulative effect uh, it is found in the um, fat tissue uh, especially in the marrow of the backbone and what convinced me that this is a parallel so it's an intoxication issue it was the fact that with um, bovine uh, paralysis which is in veterinary medicine which is a similar effect uh, depends on the high level of DDT in the milk of the cows and then I said, okay, that could be the same case with human beings. And a large part, maybe there are viruses that create paralysis, but the correlation, as we show in our book, uh, with DTT was um, quite uh, significant with polio epidemics. And that was uh, over with and then the vaccination came there was another Nobel prize and it was done and there was a campaign uh, swallow uh, the vaccine and uh, things took its way uh, polio was done away with not because of the vaccination but because uh, ddt is a toxic substance and that was banned uh, there's also a parallel with bse uh, we also had an intoxication story there and just to mention this it was these uh, mad cows in the mad cow disease with neurologic problems and before that there was a government declare decreed that the farmers should uh, rub uh, phosphamide on their cows. It was an organic phosphate used as an insecticide in order to treat the um, cows who um, had suffered with a fly uh, and that uh, fly put its eggs into the cow's uh, skin and that reduced the milk. and. Um, after that, they increased the dose 
and it was the wobble fly and then all that bse story took its course that it's orally uh, transferable the idea that was by the scrapey the food spread it in the uh, cattle and another uh, Nobel Prize, but the intoxic intoxication hypothesis also did it uh, into the um, committee and um, it was only uh, people of the government and the company there and uh, of course for them uh, it would have been bad if the intoxication hypothesis uh, would have played a role but you can read that from the textbooks it's not all the textbook that organophosphates uh, are uh, toxic for uh, humans and uh, animals and lead to toxic um, symptoms and moving from the back to the backbone it goes there by diffusion so it's very well thinkable that this caused it and it was reduced after that and the bse cases dropped interestingly enough uh, it was only in Switzerland, Great Britain and Northern Ireland where these insecticides were used and the animal food which was uh, given the cause has been exported in tons to America and the nearest and BSE happened nowhere. Uh, so, uh, toxicologically, timely, and uh, epidemiologically that uh, shows a different story. Maybe I can add to that, uh, um, in the context of polio, uh, maybe you can see it here, that's an image from our uh, book, I don't know if you can see it well, it shows the madness, this is a picture of a beach where uh, children are sprayed with DDT, and that's what happened everywhere uh, at home um, the walls uh, the wallpaper everything was sprayed with ddt um, to kingdom come you can't imagine it anymore because um, it's uh, considered to be one of the uh, dirty dozen um, it's long since been banned and this photo is from an article of the online magazine grist even uh, after 40 years uh, of DDT, um, it's linked to breast cancer. So even 40 years after that, um, uh, after application of DDT, it still uh, causes uh, breast cancer. And it's interesting to see what is being written here on this truck that you can see here. It says, DDT, a strong insecticide, harmless to people, it says. And the article says DDT between the 1940s and 70s was used so much in the US that everybody was exposed to the uh, poison during this period. The health risks involved were so much, uh, so poorly understood, or as some say, overlooked, that it was sprayed directly onto uh, playing children and then it moves on to uh, cancer and i think the problem in ddt is the uh a long-term effect it's the uh time when it uh, gathers and collects in food and uh 
breast milk and gets uh, to doses that can be toxic. So it's different with organoplastic. Uh, they have a short uh, infection time, so um, it kills the insects on the grain. But uh, if you uh, look at it later on, it is gone. You can see another graph here. This data is from with this page. Can you see it well enough now? This way? Uh, there's two graphs. Uh, one is uh, DDT and polio cases, and on the other page of different pesticides and polio. So you can see the parallel. The data is from a US journalist. Jim West is his name. Um, I think we should mention him. Um, contrary to the vaccination, uh, beginning of the 1950s, uh, the number of polio cases decreased, um, but the vaccination only came around 1955. And if I don't know if we have the time, this vaccination is reminiscent of today. I don't need to tell you. It's a huge hype. The, the vaccination is um, the uh, savior of all of us, and that was the case back then, and uh, the then President Eisenhower um, awarded the Congressional Medal to uh, Salk, um, and the church bells across the country rang, and everybody joined the Jubilee, and the Manchester Guardian on 16th of April wrote, only the overthrow of the communist regime of the Soviet Union should be a a uh, similar trigger of uh, jubilation in the hearts of Americans as the um, indication last Sunday that the 166-year war um, against polymyelitis is over. But the jubilation was very short-lived because many uh, deaths arose only among those uh, who had received the vaccination. And what's also interesting is that polio, up until the 1940s of the 20th uh, century, only occurred in the industrialized countries. It was a uh, purely uh, uh, a disease purely of the industrialized countries, because these toxic um, uh, toxins, DDT, etc., were only applied in the industrialized countries. And the first country where, the first third world country where this. Uh, polio occurred was the Philippines, and that happened in the 1940s, but that's where the Americans were quite active and also spread a lot of DDT around as well. So the parallels, um, the fact that this is a toxicological disease. Epidemiologically, that fits very nicely into the picture. What I find vexing here is if, if your thesis is right, that it was only an, an intoxication, then how did they manage to develop the a vaccine? On what basis? Because there's no viral sequence or whatever. There was an enterovirus that was found, and that was called poliovirus, or maybe it was a retrovirus called HIV, so that everybody knows what it does. And interestingly enough, that virus only creates polio in 1% of the cases. It's very rare. 
Well, then I don't know if that is really true, then this is really uh, infuriating. It's unbelievable. Well, the whole system has been rolling for quite a while. There's another couple of questions we'd like to ask. Getting back to the measles, in uh, there's um, more than 1,000 page compendium of vaccines, probably the most important publication for vaccination experts. If you look there for the medical historical sources for the currently valid doctrine on measles, you're appointed to a contagion experiment from 1911. Does this support the official measles theory? Can we take this as a justification for having a, um, a, a vaccination mandate for measles, or what happened there? Well, they did contamination experiments with uh, apparently didn't work first so they took uh, rhesus monkeys instead nine of them and all from them they injected blood of humans who had measles but not all of them, not all of them got sick i think only three well, four of the nine monkeys got sick, which is which is the goal was to create uh, fiber and me and uh, uh, raspberries, and uh, that didn't really take place. And also, like with the polio experiments uh, from Nachsteiner and others at the early 20th century one should have put it into a spray and spray it at them uh, that's normally how contamination happens by coughing at people or touching people but not by ejecting it uh, that's uh, that um, uh, you can bypass a large part of the immune system that way if you inoculate it you um, bypass even more <coughs> And the problem, of course, is, which we still do have, um, these tests were done in 1911, we're over 100 years after that, and there's still no uh, control experiments. And that is a very central problem, and that was the case at the time. And of course, the control experiment would have been a, a group of monkeys uh, injected with blood of healthy people and could have looked do they get sick as well but that didn't happen either so these experiments are that's uh, a frequent approach uh, with hepatitis C um, experiments that was done the same way that uh, blood from a person with a liver uh, disease where you um, suspected that it might be hepatitis a b or c and uh, they injected it uh, with um, uh, into um, rhesus monkeys and they kept a um, healthy animal in a separate room um, rather than uh, taking uh, the blood of a healthy person in order to um, okay. preclude a um, allergic reaction one final question. If we look at Big Fauna, the facts that you've shown us, but as we've also heard from Bobby Kennedy just before, it looks like a gigantic criminal system. The vaccine manufacturers present themselves as companies that are concerned with the welfare of the people. How does that fit into the picture, what we've just seen? 
it's rather a rhetorical question. Um, I've had a we've had someone from the pharmaceutical industry. She just said it's they don't care for anything else but money. Probably that's the case, right? Yeah, that remains to be feared. Well, there are, uh, of course, compensation claims against Pfizer of billions of euro. Uh, they don't mind. Uh, they're happy to pay them. But they only pay it because they've been uh, uh, shown to um, commit fraud. And the profits they generate in the meantime is a multiple of the uh, um, compensation payments they have to make the penalties they have to pay. Well, that's depressing, depressing. Uh, but we take a look at this um, vaccination context, generally speaking, in the context of Corona now. Well, if Corona has a positive aspect, then that we hear about this and that you uh, trigger a public yeah, debate. I yes. completely agree. Well, yeah, we look at different thank you. aspects. Thank well, you, thank you very Rainer, much, thank um, we are live. Although they have deleted us, uh, we still have 20,000 viewers. That's going to extend because worldwide many, many people look at this as well. Um, both uh, streams were deleted, the English and the German one, I think, uh, when the swap over to Kennedy happened. So very fascinating. Uh, people swapped um, quickly enough and will have uh, several millions across the world again. Was that YouTube or what? Not a technical no, uh, mishap. No, no. Uh, censorship. Well, as soon as we critically look at these issues, it doesn't uh, correspond to the uh, community guidelines of uh, YouTube. When we're on the heels of the uh, fraudsters, they panic. That's the way we can see it. Okay, I wish you a nice weekend. We have two um, clips. One is by, uh, it's a very intensive one, by uh, Dr. Scott Youngblood, who on the 2nd of November, a few days ago, in other words, in the county uh, San Diego Board of Supervisors in a meeting, uh, found very clear words uh, on uh, the vaccinations. He underpinned it very clearly. And then we have a song by Blind Joe, I Will Not Comply. That is really great. Okay. Have a good time. Thank you. Goodbye. Okay, we're done. Uh, it was uh, pure madness, and I think it's incredible. If we look into things, there's so many uh, points. Uh, of course, we can't check it all right away, but uh, I think uh, a lot of uh, thought food, at least. And, uh, well, uh, it's, it's, uh, I'm, I'm flashed again and again finding out these things. And, well... Should we leave the? You can stick and hang around. We're just uh, taking taking leave from the visitors, the audience. We've got this newspaper article as well. Uh, we should show that. 
from of Tishi's uh, insights uh, that connects to the last meeting that we've had where Matthew Erid uh, reported that all these climate catastrophe scenarios are mainly falsified as well. There's this hockey stick uh, graph, which I've mentioned in the beginning. Uh, first of all, everything is clear. Um, uh, temperatures are, stay, are the same. And then the industrial age comes in and the, we are responsible for everything uh, for the hot climate. The person who invented this has just lost a court case because it was all thawed. It was all made up. One may imagine the same with Corona, but um, I think we're not quite there yet so far. Wolfgang, enjoy your evening. The investigation will carry on. Another point, uh, we depend on donations for our work. If you want to, we're happy. As well as overall media, who does the technical production, are also happy for support and we thank you for watching and uh, have a nice weekend and uh, Friday evening first of all bye bye I'm a physician and I'm here to defend science and patient autonomy next slide the best way to look at any medical issue is with a randomized controlled trial. A well-performed RCT is more powerful than dozens of observational studies because it has a control group. That's what Pfizer did to evaluate its vaccine uh, in, to get an EUA. It had 44,000 patients, two large groups, essentially equal in all respects except one group gets the vaccine and the other group gets the placebo. Next slide. Everyone has heard that the study showed excellent vaccine efficacy with a lower rate of symptomatic infections over six months. Next slide. It was also great in preventing severe COVID cases. These patients are really sick. You have a high heart rate, respiratory failure, renal, hepatic, neurologic dysfunction, ICU admission, and death. There was only one case of this in the vaccine group and 30 cases in the placebo group. Next slide. But what hasn't been talked about is the increased adverse events for the vaccine. The total adverse events twice as high, related adverse events four times as high, severe adverse events twice as high. Essentially, those are hospitalizations, heart attacks, strokes, myopericarditis, Guillain-Barre, et cetera. All of these differences were highly statistically significant. Next slide. And the endpoint that we should all care about the most, which is all-cause mortality, this is the, the great endpoint because it ends all of the silly arguments about what caused the death. Was it the vaccine, the virus, or something else? You just total up the deaths, and at the end of six months, you look at them. And in this study, 15 patients died in the vaccine group versus 14 in the placebo group. And then the patients were unblinded and allowed to cross over if they had gotten placebo and wanted the vaccine. Five additional patients who got the vaccine died, but none who remained in the placebo group died. This mortality difference is not statistically significant. It doesn't prove anything other than scientifically, one cannot say that this vaccine saves lives. Next slide. And this raises the big question, if the vaccine is so effective against the virus, preventing infections and severe COVID, then why didn't it, didn't it save lives at the height of the pandemic against the Alpha variant? The most likely answer is that the risks of this vaccine essentially canceled out any COVID benefit from the vaccine. Regardless, there was no death benefit. Next slide. 
And that really is the big problem with this obsessive fixation on COVID infections and death. Is it the vaccinated or the unvaccinated that misses half the problem? The adverse events and deaths from the vaccine. If you survive the vaccine, you will probably be better off when you meet the virus, especially early on, but at what cost? Indeed, the Taiwan Department of Health states right now that slightly more people have died from the COVID vaccines this year than the virus itself. Next slide. The problem is the alpha spike protein, which all the vaccines make. It's a toxin in and of itself. It binds to your ACE2 receptors around your body, which are critical in regulating blood pressure, clotting, immune system. Having spike in your body attacking these receptors is a big problem. Next slide. We've been told not to trust VAERS, but it is the only database available. All the COVID vaccines were also granted EUAs with the requirements removed for ethics boards, data safety monitoring boards, or critical event committees. All of these are customary for anything on an EUA. We are for some reason intentionally flying blind. OSHA just said they are suspending the rule for employers to report adverse events due to mandated COVID vaccines. As an ethical physician, I cannot defend anything on this slide. Next slide. So VAERS is an early warning system, so if a problem is identified, it can be investigated further. It is 31 years old. It is voluntary. There is significant underreporting. Submission of a false report is subject to prosecution, and the CDC validates all these entries. Over 150,000 have been re removed just this year. Next slide. There were about 158 deaths on average per year associated with all vaccines. And then something happens in January of 2021. We now have over 17,000 deaths reported just for the COVID vaccines. I would submit to you that as an early warning system, VAERS is working exactly as intended. We are just not listening to it. Next slide. Nearly 40% of these deaths occur within 48 hours of the shot. It is not until day 40 or so that the death rates return to baseline. If there was no relation, you would see that the low baseline on the right of the graph would be all the way over to the left. Something is happening at day zero to cause these deaths, and it's pretty obvious what that is. Next slide. The CDC states that any death within 28 days of a positive test, regardless of cause, counts as a COVID death. You could get run over by a cement truck crossing the street, but if your COVID test three weeks ago was positive, you are counted as a COVID death. On the other hand, anything within 28 days of a vaccine is not related to the vaccine. Imagine the world that we would live in if these assumptions were reversed. This is illogical and indefensible. Next slide. During the Pfizer vaccine brief before the EUA last October, uh, this slide was flashed up for about one second. It lists out all the adverse events that eventually turned up in VAERS months later. Heart attacks, strokes, myocarditis, pericarditis, Guillain-Barre syndrome, blood clots, deaths, and enhanced uh, vaccine disease. Regardless, the FDA granted the EUA without any mention of any of this in the notices to physicians or patients. They knew about it and apparently said nothing. Perhaps the fact checkers can defend this, but I cannot. Next slide. On August 23rd, the FDA sent out two letters. The first approved the Comirnaty vaccine and the second extended the EUA for the Pfizer-BioNTech vaccine, the same formulation, but legally distinct. To this day, there are no FDA approved COVID vaccines that are actually available in the United States. Comirnaty is not available. So if the FDA approves the vaccine, but it is not actually available to anyone, it begs the question, did the FDA actually approve the vaccine? Next slide. In late July, the CDC stated the viral titers of saliva in the vaccinated are just as high as the unvaccinated. This was the justification to make everything, everyone put their masks back on. The viral levels in your saliva are the measure of how infectious you are. Thus, claims that the unvaccinated are spreading the disease and paradoxically putting the 
vaccinated at risk are all nonsensical. This fact alone destroys the infectious spread justification for vaccine mandates. Next slide. In the age of Delta, vaccines do not meaningfully reduce transmission or stop infections. They do not reduce overall medical uh, resource utilization as we showed. The uh, best evidence available shows that they do not uh, reduce mortality. And since it uses the alpha spike protein, you will get 100% of the risks, but only 40 to 60% of the benefit in the age of Delta, the virus has moved on. The vaccines produce narrow immunity that encourages new variants. Their efficacy wanes after six to eight months. And for COVID survivors, it likely produces no long-term benefit, and they are known to have a two to six times higher rate of adverse events. Likely no benefit, just harm. Having said all of this, they may offer a personal health benefit to these vaccines, but that analysis needs to be individualized. Next slide. The bottom line is that this issue is really complicated. The decision for COVID vaccination should be left up to the patient in consultation with their doctor. There is no medical or scientific justification for COVID vaccine mandates by a government or employers. Thank you.